Hey everyone, Jonathan here with a quick message before we start today's show. It's October, and over this month, we are on the road to 400 episodes of the Weekly Stuff podcast. That big milestone episode will be released on October 25th at the end of the month, and along the way, we have a great month of episodes planned. We also want you, the listener, to be involved with us for this, so please make sure you're subscribed to the show uh, in your podcast app of choice or on our YouTube channel, and leave a rating or a review in your podcast app of choice, and reach out to us online to tell us about your favorite memories from 400 episodes of podcasts. Your favorite episode, your favorite review, your favorite argument, whatever it is, I would love to hear about it and tell it to the rest of the listeners. Just message me at Jonathan Lack on Twitter and we'll include it in a listener mail segment in the 400th episode. This has been one hell of a journey and I am so excited for the next month and we're so happy to have you along for the ride. Now, on to the show. Welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff. This week on the show, it is another long-awaited Weekly Suit Gundam extravaganza as we are talking about the, as of now, final Gundam show made by Yoshiyuki Tomino, the latest one, maybe we should say, Gundam Reconquista in G. And I am intimidated to record this podcast, Sean, because there's a lot going on with, uh, with this show. Yes, it is. Uh, it's a show that I've been very excited to eventually get to on the podcast, partially because it's a show that I have been wanting to rewatch for almost three years at this point, but I haven't been able to because we decided to do an entire Gundam podcast. I'm like, yeah. oh, fuck, <laughs> I have to wait until we get to g Reco to actually rewatch g Reco. But yeah, it's a big show with a lot of big ideas um, that I think is going to be a very fascinating podcast to record. Definitely. Uh, before we get to that, for those who do not listen to the Gundam stuff, or just want to listen to stuff alongside the Gundam stuff, we also have some Nintendo news, so we're going to talk about that. Um, not probably going to go into a ton of like stuff today, because I think we'll save that for next week. Speaking of which, this is episode 399 of the Weekly Stuff podcast, mm-hmm. which makes next week episode 4 fucking 100. <laughs> Um, and we are going to be doing something fun for that. Should we tell the people what we're doing or just keep it a surprise? That's up to you, man. Okay. We are going to be doing, I'll just say really quickly, it's it's something different. For all our other like landmark episodes, like 200, 300, 250, we've done different top 10 lists. And we just didn't really want to do that again for 400. Wanted to try something different. Um, I mean, there's only so many top 10 lists <laughs> like that that we could even do until we just start getting into stuff that like feels... Not substantial enough to be an anniversary or a hundred marker episode of like top ten favorite breakfast cereals. I think was an idea we had like 
five years ago or some shit. Five years, Sean. That's a joke from like before this was the podcast. Like you're right. Yes, that I was know. like a month. Remember the conversation? Idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where that, we had that idea. Yeah, that was probably when we stopped doing a. If you don't know, our very, very, very first podcast that is not online anymore was called The Monthly Ten, and it was all about top ten lists, and that ran out of steam almost immediately. Yes. Um, and yeah, anyway, but we are going to be doing something fun that for me was inspired by like sort of like late night talk shows, and Stephen Colbert does this thing sometimes where he has the guest, if it's someone like he knows really well, like John Oliver or uh, Conan, interview him. And I thought it would be fun. Sean and I are going to be playing a game of 20 questions where we have each come up with 20 questions for the other person and we are going to be doing interviewing each other. And that is all the rules we have set because we yeah. want it to be a surprise. Like, other than you and I are friends and probably can generally like guess what our limits are going to be in terms of like don't ask about something crazy like that, um, it's going to be very open. I don't know what kind of questions you're coming up with. You don't know what kind of questions I'm coming up with. And we're just going to play it by ear. And I think it's going to be fun and different and weird. Yeah, this is finally, Jonathan, my opportunity that I've been waiting for for years and years and years to expose you to the world as as the serial killer I know you to be. That's, this is the, the conclusion to this story arc. Okay. I'm going to ask you where the bodies are buried. It's um, going to be, you're going to start out, it's going to be like very benign, like, just like, what do you like to do on Friday nights, Jonathan? And then like over the course of the episode, you're slowly going to piece together a murder mystery. Exactly. Um, this is going to be. I'm going to ask you questions about like the strange mud that was on your boots. Like, where did that come from, Jonathan? We were a true crime podcast all along, and no one knew. Exactly. Nobody knows whatever happened to our secret third host, Bill. He, he was on the podcast forever ago, and just nobody. You erased all those episodes. You erased <laughs> Bill's existence, and I'm going to expose you to the world, you motherfucker. Next week. All right. Well, that'll be pretty good for episode 400, and I guess at that point there won't be a 401. Um, yep, but no, plan. yeah. So that'll be next week. We'll talk about some other stuff. I have different things to talk about. My only big piece of stuff I did want to touch on this week because it follows up on something from last week is I did finish Metroid Dread on the Nintendo Switch. Finished it at one hundred percent, and I do want to say that is by far the most fun Metroid game to get a hundred percent in. Um, obviously, doing one hundred percent is always a fun part of Metroid games. It's something people love to do with those games, and and all the Metroidvania like clones like those, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but like, there is something about Metroid Dread where one like you get to near the end, and like it's very clear like if you go past that room, you will enter the end game, right? It's every kind of game like this has that, and so that's the point where you go, all right, time to backtrack and get everything I missed. And at that point, you have all of Samus's like power ups and stuff for the main game. And so just traversing the world and going and finding everything, like, on its own, that is ludicrously fun. Because Samus, the movement in this game is so fun. There's, like, there's the dash thing you have, and there's the running, and there's the screw attack is better than ever. And you have all of that. And you're just insanely powerful. Like, the screw attack is so overpowered in this game where, because you only get it near the very end. So you can just literally tear through areas, jumping and just killing monsters that could have, like, killed you earlier in the game. And I remember screw attacking through an entire area where I had died, like, ten times because I had, like, no health and was trying to get through without getting hit. And now I'm just screw attacking through it. And all of that is so fun. But then, like, how they've laid out items and everything is genuinely really challenging. Like, a lot of them are more than just, like, find a spot in the wall and hit the bomb. There's a lot of, like, real puzzles to it. 
And the game has also, though, given you, like, all the tools you need to, like, find things on the map. And it's got, you know, it's got your percentages, but it also, like, shows on the map there'll be, like, a blinking area and you know there's a hidden item there. If you find an item but you can't get it, you can mark it on the map. So by the time you're ready to go and backtrack, it gives you all the tools. So, like, it's not, you don't have to go, like, look up guides and stuff to find all of it. You, I, I did not have to look up guides for finding anything. I did look up, like, some YouTube videos of people doing, there are some real acrobatics you have to pull off with the, what's called the Shine Spark, which is this thing where when you do the big speed boost ability, you can create, you can, like, push down on the, on the stick and then you have this shine spark saved and you have about 10 seconds to use it and it's this big boost that Samus can do through speed blocks and they create all these just incredibly hard puzzles around that that when you pull them off like I saved videos on the Switch of every time I pulled one of these off because every time you do it you feel like a fucking god of video games because it is such a like difficult acrobatic crazy thing to do there's a lot where you look at it and you're like how the fuck am I gonna do this and then when you figure it out it's just such a joy um, and so the process of like getting to 100%, I spent like a solid day just going around and getting 100%, and it was so much fun. On top of everything else, that game does amazingly well. I don't have a ton to add beyond last time, except that the the bosses only get better the deeper the game goes. There are some real motherfuckers. This game gets like properly hard. The final boss and a couple of the ones before that are like honestly it was kicking in like Dark Souls like mm -hmm. memories for me of like. Because they're very fair. It's just you have to figure out what to do, and it's really good. And, like, definitely kicking in some of those, like, muscles I've built up in really hard games like that, or Cuphead or something. The final boss is just great. Um, and, like, the story of this game gets really good. If you are into the crazy Metroid lore with the Chozo and all of that, this game will definitely reward you. And Man Alive, some of the stuff that happens at the end of this game with Samus... And certain powers she gets is fucking crazy. And also, like, very clear that this story was planned when they did Metroid Fusion because it picks up on things Fusion introduces and, like, pays off on those in really interesting ways. Um, and, you know, I would love them to make more after this. It also is kind of feels like it could be a finale to, like, this stretch of the storyline if they wanted it to be. Like, if this is... Because right now this is by far the furthest point on the Metroid timeline they've done. And I could see them not going beyond here if they wanted to. Um, because, like, a lot of species are extinct at this point that Samus mm. has killed. Um, but man, it's a great game. It It's so visually compelling. There's such variation in the areas and they look so cool and the sound is so good. It's got probably the best sound design of any game on the Switch. Like, genuinely, this is a game you have to play with headphones. I loved playing it at headphones with all the lights off at night. It is, like, such a good atmospheric game. Um, yeah, like, it's my game of the year. I'm really curious if anything could possibly top it. It's Because it's not just, like, I love Metroid. It's I love Metroid and this is... This is the best 2D Metroid easily. Um, and I think it like rivals some of the Prime games at times. Which is a high praise because Metroid Prime I think was like my number three game of all time when mm -hmm. we did that. I fucking love those. So this is this is superior. This is such, such good shit. I think it's the best Switch game since Breath of the Wild, which was day one. So best Switch game since the Switch launched. Nice. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just nice to have like Metroid be a thing again. It's just one yes. of those Nintendo franchises that just feels like it's super cool 
and you they, they just don't do nearly enough with it. Next, they need to make a fucking F-Zero game, and then yes. finally Nintendo will be like, we're making games out of our cool franchises again. I know. Nintendo used to have cool franchises too. (laughs) Well, yeah, because we've had so we had Samus Returns in 2017. We've got this in 2021. They're working on Prime Four. Metroid is active again, and and I don't know if you've seen, but Metroid Dread has sold well Mm -hmm. everywhere. It's done. It hasn't done like big like Mario Zelda numbers, but it's done big Switch numbers, and it's done like its opening in Japan was like by far the biggest it's ever done there. I think it sold more in Japan week one than Samus Returns did Lifetime or something. Like it, it's huge. So compared to other games in the series, the Switch bump here was uh, very real, and that's pretty cool. Yes, very good. Yeah. So that's what I've been playing. Uh, I have some other stuff to talk about, but I will wait until next week. Sean, do you have anything before we jump into the news? Not really. I mean, you know, I I went so hard on Lost Judgment that, <laughs> I mean, I had only, I think, watched like four episodes of G-Reco by the time we recorded the last podcast. So this whole week was mostly me just watching all of Wrecking Sin G. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll talk. We we might talk about that later. Yes, that might come up uh, for like eight hours on the podcast. Who knows how oh, long God. it's going to fucking be? All right, um, Sean, you want to hit some news? What's going on in the news, Jonathan? Well, we've got some Nintendo news, and I wanted to talk about some Nintendo Online news that's stupid. But you reminded me we totally blanked on talking about the announcement of the final Super Smash Brothers fighter last week. Yes, because yeah, Mister Sakurai got online. Did a very fun video for us and announced the final fighter for Super Smash Bros. Ultimate. And probably the last Smash Bros. thing we're going to see for quite a while, I would imagine. um, Because Mr. Sakurai looks tired and I would like him to be able to go do other things. Um, And the final fighter is Sora from Kingdom Hearts. Who came in through like a rift in space-time in a very good cutscene that they put together for us. And he looks like a super cool fighter. We're going to be getting him... Uh, today, basically, when this podcast comes out, the 18th is, is when he's launching. Um, yeah, so the final fighter is Sora from Smash from Kingdom Hearts. Makes sense. The company Sakurai runs is Sora Limited, so, you know, that alone. And Sora is definitely one of the characters. They actually revealed in this video that he got number one on the fan poll years ago for the 3DS Wii U version. And they didn't reveal it because they were trying to work with Square Enix on getting the rights. At the time, they didn't. Um, but now they have, you know, they've got stuff like Hero from Dragon Quest, they've got uh, Sephiroth, they've got Cloud, and now we're going to have Sora. Uh, although, sans any Disney stuff, yes. because Disney did not want to play ball. I was hoping if we ever got Sora that, like, Donald and Goofy would be in the background of the stage, like, cheering him on. I want, like, you know, Sora kills someone and Goofy goes, gosh, that was violent, Sora, or something like that. Uh, we will not, sadly, get Donald or Goofy or Mickey or any of those characters uh, or any Hikaru Utada songs in the soundtrack list, which fucking sucks. And But, but Square Enix has been really stingy with music for Smash Bros on all of the Smash Bros DLC. I don't think it's Nintendo's fault. Square Enix is weird, um, but it's yeah. been true of all and, of them. And that's not even a Square Enix thing, because Square Enix doesn't own the rights to that song. That's right? true, yeah. So that's, that's like Japanese music rights stuff, which is yeah. like notoriously difficult to, to weave your way through. Yeah, we do get a, a good set of like 11 uh, Yoko Shimamura songs from Kingdom Hearts, which is, which you know, that alone, you're going to get to do Smash Bros while listening to Yoko Shimamura. That's pretty fucking great. So... Yeah, what did you think about this announcement, Sean? Yeah, I thought this was interesting because I I always thought that Sora like, I, like Sora is obviously a character that like makes perfect sense 
for Smash Brothers, if you ignore all, like, the right stuff that is around the character, like, compared to someone like a Solid Snake, or honestly, like, characters like the Fire Emblem characters, Sora fits, like, like, you feel like Sora could be in the original Super Smash Brothers, kind of, he's that sort of mascot-y, um, yeah, old-school video mean. game character. Um, and so it always made a lot of sense that Sora should be a character that would be in Smash Brothers, because also he's got so much legacy in video games. I just never thought they would do it specifically for the Disney thing, um, because the right stuff around Kingdom Hearts always seems super complicated, because it's like, who owns which part, and like who has how much authority over which aspects of Kingdom Hearts seems really complicated, because it's like... Because Square Enix doesn't have universal control over the Kingdom Hearts original characters. Disney has some degree of ownership and authority over where and how they're used also. Um, so I always thought that even if they could get Sora, I wasn't sure that they would ever get the character in the game because he has to be here in a compromised format. Because even if you get Sora, there is no world in which a single Disney-related thing ever actually pops up in um, Smash Brothers. No Donald, no Goofy... You're not going to get, like, music renditions of Disney themes in there, right? Um, so so I always kind of thought that they would never do it because of that. But when you actually see the character popping up, it's like, it is a bummer that they can't have the character be in there the way you'd want him to be. Um, but it is, it's still cool. Like, it's still probably one of the only characters I feel like they could pick that everyone can look at and say, like, well, yeah. No one can argue about putting Sora in fucking Smash Brothers. There's no motherfucker on the internet who can get, like, uppity about it. If there's any character that has a right to be there, it's fucking the main dude from Kingdom Hearts. Yeah, and, and that's like, you don't have to like Kingdom Hearts, right? You and I don't yeah. really care for those games, but, like, it's very obvious. And even though the mainline Kingdom Hearts games, like 1, 2, 3, are not on Nintendo systems, more on that in a second... Um, there's been a history of Sora on Nintendo's mm -hmm. hardware since the GBA. And then he's on, there's DS games and there's 3DS games and like a ton of, like honestly, the majority maybe of like non, like main numbered Kingdom Hearts stuff has been on Nintendo platforms other than Birth by Sleep, the PSP game. So a ton of it has been Nintendo. So it totally makes sense. I mean, Sora belongs there. I think they're doing really cool stuff with him. Like I like that, uh, uh, Sakurai pointed this out He's the lightest character in the game So like he jumps up and he's just like Very light on his feet and literally he showed this off By having I think it was Sora and like Kirby or someone else very light in the game On that platform in the Mario Stage where it's like a, a Scale and so the heavier Person will weigh it down and, and Sora is just getting lifted all the way up by like Kirby or something um, and it's very funny But he looks like a cool fighter The costumes they've got for him are really neat One of the costumes is the like Mickey Mouse Steamboat Willie costume Which mm -hmm. is, uh, my, I had to ask my brother I'm like, is that in a Kingdom Hearts game? And he's like, yeah, that's in Kingdom Hearts 2 Because Thomas knows all the Kingdom Hearts stuff uh, And he's still very bitter about Kingdom Hearts 3 I, I legitimately have never seen him That disappointed in a piece of media Anyway, um, but yeah So it looks very cool I, I'm glad we're, we're going to have that um, I did think it was funny They did also announce that they're bringing Kingdom Hearts to Switch But only as Cloud streaming versions yeah. Of the 1 and 2 collections and 3 Which for 3 makes sense That would be hard to port to Switch Doable probably, but hard 1 and 2 though, that those are PS3 collections they, They've they done the other ones like that Like Final Fantasy X That collection mm -hmm. is on Switch And it runs great So 
that's just a very lazy move that those will all be technically on Switch, but cloud streaming, just get them somewhere else. That's, they're on everything now. Yeah, it definitely, I mean, obviously doing a native Switch port is going to be work for those games, but I feel like they would make a lot of money. Um, like, I'm hope because I feel like there was some, I saw some, like, rumors about, like, that they might actually be working on it, and I'm not sure how, like, accurate those are, because I can see a reality where Square Enix is just like, well, it's very, it's relatively, it's very easy for us just to do the streaming versions, and we can just time it to this announcement, whether or not they have, like, actual native ports ready to go timed with Sora and, and Smash Brothers would be a very different thing. So hopefully they do get native ports because it 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 makes so much fucking sense. Like, they would make yeah. a lot of money on native Switch versions of those games. And yeah, I'm not saying it wouldn't be work, but I'm I they've done stuff just yes. like it before. That's all I'm saying is that, like, it's, it's not like an unprecedented who could possibly do this on Switch sort of thing. Um, Square Enix has done it actually several times now for much newer ports like final fantasy 12 which is a native ps4 game not a ps3 like you know much newer stuff so anywho kind of weird um but yeah that's sean i, I do also just want to take a second and reflect like super smash bros ultimate is one of the most amazing things in the history of this fucking medium like when you mm -hmm. look at all of what is in there and like when you reflect on the fighters who are in uh, Smash Bros. now just from the DLC like I want to try to bring up this list like here's all the DLC fighters we've gotten for Smash Ultimate Piranha Plant as our joke like free one, Joker from Persona 5 Hero from Dragon Quest Banjo and Kazooie, Terry from Final Fight, Byleth Min Min, Steve and Alex from Minecraft Sephiroth, Pyra and Mithra, Kazuya from Tekken and now Sora. Holy shit like yeah. I understand if there's a couple of those that like you personally were not jazzed about. No one's going to be jazzed about all of them. Right, exactly. No, nobody was particularly jazzed about Byleth. It's like, Except now uh, he's like the main for like my brother loves that one. Like he's a really strong, interesting fighter. But like, yeah, you weren't jazzed about the announcement. But my point is that you look at the scope of that and holy shit, that's a hell of a lineup of new fighters that they've done these last couple of years on top of the like 100 that were in the base game. Like... This is the greatest fighting game that's ever been made. It's unbelievable. There's never going to be anything like it again, I don't think. Yeah, no, certainly in terms of, like, the roster thing, I don't think it's, like, feasible. I mean, it's why I I don't know how Nintendo is ever going to do something again with Smash Brothers Because I don't think, unless you're just doing a, like, graphics pass and stuff to make it, like, Smash Brothers Ultimate 4K or something like that... I just don't think you could make another game where you're making changes that cause you to have to remake those characters and keep that full cast. I mean, this is the only time that they had done that. They had always before made little cuts and things like that in the cast of characters. Um, and then Ultimate, they said, let's just go fucking crazy and bring Solid Snake and all that shit back in and have every single character in the history of the franchise be playable. Um, and I have no idea how I think Nintendo will make another Smash Brothers at some point because these games make so much money but I don't know how you do it and not disappoint people because I just don't think it will be possible from a like just a like making it like labor perspective and then also the rights shit is not you know evergreen so just because they have Joker in here doesn't mean that in five years if they make another Smash Brothers that they can just put a Persona character in there again without doing new deals with Atlas and Sega and stuff. Um, so it is definitely yeah. 
very unique, I think, in, in, and it will continue to be probably unique in the history of video games. This is not something I think Nintendo will do, but I almost think, like, if in another generation you wanted to do Smash again, you'd have to start from scratch. And, mm-hmm. like, all new stages, maybe the same, like, characters, but, like, just rethink a ton of it. Like, go back to, like, the original roster, expand it maybe to 20 or 30, and do something very different. That's all I can imagine. I just can't imagine, like, the Smash Bros. project as it has existed from 1999 to today they've pushed it as far as it's going to go and i don't know if there's anywhere else to push it and i want sakurai to be healthy and okay because he seems okay but you know it's been a lot of work for him yeah well what if you know the next time they just say well what if we just made the next Smash brothers but all it is is fire emblem sword people and that's it that's the entire (laughs) cast um i mean that is i feel like at some point that is how many fire emblem characters there are is like a normal fighting Fighting game game roster's worth of just fire emblem dudes um, no, there is a complete Fire Emblem fighting game and a complete Pokemon fighting game yes. within Smash Brothers, which is kind of wonderful. Like, they did that Pokemon Tekken game, Pokken. I don't know if that even had as many fucking Pokemon as there in Smash Brothers, you know? It's crazy. Yeah. All right. Other piece of Nintendo news this week. Um, we had heard about this uh, vaguely in the last Nintendo Direct, but now we got details. Nintendo has announced pricing and details for the Nintendo Switch Online Plus Expansion Pack subscription. This is the version of Nintendo Switch Online that includes Nintendo 64 and Sega Genesis games, and they also announced will include access to the Animal Crossing DLC, which on its own is being sold for $25 and launches in November. Uh, This program will be launching later this month in October. The cost for this pass will be $50 a year for an individual or $80 for a family subscription. That is up from $20 for an individual for the current version, which includes Super NES and NES games, uh, and I think $35 for a family subscription. So it is more than double for either version. But let's see what you get. Well, for N64 games, you get nine games to start, and they are Dr. Mario 64, Mario Kart 64, Mario Tennis, Sin and Punishment, Star Fox 64, Super Mario 64, which is already on Switch in a superior version via the 35 collection, The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time, Win Back Covert Operations, and Yoshi's Story. You also get Sega Genesis games, and Sean, I did a little digging here because I was very curious about this. There are 14 Sega Genesis games included at launch. But I wanted to see how many of those 14 can you not already play on Switch? Uh-huh. Do you want to give a guess of like what your number would be out of 14? I mean, my guess would be zero. Um, there might be one or two. I don't know. Let's go through them really quick. Okay. Sonic the Hedgehog 2. You can play it in the Sega Genesis Classics Collection on every system. There's the Sega Ages version on every system, which is actually better than any of them because it includes Knuckles from the like add-on thing from Sonic and Knuckles. There's the Xbox 360 version, which is still playable on the Xbox One S and X. Uh, the 3DS port, and it's on iOS and Android. That one's everywhere. Yeah, you can play any Sonic the Hedgehog game anywhere, whatever yeah. you want at this point. Like Those yes. games are have been sold a thousand times on every single platform. Yes. All right, uh, let's see. You've got Streets of Rage 2. That is on everything. It's in the Sega Genesis Classic Collection. It's on the Genesis Mini that they put out a couple years ago. And it's in the Streets of Rage Collection on 360, which is on every, which is backwards compatible. Castlevania Bloodlines is not in the Genesis Collection, but it is in the Castlevania Anniversary Collection on all systems. I already have that on my Switch. Mm-hmm. It was also in the Genesis Mini. Not Switch. 
Yeah, not, but it's on yeah. all systems. Yeah. Yes, yeah, I have it on the uh, PS4. Golden Axe is on the Genesis Classics Collection on all systems. It was also on the Genesis Mini. Uh, let's see. Contra Hardcore is another one that was uh, not in the Genesis Collection, but it's in the Contra Anniversary Collection on all systems. It was also on the Genesis Mini. Dr. Robotnik's Mean Bean Machine is on the Sega Genesis Classics Collection on all systems, and it's on the Genesis Mini. Gunstar Heroes is on the Genesis Classics Collection. It's on every system and the Genesis Mini. Uh, Fantasy Star 4, same thing. Classics Collection, Mini. Rystar is on the Genesis Classics Collection. Not on the Mini, but it's on every platform. Shining Force, Genesis Classics Collection and Mini. Shinobi 3, Genesis Classics Collection and Mini. That leaves three games... Strider, the original Genesis version of Strider, the well, originally it's an arcade game. Yes. That is on the Genesis Mini. It is not on home systems right now. So I guess we give that to Switch. That's also that's not the version of Strider that anyone no. wants to play. Like the version yeah. of Strider people want is the NES version, which is the Metroidvania E1. Um, like the arcade version of Strider, which the Genesis version is a like bad port of, is right. like a side-scrolling action game that's very average. Yeah. So. Echo the Dolphin is not in the Genesis Classics Collection. It is, however, it has the 3DS port, and it's on the Genesis Mini. I guess we'll give that to the Switch also, because it's not on current consoles. And Musha is the only one that really is kind of new here. It was on the Wii Virtual Console, and that's the last time it was seen. Uh, it has not been re-released on consoles since. So I'm not if sure what that is. Yeah, M-U-S-H-A. It's, it's the, the name of the series is different in Japan. Um, it is uh, Aleste is the series it's from. The, the, okay, uh, so yeah. So it's a, it's a vertical shooting, yes. like scrolling. It's vertical scrolling shooter. Yeah, there is an Aleste collection in Japan on Switch, but it does not include this one in particular. So this one is the, is the one that unambiguously is currently new to the Switch Genesis collection. But if we are being at our absolute most generous, there are three here that you cannot already play on Switch. And a lot of those you can play in better forms than they will be in this collection. Um, and then you've got those nine N64 games, only eight of which are new on Switch. And there you go. Uh, and then yeah, there's stuff like o Ocarina almost, of Time, which has had a remake that's yeah. better than the N64 version. That's not what we're getting. That's what I was going to say. Almost all of the N64 games have been remade in some form that is better. That is probably what yeah. you would want to play anyways. Um, Star Fox 64 also has a 3DS yes. remake. Yeah. So, Sean, do you think it's worth $50 a year? <laughs> God no! Oh God! Like it's yeah. A, I mean that's like a like staggering a hundred and fifty percent price increase, which is like crazy. That's so much for what is like, you know, like a, a nice little collection of games. But it's not. It's it's not like I think anybody's ideal version of of either of like what those would look like um, no. in terms of the N sixty four Genesis collections. And then the other thing is that. You know, with the way that Nintendo has handled it with the NES and Super NES, like, I, the only time I ever hear about those games on this Nintendo Switch Online is people complaining on Twitter when they, like, very occasionally do an update that seems like those updates are very infrequent. And they are now. I, I want to be fair. They have added a lot. Those There's over 100 games between the two. Um, so, like, they became more infrequent la in the last year. They were doing monthly for the first three years of the Switch. Okay. Um, and, and they're big. They're big collections at this point. Like, honestly, the $20 a year 
for the online access, which is dumb, but I want to be clear, it's every bit as dumb on PS4 and Xbox. The charging you to use your own internet is stupid and fraudulent and should be fucking illegal, and I don't like it, but that is not a Nintendo-exclusive problem. Yeah. So I want to put that aside for a second. $20 for the online access and that NES Super NES library, I don't think is a crazy ask. It's a really good library of games. It's got all the big SNES classics. It's They even added the whole Donkey Kong Country trilogy recently it's got a lot of what you would want across both of those they added mario all-stars which was one that was missing in action for so many years in different ports but and if they had yeah. added n64 and this i don't give a shit about the genesis thing because you can pay 30 dollars for a much bigger collection of genesis games and it's yours forever so yeah. who gives a shit but like for the n64 things if that was a free add-on with the promise of more later on I think everyone would have been, oh, that's really cool. This th th That idea of that $20 getting more valuable over time is neat. But doubling it and then adding more, not just doubling it, but making it even higher, uh, is just such a slap in the face. Like, I, I, I know Nintendo does baffling things frequently. This is near the top of the pile of baffling Nintendo things to me. Yeah, it, it, I think it just doesn't make sense in a lot of directions. Like, one of them being that, you know... Nintendo didn't make any games on the Sega Genesis, obviously, and, and didn't make the number of games on the N64 that they made on the NES and the Super NES, right? So it's like the easiest games for Nintendo to be able to put on these services are the games that they made because they just own the rights to them. Obviously, they can get third-party games, but they have to pay people and license any third-party game to put it on the platform. So, like, with N64, there's a pretty small number of games overall that they can potentially continue to add um, to onto that service. Although there are a few, like Paper Mario and Pokemon Snap, that, like, and Majora's Mask, that are weird to me that it's not on there. That's, like, those... They are. Games. All three of those they've said are coming. They're just not okay. at launch. Okay. Yeah. So they, sh they should have prioritized those for launch, because those, <laughs> those are, like, the three that probably... I guess Majora's Mask had the remake, but Pokemon yeah. Snap has a sequel, but it has no remake. And then Paper Mario has sequels, but there's no other way to play the original Paper Mario. Um, but then Sega Genesis, like, I, I just don't know how many more games from the Sega Genesis they're going to continue to add. Because they are, there's no, like, quote-unquote freebies in that collection. Everything they have to pay more money to Konami or Sega or somebody to license those games and put them onto that service. And the thing that is bizarre to me is that there is a massive library of Nintendo-owned games on the original Game Boy and Game Boy Advance that uh -huh. they could put into the service that, like, you know, not everybody's going to want to play a bunch of original Game Boy and Game Boy Advance games, but you have a huge collection of them, and you're going to get some on there that, that somebody's going to be interested in, right? And it's like this huge legacy of titles that you can get for what seems to me far cheaper um, and easier to port than something like an N64 game. They've done it! They've yeah. done it recently. The Wii U had a big GBA and Nintendo DS library. The 3DS had a really big Game Boy and Game Boy Color library. And the Switch right now has a bunch of GBA games from other publishers like Konami and Capcom. You have the Mega Man Zero collection. Right. You have the Castlevania Advance collection. You have some others that I'm probably forgetting. But like, this is not a lift. This is not an ask. This is easy. This is gimme like such easy stuff that they could be doing and boy if this was n64 game boy game boy advance and maybe some nintendo ds stuff because you could do that on switch um and you were doubling it to 50 the doubling it to 50 would still be dumb but it would be like you know we could talk about it this is just ludicrous
Yeah, and and it's the 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 other thing that they've done though is that they have thrown in that Animal Crossing DLC, right? Yes. But one thing I think is like interesting is I've seen a lot of people online trying to justify this as being like, oh, and that means that they're going to continue to add future DLC packs. Right. They haven't said that. It should be I very know. clear. Yeah. It's possible. But if were I Nintendo and my idea of selling the service was we're going to have N64 games, Genesis games, and you will get access to future DLC content for Nintendo first-party games, I would fucking say that third part also because then that easily justifies a $50, potentially, like depending on the customer. Yeah. But like you would probably be saving money if you're someone who buys the DLC for every first-party Nintendo game that has DLC by subscribing to the service, right? They've um, got DLC for, like, Hyrule Warriors coming this fall. They've got Splatoon 3 coming in the spring, which will definitely have paid DLC at some point. Like, they could... Because that would be a really cool deal that's a little different than any of the other offerings from other publishers. Like, like that would be more almost in the Game Pass zone. But, like, no. it's They haven't said that, so I would not assume it. Yeah. I, like, honestly, what it seems like to me is Animal Crossing New Horizons is the best-selling game on Switch. They want to sell a new thing here. They're putting that DLC out anyway. That is a way to get the largest number of Switch owners, because New Horizons has the highest attach rate of any Switch game, to maybe buy into this. But I wouldn't go beyond that. <laughs> Yes, because you're you're basically giving them at that point you're you're paying five dollars for a year's access to N64 and Sega Genesis games, and then their thing is then it's like, and then hopefully those people forget to cancel after that first right. year when they've played you know five minutes of Sin and Punishment and Ocarina of Time and stuff and realized you know what it's kind of hard to go back to N64 games and they bought you know you paid 60 bucks for your N64 controller and then you try to play the 64 game you're like I'm a fucking idiot let me go turn on <laughs> any computer it like a, let me go get my mobile phone and emulate these games on there and use a modern controller and I'm going to have like a thousand time better experience playing these yeah. games than trying to play it on the Switch like that it's it's baffling because there are so many ways Nintendo could do this in a way that adds value. They have such a huge library to leverage that they've been leveraging as recently as the last generation. Like, this is not like ancient history that Nintendo yeah. was doing this. The 3DS and Wii U had not everything we could want, but a whole lot of it. And nope, just all missing in action. I like the Super NES and NES collection on there, but no, this is dumb. And yeah, and... You know, at least this this continues to get people re-annoyed about paying for your own fucking internet on your systems, which I would just like some of that annoyance to also be directed at Sony and Microsoft, because it's equally stupid over there, and fraudulent and dumb and bad. Although I would say at least, like, Sony and Microsoft have, like, party chat systems in friends lists that work and things like... They've yeah. got, like, a basic functional online infrastructure that it seems like Nintendo has never fully cracked. So does, so does Steam and other systems yeah. that don't charge no, yeah. you for your it's own internet. It's not an excuse, but it just it's like when Nintendo is now charging what is, like, you know, it's cheaper than Xbox Live Gold or NPS Plus, but not by a lot anymore if you get no. the $50 version. And, like, that then makes it look like those, they're not, like, improving the basic online functionality of the Switch in any way. So it does then look at this like, well, you're, like, you really kind of haven't done anything on the online thing to even, like, barely try to justify that cost. No, I, God, I had to do something 
recently on my Switch where it asked me to do something in the mobile app, like for a sign-in or something. And I'm like, do I still have that? And I like looked in my phone and I found it in like the app drawer. And I go in and open it up and like try to sign in and the app crashed. And then I was just like, nope, I'm not. <laughs> it's it's so shitty. It's so bad. <sighs> I, you know, Nintendo, it's, it's just, you do so many things right. Fucking, I was talking about Metroid Dread at the top of this show, right? But man alive... This is stupid. Who who decided this? Eventually, one day, Nintendo will figure out what the internet is, and then on that day, humanity will go extinct. <laughs> That's when the meteor hits. Exactly. It's like there's some Nintendo executive is like, oh, I get it. Boom! And the fucking <laughs> earth shatters in half. All right. Well, uh, I think that is it for this part of the podcast. We will move on now to our g Reco discussion. So... If you don't listen to Gundam stuff, bye. If you do listen to Gundam stuff, this is going to be great. If you've never done Gundam before, don't start with G-Reco. <laughs> I love it, but yeah. that would be impenetrable. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, don't start with G-Reco. But if you have watched G-Reco, strap the fuck in. Because this is going to be a hell of a podcast. Hello and welcome to Weekly Suit Gundam, the special bonus podcast brought to you by the folks at the Weekly Stuff Podcast. I am Sean Chapman. And I'm Jonathan Lack. And we are here to grab our pride, to grab success, because the G of Genki is the G of Hajimari, is the G of Reconquista. Because we are here to talk about Gundam Reconquista in G for the 40th episode of Weekly Suit Gundam, and what is the 35th anniversary of Gundam, because this is Yoshiyuki Tomino's triumphant return to the franchise with Reconquista in G from 2014. And this is a hell of a fucking show, Jonathan. This is simultaneously the most excited and the most overwhelmingly intimidated I have ever been to record a Weekly Suit Gundam. Because this show, yeah. this is the shortest of all the mainline Gundam shows. It has no, the, the other one would, I guess, be Build Fighters, but Build Fighters does have a full sequel. Um, this is 26 episodes and nothing else. And yet, I think we could record the longest episode we've ever done on it if we did not control ourselves at all. Yes, it is. It is. It is twenty-six episodes of what is a fifty-episode anime. That's <laughs> basically yes. what it feels like. Like Tomio didn't decide, and this is true of his other twenty-six episode long shows I've seen, like Brain Powered. He doesn't decide. Oh, I've only got twenty-six episodes. Let me scale down what I'm doing. It's like oh, I've got twenty-six episodes, and then he fucking cracks his knuckles and says, "Like, see what the fuck I can do with that." Yeah, it's uh, we call that F ninety-one syndrome. Exactly. Yeah. Um, because yeah, I'm in the same boat as you. Um, I, I fucking love G Reco. I'm very excited to record this podcast, but I also have no idea how the fuck we're going to talk about this show. Uh, as, as broadly and then as good as we can. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, so this is the 40th episode. It's crazy to me, Sean, that we've hit 40, especially because next week on our other main podcast, the Weekly Stuff podcast, we're hitting 400. That lined up. I, we're in a simulation. That's a little too weird for me. But, man, it... Uh, it's like that Power of Ten video they show in science classes, which they still show in at least some high school science classes where you zoom out and it's like, Weekly Suit Gundam is 40. You zoom out at Power of Ten, it's 400 for weekly stuff. Which means there's another... In an alternate reality, we're on 440,000 would be the next Power of Ten? Well, 4,000. 4,000, okay, You just sorry. add a zero on each time, yeah. No, there's there's like... 
a hyperdimensional fourth 4D Jonathan and Sean that are on some sort of crazy super podcast that's 4000 episodes long. Yes. No, but this is 40 and uh what better way to celebrate it Sean than with for what is now Yoshiki Tomino's last big Gundam series, his most recent one and I think one of the best. I think Recondista mm-hmm. Inji is I I want to start by saying I 110% anyone who watches this and says that was confusing and alienating because uh-huh. it is yeah i also think that this show is an absolute formalist masterpiece i think it is the best directed gundam show i think it is the most formally and aesthetically interesting gundam show and i think it is doing kind of nothing less than rethinking sort of the basic language of anime and television as it is going along and it is a show that asks you to meet it halfway and put in as much work as it's putting in on its end. Not literally as much, but you know what I mean. And yeah. if you do, though, I think it is a ludicrously rewarding 26 episodes of television. And I was also sadder coming to the end of this one than I was with any other Gundam show we've watched. Where I just, I could have, I wish there were a hundred more of these. I, I think this is a truly, truly remarkable show. This is not a... This is not quite like F91 where like I will say F91 has like serious issues in it, but I love it all the same for all of these. I think Jirek is just a fucking amazing masterpiece show. Yes. I think I think it is like for the 2010s, this to me is almost like the anime equivalent of like Twin Peaks the Return. It is this like staggering auteur vision that is kind of makes you rethink the medium it exists in. Yeah, I, I, I basically agree. I think like what the show feels like to me is it is like it is the most Tomino show that Tomino has made. Right. Yeah. It is it is it takes a lot of these sort of stylistic elements and sort of quirks and eccentricities in the interests of Tomino as a storyteller and the general style and approach he has always used and and cranks everything up to eleven to sort of like really critically analyze the, like I feel like the way that you tell a story and what th- and how the way that you tell a story sort of can corrupt itself in some way like like of where where stories limit the possibilities of what the story is so much and he tries to avoid that and keep the possibility space as open and broad and interesting and dynamic as possible and that's why he does things like avoid getting too close to characters avoid giving you direct access to interiority of characters um, and things like that and playing avoids with... all formal exposition devices yes. for 26 episodes there is not one fucking scrap of it in this show yeah and and that's all stuff that he has generally done in all of his shows and here it's just even more exaggerated than it's ever been done before and in such a way that I'm with you Jonathan like I totally understand why this show is super divisive I get why like there are a lot of people who really don't like it and find it very confusing and hard to follow because I think you need to I think you need to have a lot of experience with Tomino's storytelling style in order to have like the tools and kind of like the language to be able to like really understand what's happening and not kind of get left behind because the show is asking a lot of you. If you have no preconceived notions going in about the ways that Tomino tells a story, I think it would be incredibly difficult to to kind of break this thing apart and really understand it. But if you do have that experience and that fondness for his storytelling style, this it does just feel like getting like the hundred percent pure version of it injected directly into your fucking veins. Yeah, it's you know another. I mentioned Twin Peaks: The Return, and you know it's often said of David Lynch that David Lynch's movies and TV shows feel like 
he somehow poured his brain matter onto celluloid. Like it's just a mm-hmm. perfect window into his brain. This is the Gundam show where I think it's it's animation, but it's that same thing for Tomino. It just feels like a direct access into the way his brain works. And it's really interesting. But like this is a show that asks you to put in a degree of effort that is just very unusual for mainstream media. And mm-hmm. when I say that, that's not me saying that if you didn't like it, you're lazy. I want to be really clear. Like, most media asks you to put in some effort, but I think until you watch something like this, you don't realize how much most film and television, stuff with a cinematic language, is is doing a lot of the work for you. Like, more so than maybe a book or a comic book or something like that, because it is this, like, all-consuming audiovisual sensory experience, right? Um, and this, honestly, to me, felt a lot more like using the muscles of, like, watching avant-garde stuff sometimes or experimental film or um or twin peaks the return stuff like that where it's like it is just a degree of investment that is extraordinarily high this is a show that i i could not like have meals while watching this show obviously when i watch Uh gundam one of the things i frequently do is like have lunch and watch an episode of gundam I can't. I could not do this with this show. The only time I had any kind of meal was last night finishing it because I have a ritual where I always have a pizza when I finish a Gundam show because I did that with the first Gundam and it's like my weird little superstition that that'll make the podcast go well <laughs> and it's fun. It's pizza, but like other than that, like it was. I had my nice headphones on. I had the lights out. I was focusing. I usually watch this like as my last thing I would do in the day before bed when I could just be one hundred percent in the zone. And I always try to pay. 100% attention to Gundam, especially because we're doing it for the podcast, but you just feel the degree of effort you're putting into it is different. It would take me more than 25 minutes to go through most episodes because I would rewind things and I would write ideas down and I would um, look at scenes again. And it's just like, it is a it is a really demanding work in the way, like another mainstream work I would compare it to in that way is like The Wire, if people have seen that on HBO, is like the American TV show that people often say is like you kind of have to relearn how to watch TV watching it. This show is like you kind of have to relearn how to watch anime watching this. Um, it feels kind of like you're learning a new language, not Japanese, but like the visual like like aesthetic constructive language of filmmaking you're kind of relearning while you're watching yeah and i would say it's like to me it's very like it's it's taking a lot of assumptions of storytelling and kind of throwing them out the window like it's and yeah. again which is something i think Tomino generally does um but it's so excessive here of of there is a degree to which like information can be distributed in a way where you don't know how accurate or true it is or the ways of like that characters don't know things that they shouldn't know which is one of those things that you're saying Johnson like you have to put in the work of like most movies and TV shows don't really give a shit about like how information is distributed and who knows what they kind of just like if something has happened it just kind of feels like everyone vaguely knows that this thing has happened because it makes it easier for the story to be told that way um and Tomino doesn't give a shit about that and so you are constantly trying to piece together this like larger puzzle of the story about why are things happening what is actually happening like are these events real what is this war on earth like that they keep referring to what is all the stuff with the Kuntala how much of it is accurate how much of it is like this person's interpretation of it and so the story is like mired in this realm of like uncertainty that I think is very much the point of the story that makes it 
if you are someone who's not prepared to start engaging with that, I think incredibly difficult to deal with. But if you are engaged or like prepared to deal with it, it makes the story so engaging and so fulfilling because it feels like you are able to put so much of yourself into the experience of like interpreting and understanding and kind of reading what the show even is. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to put it. So that's probably enough of a preamble for now. Do you want to go into our normal segment where we talk about the, the history of this thing? Yeah, so let's talk about the history of this thing. There's a lot that kind of goes goes into this. Um, right at the top of this, I want to shout out, um, uh, there is a very, very good blog called gshelf.wordpress.com um, that uh, has, it's probably, has got to be, on in terms of like the English language side of things, the most advent, advent like, uh, like intense fan, I guess, of G-Reco out there, because uh, there are multiple essays on this blog. Um, I, th- I think you actually uh, uh, posted something yeah, from this, Jonathan, last night. Um, and he also has put together a huge uh, timeline of the production of G-Reco that did a lot of the work for me, and I was very grateful for that. So if you want to get like a more in-depth look at some of like what led to G-Reco coming about, I would recommend going to gself.wordpress.com um, and checking that out for yourself um but i'll be referencing some stuff from from that site so i wanted to give it a a little shout out but let's revisit where we were with with the main man himself yoshiki tomino because the last time we saw him was with the zeta gundam movies and with turn a so he made turn a in 1999 in 2000 um and then he did two uh compilation films in 2002 which is hilarious to think that there are two compilation movies of the 50 episode turn a gundam and when it's done there will be five compilation movies of the 26 episode g reco yes. um it's <laughs> just like a hilariously very different amount of movie two episode time um after he did the compilation movies or kind of like in conjunction with the compilation movies tomino also made a 26 episode tv show called overman king gainer which i watched a couple of episodes of last night because i just wanted to see a bit of it it seems very cool um it's it's kind of significant to the making of turn a gundam because there are a few um critical sort of players in turn a gundam that uh, come about through his partnership and working with them in uh, Overman King Gainer. The main one being Kenichi Yoshida, who is the character designer and an animation director on G Reco. He was also a character designer and animation director on Overman King Gainer, which was one of the first like big things that Kenichi Yoshida did. After that, Yoshida went on within Sunrise to serve those same two roles for a really good uh, mecha show called Eureka 7 from 2005 and 2006, which is a show that that I would like to eventually get to because it's very Gundam-influenced, um, and it's a pretty interesting 50-episode um, uh, mecha show. So Tomino works on Overman King Gainer. I also highly recommend people go on YouTube and look up the opening uh, theme song to Overman King Gainer because it is fucking amazing. It's super good. If you if the only thing you watch for Overman King Gainer is just the main theme song, just will watch that because it is fucking great. The show is also pretty cool based on the first couple of episodes I've watched. Someone definitely linked me to like when I said, "Oh my god, the ending theme for G Reco is amazing." Someone linked me to the King Gainer theme and said it's kind of like this, and it is, and it's amazing. So yes, yeah, it's fucking amazing. So he makes that 26-episode TV show uh, in 2002, again, um, working with Kenichi Yoshida and a couple of other people who will kind of like with Turn A Gundam, I feel like between Brainpower, Turn A Gundam, and Overhand King Gainer, uh, Tomino collects a couple of like major figures in like voice acting and production and animation and direction and stuff like that um, that kind of stick with him through a bunch of those projects. 
Um, and then after Overman King Gainer, he doesn't do a whole lot. He does a little OVA, The Wings of Rian, which is uh, set in the Aura Battler Dunbine universe. And then he also does the compilation movies for Zeta Gundam, which we did our podcast on. Um, and then after that, he starts sort of conceptualizing the project that would eventually become Rekongista in G. And so in 2007, Tomino gets back into contact with Kenichi Yoshida to have uh, Yoshida start working on character designs for this new project that he's um, coming up with. And so quietly in the background, there's some kind of pre-production stuff going on on a project that will eventually turn into, by 2014, what Rekongista in G is. There's also stuff about that Tomino's potentially thinking about making like a live action movie set in like a Gundam type of setting. Um, and that never comes to fruition. But in 2009, there is a sort of big uh, Gundam kind of short compilation project that comes together. And uh, Tomino directs a short called Ring of Gundam, which is a five minute short thing um, that uses some concepts from this like potential other project he was thinking about. Um, and so there's some of that stuff kind of floating around on the edges. In 2010, uh, he talks about that he has an idea for a novel project called Hajimetai Capital G no Monogatari, or The Beginning Story of Capital G, the translation of that. Um, and this is where some ideas like um, the um, Capital Tower kind of concept of a space elevator, there's a lot of elements like that apparently in this kind of novel proposal that never really goes much of anywhere. And then it's not till 2011 that all of these little pieces of like some character designs he's thinking on, some story ideas, the space elevator stuff, some of like that live action thing, all starts coming together into a project that they announce is in development called G Reco. Um, and that Tomino is going to write all of the screenplays, which he does. Um, and at one point, Tomino talked about wanting to do all the storyboarding, which ultimately was not possible because there's no way one person could do the storyboards for 26 episodes of a TV anime. That would be impossible, especially if you're like 78 years old at the time. But he does do a lot of the storyboarding work, just not literally all of it. Um, and so that's when G Reco really starts becoming actually G Reco is in 2011. And that's where also now uh, Sunrise is interested in sort of like going really forward on this project and building that up. And then it starts becoming clear that the timing for all of this of the pre-production work on G Reco is going to line up in 2014 with the 35th anniversary of the show. And so that's where they kind of slot the idea for it is let's do a big anniversary thing. It's Tomina's first TV Gundam since the year 2000 and his first time coming back to Gundam at all, if you include the Zeta Gundam thing since 2006. Um, and so they, they plan a whole big thing uh, for the release of G Reco, they do a, you know, they edit together the first couple of episodes into a sort of movie that has a short theatrical release. They also have a 90 minute documentary that I cannot for the life of me find anyone who's uploaded it online, which is annoying. It was very, it was released in very limited production at Blu-rays sold to that like kind of movie premiere thing they did. Uh, that is a 90 minute documentary basically about the kind of conceptualization of G Reco. There's a 10 minute clip of it in Japanese you can find online that is the very beginning, but it doesn't really get into most of what that um, documentary seems to have been about. Uh, but so the point being that they kind of planned this whole big event around the idea of it's Tomino coming back um, for to Gundam, making a big 26 episode TV Gundam show. Um, and it comes out and I would say the, the reception is interesting because 
it is a show that sold, sells pretty well. It has decent ratings. Um, it like it's it's like has ratings better than what Iron Blood Orphans would have, which is a show that is like more broadly popular. So G Reco has good ratings. It sells quite well in terms of its Blu-ray and DVD sales, but it does have a very like divisive and strong negative reaction amongst a lot of the community online who just find the show very confusing, very difficult to follow. Um, but there is a like interesting critical reaction um, in Japan where there are a lot of like interesting critics um, and other creative figures in anime that talk about how much they really, really like Rekengisa and G, which we'll probably get into some of the quotes of that um, when we get more into the meat of the discussion. But I, I think sometimes the reception to G Reco can just be kind of pigeonholed as being it's negative because the negative opinions are very like intense online because it is a difficult show to follow. But it, I would argue it's more like divisive and more of a kind of cult hit type thing where it definitely has a very passionate fan base. A fan base that's passionate enough, obviously, that they are currently in a five movie compilation project. All those movies do well at the theater for a compilation movie. You know, it's not doing Kimetsu Yaiba money, but it I, does well for compilation films. So I was in Japan, as you all know, in uh, end of 2019, beginning of 2020. And when I was at the Gundam Cafe buying my wonderful, we've talked about them before, uh, Amuro chopsticks, Amuro Itadakimasu, yes. they're beautiful. I was in line behind a Japanese man, maybe about my same age, um, who was like buying the super limited ultra awesome edition of the G Reco movie one that they had on sale there that if I had any idea of how far we would take all of this, I would have probably bought too. Um, but anyway, like, and he was like asking all these questions about it and like very excited about it. So I like was in the room with one of these like G Reco otakus and there was a lot of stuff about it. Like if, if you were in the, the around the, the area there and you look at like the merchandise and if you go online and look at it now, it would be really hard to argue that like G Reco was like this flop that no one looked at or liked it's not you know I, we, we love this show but it's not like after work on Max that kind of like yeah it was canceled and disappeared and there were no big compilation movies of like g reco has quite a, a footprint yeah and i mean it has to like sunrise wouldn't green light a five movie no. project just because tomino wants to do it like they're interested in making money and g reco makes money um and so, and I, I think it has a more oversized negative reaction in the Western fan base, which makes sense to me because I feel like if you, if your history with Gundam is like you really like Gundam Wing and Gundam Seed and that kind of stuff, Wrecking Geese and G is nothing like those shows. It's only if you like the Tomino style of Gundam that I think like G Reco is going to be appealing to you. And the Tomino style of Gundam has never been the main version of Gundam that has been sold in the West. It became popular in the 90s. And then in the modern era of streaming, Iron Blooded Orphans is a very well liked show. But that's because it was a big show on Crunchyroll and Netflix and stuff. I feel like Iron Blooded Orphans was enjoyed like way beyond like the bounds of Gundam. It was like, I feel like it's yes. Iron Blooded Orphans first, not Gundam first. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, so that's kind of, like, the general sort of history of how the show came about. I think it is an important element of it is that, like, Tomino did get a lot of leeway in terms of, like, it is very much his show. Um, and one thing that's interesting that you can kind of glean from the early parts of that documentary that they made that I could see online um, is that he assembled an interesting set of staff that, like I said, it's a lot of people that had kind of followed him um, like after v Victory Gundam and all that kind of stuff when he was doing more kind of weirder projects like Brain Powered um, and, and there are a lot of 
very kind of veteran creators in the anime business that basically like hopped on the Tomino train because he was the guy who made Gundam and they were like he was an idol right to them when they were growing up and it's like he's the kind of director who had been in the business for so long that for a lot of people the things that he made were the reason why they joined like the anime business in the first place so a lot of the staff of of uh g reco is made up of like pretty high level veterans a lot of people like in their 40s and 50s working on this show which is very unusual for the staff of an anime because you'd normally have like a couple of older more veteran people in like the top level positions and everything else is a bunch of younger people who are very new to the business that you can pay super cheap and kind of forget about it um and wrecking gisun g just isn't quite like that so it's stuff of like the guy who directed the first episode of attack on titan which is one of the best directed episodes of any modern tv anime the first episode of attack on titan is incredible he also worked heavily on a lot of death note and stuff like that he like joined g reco entirely just because it's like ah fuck it like it's tomino like tomino's making a new tv anime this is going to be my last chance to do something like this is going to be my only chance probably to be on a tomino directed project like let me go do that i want to so there's a quote here on the g shelf timeline araki got excited when he found out that tomino was making another anime series as a tomino fan i thought i'd like to subtitle one of his works he explained i felt i had a chance Tomino says that he had seen episode one of Attack on Titan and largely approved. He keeps a good watch compared to mediocre directors. He captures a worldview. Araki-san tries his best. I happily considered approving all of the young generation instead of rejecting them all. I would have declined to direct Attack, but if I had accepted, I wouldn't have been able to make this. Araki was shocked when he received Tomino's feedback on his storyboards. Over a hundred notes had been attached to the pages, some with brutal comments like, this is nauseating, and I want them to understand the direction of this scene. But Araki expected this sort of treatment from Tomino, and even says he treasured the notes i stuck them on my desk he admitted yeah so that's that's like one person but there are lots of people like that that are on the staff for g reco um which i think is one of the things that makes it a very fascinating show because it is so well produced and well animated and it makes sense when you start looking at a lot of the people that worked on it um another uh kind of big uh tomino kind of gundam player from the turn a days that is also on the staff is akita yasuda who was he's the character designer for street fighter 2 who um tomino met in a cafe because the sunrise cafe was like the same building as capcom and then he liked him so he was like hey you want to do the character designs for turn a and akita yasuda was like sure um, and so he calls up Yasuda again and has him, instead of doing character designs, has him do mechanical designs, including Akira Yasuda designed the G-Self, which is the main Gundam of Reko and G, um, which I think is very cool. Because it's like, it's still like the only anime stuff, basically, that Akira Yasuda has ever done is just stuff with Tomino. Uh, and I love that. Like, most of the, his work is just in the video game business. And Tomino calls him up and is like, hey, you want to you wanna do a cool Gundam thing? He's like, sure, fuck it. <laughs> Um, that he must... even came up with a like fake Gundam to put up on like over the design for the G self, um, basically for when there was an interview going on in Tomino's office, and they're like, "Hey, can you throw something up here, the dummy Gundam, uh, so that people can't see what the actual G self is going to look like?" That's awesome. And I mean, the 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 mecha on this show are so singular; they look so different than any other Gundam designs, and so that very much makes sense. They're like the design sensibility is just very different. In the same way, you get some of that like. Sid Mead stuff in Turn A Gundam yeah. and just like no one else would be designing a Gundam like this so it's really cool yeah and then a couple of other staff people I want to point out is uh, he gets Yugo Kano to do the music not to be mistaken with Yoko Kano because everyone <laughs> makes that mistake Yoko Kano did the music for Turn A Gundam Yugo Kano does the music for, for G-Reco 
Um, he's done a bunch of really good uh, music. My favorite thing that he works on is ever since part three, he has done all the music for Jojo's Bizarre Adventure. So part three, uh, part four and part five. And he's also going to be on part six. And the music for Jojo's Bizarre Adventure for like that section is so incredibly good and very distinctive. Um, and Yugo Kano is a very awesome composer. Um, he also did. Oh, yeah. He also did all the music on Birdie the Mighty, which is a very good show with really good music as well. So so you've got. Um, Yugo Kano coming on, which is really, really awesome as well. Yeah, and the music in this show is amazing and wonderful, so definitely. And then then the last thing I want to point out, just because I always love this trend uh, with kind of Tomino's stuff, is not as distinctive as Turn A Gundam, but he definitely makes an effort to try to hire people who are not like big high profile voice actors in his show the main one being mark ishii who voices bellry this was like the first i mean this is certainly the first main character he played he had almost no credits before playing bellry um and then most of the other people um that make up a lot of the main cast of the show are there's not as many unknowns as there were in turn a gundam but it's a lot of people that are like very early on in their career like yushima who plays ida she had also been recently cast as anna a major character in attack on titan but hadn't had a lot of roles yet either so he kind of keeps up that tradition of trying to cast people who were either brand new like total unknowns or were very very early in their career so outside of a couple of like older characters that you obviously want like a slightly more like experienced actor who's of that age to play most of the care the the voice acting is very kind of raw and sort of new um and that's another element that is very tomino-esque that he keeps here that i really love yeah absolutely um i mean as the guy who like helped launch the careers of toru furia and shuichi ikeda he's good at this so yes and romi park from turn gundam you know know. it's like the modern world of voice acting would be way poorer in japan if it were not for tomino getting some of those young bucks in there and and getting them like the juiciest fucking roles you could possibly give like a 19 year old actor yeah no 100 percent. and i think g reko is a really good example of that kind of raw quality of voice acting because especially mark ishii as as belry is just it sounds completely unlike any other Gundam protagonist performance it's it you can just kind of hear the enthusiasm of someone in the booth it just sounds so it doesn't sound like a performance almost it just sounds so unfiltered and there's something about that I really love yeah and and so so that's I guess kind of like the the history of this show like it was just a thing that had been in pre-production for a long time and it kind of all comes together with a bunch of like a really interesting staff um and it's one of those you know, Citizen Kane-esque deals of they gave Tomino a huge amount of leverage and leeway to just do what the fuck he wanted. Um, Again, he wrote every single episode. He did a significant majority of this storyboarding for the series. um, And he's like the main director and directed almost every episode. So it's, you know, it's, it is very much his show. Um, and, you know, for people who don't like that his style, that means that you should not apply. But if you are into Tomino's thing, you are getting, like, some fucking intense Tomino shit if you watch Wrecking uh, Senji. Pure, uncut, just, you know, injected into my veins. Before yes. we talk about the show, Sean, I do want to end with one other thing from the, the G-Self production timeline, which is this speech Tomino made at the 35th anniversary event where they announced... Uh, G-Reco formally like that this show was going to be airing that year um, I'm not it's long I don't want to read the whole thing but there's some of this I just want to read because I think it's a really good like entree into the the kind of existence of the show 
Um, Tomino says, when I came here today and was told that I'll be the special guest, I told them no. I complained that I'm a member of the team. I'm very disappointed that the word special guest was not gone. I'm not special. I'm a regular member of the team. But at the same time, I must say that the people who are aiming to be part of this business to become new entrants are not able to put their fingers on what this business system is all about. I certainly wish they would, but this point of view is lacking in the industry. In that sense, the form of collaboration under the Gundam team, I think, is a business format, although it's not a nice word, that could be sustained for a while. As a regular member of the Gundam team, I've been thinking seriously for the past 15 years of the message to be communicated to the post-Gundam generation. Reconquista in G finally formed a framework for that message. The letter G stands for Gundam, but it primarily means ground, as in standing on the ground. The word Reconquista is a coined word based on the word Reconquista, but in Japan it had to be Reconquista because we need a G sound to sell well here. Not Reconquista, but Reconquista. 35 years have passed, but the business style or business system supported by adults will not last another 50 years without change. We need new content and new messages. That, in my way of expressing things, is illustrated in Rekunjikista in G. Clearly, future fans of Gundam will be different from fans of the Origin or Unicorn. I wanted to create something that could be shown to our children, to your children. I certainly believe we can let it emerge from the field of Gundam. That, I believe, could be expressed in the next production we are working on right now. Only history will tell how well you did, but I tell myself at this age, you did a great job. I wish to pass the message of children, uh, the message to children of today and grandchildren of tomorrow of the story. I am so proud and so happy to be able to speak about this on the 35th anniversary. My heartfelt appreciation goes out to all who made this possible, etc., etc. Um, and I just, I find that a really interesting statement because it's something I was thinking about a lot finishing the show last night, is how much this show does feel like a message to the youth of tomorrow in its mm -hmm. existence even though i can't really imagine a young child watching this show and enjoying it the way i can't with any other tomio gundam uh -huh. but you know uh to maybe the children inside of us or at the very least the young adults coming up there is a very clear and pointed message to i think this show at kind of all levels from from form to story yeah, and 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 uh, when we get like more towards the end of discussing the show, I also have a couple of Tomino quotes uh, I found on the Japanese Wikipedia that I'll bring up um, because he's very consistent in talking about this show as like um, he he uses this metaphor as like this seed that he wants to plant, um, and he talked about it that way of like it's like not for me, it's like for the children in this like big i think conceptual way as you say it's not a it's not a children's show this is like a thing that he also said is like it doesn't mean that i'm making like a kid's show is a show that i want children to watch it's like there's like a weird distinction there of like he's not trying to dumb it down or make it you know this like you know yokai watch or something like that but he is making a show that like its themes and its ideas are for like the new generation and in, in people coming up in the world or as you say Jonathan for like the, the child inside of us and like that part of us to sort of grab that imagination and say like we need to think about the future and about different things and new things like this yeah absolutely I think there's a lot of affinity between to me Tomino and Hayao Miyazaki and they talk about mm -hmm. how they talk about and approach their work obviously they're about the same age they have similar sort of long histories from the beginning of anime to now and I think when you look at how they've both approached work in sort of their twilight years here they have a similar idea of legacy and message being very important to what they're trying to kind of leave as their stamp and they're very aware of their own influence I think in that as well um, in that yes, this is even, even if shaped. uh 
Tomino's very like um, sort of dry, sarcastic sense of humor. He he will like never admit to it, but yes, he's he's very aware of like yes the way that people think about him or like will listen to what he has to say. Which I will say is like you know if people go up and look up interviews of things that Tomino says, um, never take it like one hundred percent seriously. No. It's something in doing the research for G Reco on a lot of English language websites. I tend to see there's this very big difference between the way the Japanese community hears what Tomino says and the way that the, some of the English community hears it. Whereas, like, when you see, like, the actual videos of the interviews, usually when he says the shit that's very, like, funny and ridiculous, like, people, like, kind of chuckle along with him because they know, like, he's kind of saying a very dry, sarcastic joke. And then when it gets translated to English, the humorous edge of it completely comes off and it's just, like... I he says some like outrageous thing about he how he hates all anime or some shit or whatever, right? <laughs> um, and everyone gets mad about it. It's like he's like look like he's he's saying something outrageous to get a reaction on purpose and for it to be funny. Um, and we'll get into some of that stuff that he says uh, that that the, after the show is done, um, that kind of has that quality to it. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, question of the hour: uh-huh. Where do you want to start with Gundam Reconquista in G? Uh, uh, I don't know. Where do you want to start, Jonathan? Let me let me respond to that question with another question. What do you want to do, Jonathan? This is this is always what the podcast is. Is I'm I'm not the one who determines where this goes or what we talk about. I'm just your guide on your Gundam journey. So where do you want to start, Jonathan? All right, that's a that's a uh, epic cop out you just did. But yes, uh, why don't we just start with the world of G Reco? Because okay. it is one that you are introduced to gradually and never holistically. But, you know, one of the things looking at that production timeline and realizing, like, this is a show that Tomino, like, planned off and on for almost 10 years before making yeah. it. Like, it makes sense because this is, I think, every inch as rich a vein of world building as Turn A Gundam is. It is not one that you'd necessarily explore to the same degree as Turn A Gundam, in part because this is 26 episodes and that was 50. And Turn A has, for Tomino, a more leisurely pace, I think. And mm-hmm. you would never, ever, ever apply that word to G Reco. But I think the world of this show is fascinating. Its connections to other pieces of Gundam are amazing. And the level of detail with which it is brought to life, I mean, that is a word that comes to my mind over and over again while watching and thinking about this show, is that Tomino has always been a stickler for finicky little details, like how where people are at zero-G in space, and how they move around, the little handles on the ships, all of the contact link stuff between mobile suits, but like all of that is dialed up way beyond 11 in this show it is a show just rife with details like filling out like just spilling out of every scene and i think that extends to the world building because this feels like this truly feels like a show where we are peeping through a keyhole at a world that is large beyond our comprehension and exists separate from the show like it just it exists somewhere it is a solid thing it is a real history and this show is our you know, 13-hour roughly glimpse into it, but nothing more. And I think that's fascinating. Yeah, and it, yeah, exactly. And I think the thing, to, to be able to talk about the world building, I think you have to talk about the way that Tomino goes about presenting that world to the viewer. Because this is where, you know, his approach to having no, like, traditional forms of exposition, like, is really critical. Because I think part of the point of what Tomino is doing and how he's building out the world is to create the sensation 
of of living in the world where you don't know what the fuck's going on most of the time, right? Like, especially when you're like what 15, 14, however old Bellary is, um, he doesn't know anything about Ameria or the war that Ameria is having with this other country that is like an important part of like the overall plot and world of the show. And you never see that other country at all. You never see a person from it. You never see a ship from it. You never see a scene of the war anything like that, right? So you have this whole sense that there is a giant world out there and you're only ever seeing the sl the tiniest slivers of it. And so your understanding of the world is only encompasses the things that you see and the things that you hear people say, and that's it. And the things that you hear people say, you can't always rely on being 100% accurate because there's lots of information that is either wrong or it's like clearly distorted because people are making assumptions or they're filtering things through their perspective and their biases. Um, and so you're constantly sort of disoriented compared to other media about like what is going on compared to something like a like double O Gundam is probably on the opposite spectrum. Um, where, where Double O feels like you have this very good bird's eye view of this is what the world is. This is the, the major players in the world. These are the politics, the interests, the motivations of all the major players. And this is what Celestial Being as an agency is manipulating and fighting against. Uh, G Reco has all that. You have the sense that there are these political players out there. They have their motivations. There are these things that move the world. But we're not you know, celestial being where Bell Rezenum and this crew of like ragtag pirates slash Amerian soldiers who don't know what the fuck is really going on. And so your understanding of the world is encompassed entirely to what you see and what you hear from those perspectives. And that's part of the thing that I think for people can make the show very hard to follow because we're so used to in a big fictional setting like this getting a lot of information presented in an objective fashion that that orients you very specifically in the world about what is important what matters and what is true and g Reco doesn't want to do that for you it wants to create this big imaginative world and just plop you in the middle of it and let you kind of figure out things for yourself and that's an evolution for tomino himself because you compare it to double yeah. o but let's go back to original gundam 1979 that show has a voice of god it has a narrator it starts with a narrator telling you we're in double o 79 we built space colonies, people lived, they died, and now there's a big war, and the narrator will often come up and clarify things, and in the in the movie cut of those movies, that's where you get the formal exposition of what the fuck a Minovsky particle is, uh -huh. is the narrator tells you it. Um, if you haven't, like, and you can figure out what a Minovsky particle is watching, but you have the narrator say that. Gundam 79 ends with the narrator telling you how the story ended, that uh, the next day they signed an armistice and now the war is over. Um, you know, Zeta and Double Zeta don't, I don't believe use a formal narrator, right? He doesn't do that again. Not really. Like, yeah. I, th I th you have like the like Tears of Time voice at the end of Zeta Gundam, but I wouldn't really call right. that a narrator. No, so, so those ones do that less, but there is still a little more... You know, at the very least, you have stuff like authority figures who know what's going on that you can ask about. In um, in in Turn A Gundam, Turn A is is definitely his most exposition allergic show before this. Like Turn A does not do much formal exposition, but it has that like sort of um, 
dramaturgical st like uh, strategy of having Lauren Sahak, who is a newcomer to Earth, and therefore we see these new things through his eyes, and therefore we are aligned with him a little bit in learning about this world. Um, G. Reco, Belry is not like that. Belry is very ingrained yeah. in the world he's living in. He has a lot to learn, but he is not like having to like ask questions quite the same way Lauren is. So it's exactly as you say, Sean. It is. A, like this is still a multiple perspective show. It does not just stick within Bellary's POV exclusively, but the cacophony of POVs it represents are all very consciously limited in the way real POVs are, and it mm -hmm. never goes beyond the individual POVs of the moment. Yeah, exactly, and and it it and when you get those other. I think that's kind of when you get those other POVs, when you cut to mask or, you know, occasionally you will cut to like a scene where you do see someone like the American president. Like there are a couple of characters that are a little bit more in the know, but you always cut to people and you realize like nobody knows what the fuck's going on. Everybody's kind of a moron in like a big picture perspective, right? There's, there's, as part of the thing is as you go to like the moon and you go to Venus globe, you realize like, there isn't some sort of like all-knowing wise powerful figure that can explain all this shit to you that every time you think you're going to get something that answers those big questions it turns out that it's like nobody knows like they're all all these people are like selfish small-minded um and very self-interested and none of them have this like sage-like wisdom that is going to present you this objective understanding of the world around you so you're constantly stuck in that sort of those little like bubbles around each character of what they say and what you can see through their eyes from the like narrative perspective and that's all the information you have to construct what is this like big expansive like fascinating world that is as fascinating as any of the worlds that Tomino has made in Gundam in Turn A Gundam and stuff like Brain Powered in his non-Gundam shows he's got such an imaginative sense of the way that the world works and here it's just presented to you in this like very filtered like intense way yeah absolutely um and it's you know it's been said by other people other than us it is not just like this is a totally new reading we're coming up with that this mirrors how we all exist in the world right yeah and that is something that i think the when you watch the show and you like i say kind of put in the effort the show is asking of you you start to draw those connections because it is as you say sean it is this show with like an insane number of factions kind of like a double o or something but in double o you have a kind of eagle eye view of that conflict and you see it all on the board and that show is political in that way you know Reckoning East G is political in a much more like personal degree of how does the individual experience broad scale politics and that that stuff can just be completely fucking alien and confusing like you know as you say there is this whole other country that Ameria is in conflict with and that is like ostensibly the thing that kickstarts the show and we never see those people we never meet one of them we never know their power structure because that is not something that Belry ever goes and, and figures out or has the chance to right um, and you know, it's just something that like, this is going to date this podcast, but while this, while we've been watching G Reco and getting ready to record this is like in America, I've been thinking about this. Like if you are not super fucking up on the news, you would be so confused at what is going on with like president yeah. Biden and his agenda in Congress right now, 
which boils down to this big plan of popular things that no one really can get a handle on because they have to pass it through a special process called budget reconciliation because there's this weirdo from West Virginia who doesn't want to get rid of this thing called the filibuster, which is a fake thing the Senate accidentally invented after Aaron Burr, the guy who shot Alexander Hamilton, forgot to fix a rule when he was leaving as vice president after he shot Alexander Hamilton and blah, 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 blah. And now like we're trying to do this thing and this thing, but now there's this crazy lady from Arizona and she wants to go do winemaking over here. So that's why we're not doing this this and this and i'm thinking about all of that and like i'm pretty up on the news and i could explain to you the chain of all this stuff but if i explain to you the chain of all that stuff it would sound like i'm writing an absurdist book in the vein of like catch 22 and it wouldn't seem real and it would seem impenetrably fucking stupid and yes. then I look over at G-Reco and you get to the end of the show. And I, I was reading a lot about the end of the show last night and like different reactions and people going, this stupid war made no sense. And it ended like the ending was like totally arbitrary and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, that's life. And that's kind of what this show is about. And as you say, Sean, this is sort of a show that is resisting narrative because either like to reflect the actual movements of politics in the world, you either kind of have to do the Joseph Heller catch 22 thing. Or you kind of have to do, which also resists narrative in a lot of ways. Yeah. Or you have to do what Tomino is doing here and have structure, but not necessarily narrative. This is a very highly structured show, but its narrativization is very resistant to traditional narrative forms. Because yeah. reality is. Exactly. That it doesn't want to collapse reality into a, like an explicable in easily explicable and digestible format which is one of the major functions of of storytelling and what what stories do and g record is just it really 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 doesn't want to do that it wants to keep things mysterious and strange and kind of inexplicable in many ways and then a lot of it does come down to you realizing that like so much of it is just because people are fucking stupid um, and that's one thing I do love about this show is that most of the people in it are fucking idiots, including the guy, and especially the guy who's always calling himself a genius, Clem. It's like, they're <laughs> all morons, you know? There's a guy whose whole thing is he lives on the fucking Venus globe, and it's this, like, little space station that has this ocean that is, like, necessary for everyone to survive, and he fucking cuts a hole in the bottom of the thing and lets the ocean start draining out because he's a fucking stupid piece of shit. And so many of the characters are like that. They're so stupid and ignorant and so blinded to what they cannot see and what they don't care about like Mask and all those characters um, and that's so much the point of the show is that it, it, it is that like the world is dumb because people are dumb and like systems of power and a lot of political things end up being really stupid because people are most people are so self-interested they don't care about things that aren't going to benefit them or what they perceive is going to benefit them even if it ultimately might work against their best interests that it, you end up with shit like people defending the filibuster for no reason that can be really explicable at all it only is going to kill everybody eventually if you keep on defending this thing that exists for no good reason at all um, and that is part of, I think, the world building of G-Reco is there's this just like cruft of weird old bureaucracies of the Capitol Tower and Ameria and Toasanga and the Venus Globe and all these places that just are ruled by dumb, short-sighted people. Um, and you have to learn to like break free of a lot of that. 
And the structure of the show, the like large narrative arc of it, which I don't really think even becomes fully apparent until Tomino reenacts it with visual metaphor in the closing minutes of the show. Yeah. Is this journey towards discovery that the characters at the outset do have this desire for explication similar to the viewer. And so the first half of g is this journey up to the moon and up to Toasanga, where surely, once we figure out what this secret society up on the moon that makes the photon batteries, that is literally presented as God in the yeah. like structure and religion of the show, because this is the first Tomino Gundam, at least, that like heavily involves religion, which I think is really interesting, um, like organized religion. Um, that surely we get up there, we will talk to God, and we will get our answer, and that'll be what motivates things. And there is no God, and the people who are there are fucking idiots who know nothing either. And they also just have a big fucking fleet that they're going to come out and swing around like their big metal dick. And like, uh-oh, these people don't know anything either. And that's the point where Ida goes, okay, well, I'm taking the megafauna, and I'm going to go figure this shit out for myself. And that is like the ultimate like message and thing Tomino is asking you to do and it is also the turn where you realize he has been actualizing that for the viewer in the form of the show in the amount of effort it it requires of you because what the show becomes is this journey of these characters of this growing community to go explore and discover and try to understand the world through their own two eyes and then figure out what has to be done based on that. And they will never, they can never, and they do never arrive at a point of ultimate understanding, but they arrive at places of much fuller understandings and that allows them to do good things by the end. And then they continue that journey of discovery afterwards, which is an implicit invitation to the viewer to do the same thing. And that is ultimately to me, if you can boil down what G-Reco is about, it is about going and figuring out stuff for yourself, kind of. That the world makes no sense, mm -hmm. but it is still really important to try to figure out what sense you can make of it. Um, and that is a process that you have to you have to do in this life. Um, and it is, I think, incredibly elegant through the fucking mountain of plot the show drops on you in various forms that that's really what's going on. Yeah. In one interview I saw with Tomino, I thought was interesting. Describe, he described it as a road trip story because that is effectively what it is. It's just, as you're saying, you don't realize that it's a road trip story until basically the halfway point. It's that whole first half on Earth. It is doing the road trip stuff. You just don't realize it yet, right? Because you're starting with Bellry, who's a member of the Capital Guard, and then he goes and joins the Megafauna, which is a part of the, like, Amerian, like, loosely affiliated with Amaria, right? It's not, like, technically part of the Amerian army because of political bullshit. And then they go up to the top of Capital Tower, and then from there they go to Toasanga, and then from there they go to the Venus Globe, and then they finally return to Earth. Um, so that whole time, it has this road trip element to it of Bellry... Um, going out, meeting new people, exploring the world, and expanding his horizons. It's just, like, not clear that that is what the actual plot structure is until you're, like, almost halfway through the show. And even then, at that point, it's so kind of, like, unexpected that I think it's hard to to even realize that until, I think, the very, very ending of the show, when that is what the, how the show ends, is just, you know, Bellry goes on like a vacation to japan to go climb mount fuji like he's a tourist basically because he is um he's from south america in this world or i guess he's from the moon but then grew up in south america in this world um that yeah it, it makes you look back and reflect on the show 
very differently because it, it fundamentally is not a war story which is all the other Tomino Gundam shows. Like, Turn A Gundam is more experimental with that, but ultimately is a, like, war story about the people from the moon trying to to come and, and occupy the Earth. Um, you're so expecting it to replicate broadly what Turn A Gundam does that you're not expecting it to do, go in this very wildly different plot direction that is from a narrative tradition that is much more aimless, generally speaking, which allows Tomino to sort of explore these areas of uncertainty that he's interested in. So let's talk about it in relation to Turn A Gundam, because Turn A is the show this most resembles, if you yes. want to say there's another show this resembles, at least in the Gundam canon. Um, because it obviously picks up from similar themes and ideas of all of the stuff Tomino did in the 70s and 80s is like the Old Testament like background matter background radiation of this universe that existed it happened it's somewhere in there Amuro died thousands of years ago in this world um, and this is all humanity dealing with cycles beyond that point um, but it is very different than Turn A in a lot of ways one thing that is fun to try to figure out is I very just completely assumed this through the whole show that this is happening somewhere between like old Gundam and turn A as the final point on the timeline, but I've also seen the interpretation, and I don't know if this is an accurate translation, but possibly from Tomino himself, that this is after turn A. Is there like some, I, it doesn't really matter, I want to be clear about that, I don't really care that much, but like, is there some consensus on that? Yeah, so so this is something, this might be the most asked question to me on Twitter in the history of this podcast, where I swear, I think the first tweet I got about the question about this, I got maybe is around the time we did the Zeta Gundam podcast, um, because it is a point of like contention or debate, I guess, within the Gundam community. Uh, and I think, so what all this is, is like, does it happen before or after Turn A Gundam is I think I'm with you, Jonathan, that like the sensation of the show that if you wanted to put everything in a consistent timeline, it feels like G Reco is a lot closer to the Universal Century because they reference it constantly than Turn A Gundam where the Universal Century is just one piece of a bigger history of Gundam, including Wing and Afterward Gundam X and uh, G Gundam that that show references. I mean, you know, Gim Gainham uses the fucking Shining Finger from G Gundam, for God's sakes. Right. Um, so so this feels like if you wanted to say that Turning Gundam and, and G Reco both exist in the same timeline, that G Reco would come first. This is the thing that um, Sunrise in the show, like, I officially said at first during the show's airing there are like pamphlets at the theatrical viewing and stuff like that that said if this is the order it's like Universal Century Gundam and then it's G-Reco and then later it's Turn A Gundam and then after the airing the full airing of the show there was a kind of like post G-Reco live stream that they did um, that had Tomino on it Ogawa who's one of the main producers I think Akita Yasuda the, the mecha designer was on it as well and in there there is a question asked uh, about like Turning Gundam or something Ogawa the producer starts giving an answer that kind of says very briefly like that order and then Tomino basically says hold on wait up no no it's it's it uh, Jireko takes place I'd say about 500 years after Turning Gundam and Ogawa says but that's not what we said though <laughs> we said we said this guy we got all these like official things and this is an instance of one of the like Everybody is laughing because it is this like funny, ridiculous thing. But Tomino is adamant in saying in his head that these take place afterwards. I do want to read a quote here because I think this is one of my favorite. Just this is like the most Tomino-ass quote ever. This is something he said. I think it was at the end of that live stream kind of talking about this stuff. This is my own translation based on uh, a quote I pulled from Wikipedia. 
um, where he says basically, it's fine that the official brand has made its own timeline from its point of view. I believe everyone can make their own version of the complete Gundam history. When you do, if you would put Rekengisa in G, as I've just said, turn a Gundam, then to G Reko, then that would make me very happy. And that, that's his <laughs> official statement um, is, hey, everyone can make their own thing. But if you put G Reko after turn a Gundam, that would make me happy. I Is this just him like having fun on a live stream, realizing like, oh, I can really fuck with people? Or I wonder, like, it's very hard for me to try to figure out the reason where this comes after turn a Gundam. But it's, I guess it's fun to imagine. And I don't want to disappoint him. I don't want to make him sad. I want to make him happy with our podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, I guess my, like, his, yeah, my answer to the question of, to to be clear, because I did say on some of those tweets that people asked me this question of, do I think that G-Reco comes after or before turn A? My answer to that question is, like, I don't honestly think it matters that they exist in the same universe, because if turn A comes at, or if G-Reco comes after turn A, it doesn't reference anything specific to turn A to make that clear. Turn A being made before G-Reco obviously doesn't reference anything from G-Reco to make it clear that Turn A would come after. So to me, I don't think that you have to fit them onto some sort of linear timeline where they happen in the same history. It's that both of them happen after all the Gundam stuff that came before it. Why I think that Tomino says that G-Reco comes after Turn A is because it does in a thematic sense. So another a quote that I want to read, because I think this is just a really great quote from um, Tomino, where he talked about this question of how do you compare and like, think about Turn A Gundam and G-Reco. And he says that Turn A Gundam was a conclusion, or I could also translate the word he uses as like a summation of what Gundam is, but it didn't go to what comes next. It doesn't go to a post-Gundam. But this time, with Reco, Gisa, and G, I believe I've managed to make a post-Gundam, like, quote-unquote. Um, and that's why I think he says it comes after, to me, is is because, one, the show literally comes after Turn A Gundam. He makes it after Turn A Gundam. And because the show thematically is the next stage in, I think, what he's doing with Turn A. Like, I think they are interesting kind of like sister shows and that Turn A Gundam is about taking everything that came before it, the entire Gundam franchise, including the non-Tomino shows that came before Turn A Gundam, and all putting them in like kind of a box and analyzing it and thinking about and kind of looking back on the franchise. What is important? Like, what is what are we saying through this franchise? Like, what does Gundam mean? What do I want to say with this? And he concludes it, right? It is a summation that is about everything that came before it. And it kind of puts the lid on it in a way. Um, and then Rekengisa and G is a much more radical show, I think, in what it wants to do with Gundam. Uh, in that it is, as he says, it's trying to be a post-Gundam. It is trying to imagine like a future where Gundam, the TV show, isn't needed anymore. Where those themes and ideas aren't needed anymore. It's one of the things I think why G Reco is such a hard show to get a full handle on. Is because it's trying to fully... like conceptualize and imagine a thing that doesn't exist you know it's like that that quandary of like trying to come up with a sort of marxist style story that takes place in a world after capitalism has ended because we don't know what that looks like like you don't know what that kind of post world looks like you don't know what it looks like after the end of char's counterattack actually because that story can't have a next because you don't know what the new type utopia could potentially be. It's too alien. It's too hard to understand. And I think G. Reco is his attempt as a story to try to sort of to to evoke that feeling as best as one can of what the like post Gundam, the after Gundam story is and what it might look like. Ab okay, I love that explanation and I totally buy all of that because 
you know, for instance, if we if we had done something stupid and like organized these in a timeline, so we watched them out of chronological order and went Victory Gundam, Gino Reconquista, and then Turn A Gundam, that would be gibberish, right? Like yes. it would yeah. be so weird and like I think a dead end to review Reconquista in G without knowing Turn A. Um, yeah. It is, and so in that sense, yes, it absolutely is the thing that comes after. Even if you want to, and I agree, I'm my answer also, Sean, is that I don't particularly care about the order because I don't think that's what's interesting here. It's you know we talked about the Matrix on the show last week, and it's like the interesting question of the Matrix is not whether or not we live in a simulation. It's all the like implications of the idea and the metaphor, and I think the same thing is going on here. Um, even though that world, you know, the world here is so ridiculously rich, it's rich on its own terms for the story being told. Yeah, and I think it's just like easier for the show to tell the story it wants to tell by just using the Universal Century stuff as a shorthand rather than trying to like overly complicate it by getting yeah. all the dark history turn A stuff involved it would just be so confusing. Yeah, absolutely. Because yeah, my my initial reaction is like this feels like if you want to put it on the big timeline, this feels like kind of the first big cycle post Universal Century, um, like you know in the in the like long decline that Victory Gundam points towards. This is like you know a thousand years after that. Um, but again, it's that that literal level of like how the plot connects is not the most important thing. Yeah, but I do really love. Um, G. Reco's vision of that like post Universal Century yes, absolutely. world, absolutely. Because if you, you know, as we said, the show doesn't give you an easy access to its idea of world building. Like it just sort of throws you into the deep end, and you have to like struggle with it. But when you like put it into a more explicable format, like it is fascinating. This idea of you know the Universal Century ends ultimately in like you know the the ruination of Earth. It ends in the ruination of the space colonies. Right, the space colonies are all gone. And it's just a small group of people on Earth that are able to survive um, and they live around the base of like the only space elevator that remains, right? Which is your space umbilical cord, which is where your cordism comes from, um, is your space umbilical cord. Enjoy your psychoanalysis bullshit around the umbilical cord. Um, oh, it's very Freudian. In, in yes, the way it's that, super Freudian. Yeah. yeah. In the way that like, obviously, you know, um, anything where you put someone in like a closed off womb system that protects them which is always the metaphor of the mobile suit you know yes. Tomino has never been unaware of that he never pushes it as hard as like Hideaki Anno or something but there is some stuff here like with specifically calling it like like that that motherhood connection to space and survival is like very interesting yes and you know he named the Gundam in this one the G self like he's yeah. and, and he has the masked character just named mask like yep. he's very open to the more like psychoanalysis like symbolic reading of some of these things as they get this show um, but yeah, so you have the, the the space umbilical cord, the last space elevator, and then you have like the only people left in space that still are still alive are the people on the moon. And then I, I'm assuming that the Venus globe thing is made by the moon people later. Maybe that there's like a space station that also survives. But that like this is a world, it's kind of like that post post apocalypse kind of idea, right? That like civilization has been totally ruined and but it's so far past that that we have a totally new kind of idea of civilization coming up but it's split between the people living on the earth and the people on the moon but this connection of the umbilical cord of where the people in space uh provide these photon batteries as an idea of 
to break the cycle. Let's create this system where we can create these photon batteries at the Venus globe. And we then we take them on this like sacred ship to Toasanga on the moon. And then Toasanga takes it up to the top of the space umbilical cord. The photon batteries then come down. There's a governing body uh, around what is now called the Capitol Tower in the Capitol Guard that they then distribute these photon batteries like with no strings attached, no questions asked. Like every, it's just like basically assumed that every major country or whatever gets the amount of requisite energy it needs through these photon batteries. And then there is this strict religiousized taboo around creating new technology around people on earth going into space is like taboo unless it's something directly connected to the capital. Um, and it's a way to kind of like keep the world in stasis so that people can just fucking live um and then obviously over the course of the show you see how that scheme starts to fall apart partially through like the machinations if you want to like get very literal about the plot it's like that i uh, trying to remember all the character names of the Colonel show is going to be completely impossible um, yes. Rusita? yes the yeah. the old motherfucker who comes down from the moon he brings the some of the hermes rose of hermes blueprints which are ancient technology um, but our advanced technology to these people and then he starts distributing that secretly to people probably decades ago that then starts like people building fucking spaceships and shit um, and, and just slowly like that one little thing starts spiraling everything out of control until this like state of equilibrium that the society has been put into partially through like religious indoctrination kind of starts to collapse and we see the wars of like the eons past start once again yes and, you know, one thing I want to say about G-Reco, and some people are going to throw their phones when I hear when they hear me say this, that side of it I don't think is hard to understand. Like, as much as, like, we talk about the show being, like, fast and confusing, I think that's more in, like, the political machinations between things. I think the show is incredibly graceful about introducing the, the broad, like, state of the world. It's not something that you're going to completely grasp by the end of episode one, but, like, I would very much recommend no one listening this far into the show is just starting it but if you have a friend like this is a show you should watch the first five of like in one yes. night it is and because those first five which become movie one very directly um, I haven't watched it in full but I looked at the movie and it is basically just those first five um, those really do provide a very clear arc that gets you to the end of like story one that kind of kicks everything off and I do think all those basics of the world as it exists and Sue courtism and this connection to Toasanga and the photon batteries and all of those sort of absolute basics of the world itself Tomino's ability to put that in your brain in an, exp in an explicable way without one fucking like word of formal exposition is incredible and that's something we talked a lot about with turn a gundam as well but turn a has 50 episodes yes. so like and again turn a turn a is the show that starts and the first episode doesn't have a gundam in it you know like that's a more leisurely show and this is not leisurely this is this is a show where he gets in the gundam in episode one it's brief at the end of episode one but he's in it um this one moves like a bullet but i do think that whole world that is so compelling and interesting that's not the side of the show I necessarily find confusing, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think, like, what's more confusing is, like, the individual players and how they bounce yes. off of each other in the present. Like, the the broad history of the world is, I think, yeah, it, it becomes pretty clear um, at a certain point. I think it, it, where it becomes less clear is, like, when you see, like, actual people getting involved in and interacting with those systems, all of those ideas become super messy. Yes. Like, 
the Venus globe and like the 200 year old dude um, voiced by Takahito Koyasu because he can't not be in a Gundam. He's like, put me in a Gundam, motherfucker. I was a Gundam wing. I was a fucking Gundam seed. I was a fucking, I think he was a Gundam age. He's like, he's in every fucking Gundam after like 1995 or some shit. Um, he's like, put me in a Gundam. Even if I'm in like one scene, I want to be the 200 year old dude. That's um, living your best life, Sean. That is yeah. just, just, he knows what he wants and he he's doing it. Good for him. Yeah, it's like when you get those more specific bits and then some of that information starts to contradict itself, that's where you're playing in that like web of uncertainties of like, what the fuck? Like, why are people trying to do what they're doing? Like, how are, like, why aren't you, like, why are you so dissatisfied with the status quo of the photon batteries and shit like that? Right. All those sort of like the more psychological questions are not things that you get like a direct access to being able to easily answer any of those questions. Or that, you know, in those first five episodes, Tomino throws at you that there's a Capital Guard and a Capital Army, but they're different and they're possibly in conflict, and the main character is from the Capital Guard, but now he's with Ameria, but it's not really Ameria, it's the Megafauna. That's the kind of stuff I'm talking about yes. that gets, like, head-scratching. And, yeah, and you have an amazing scene in one of, like, the last episodes um, where you have, like, uh, it's like Wind Bellary meets his mom again, and you have, like, this, like, string of dialogue where... Tomino, I think, basically says, what's every single proper noun we've ever used in the history of the show? Get me country names, get me character names, get me faction names, get me names of capital ships and fucking mobile suits. Like, let's, can we have someone mention the Wuxia mobile suit in the background? Like, let's have every proper noun be said in a string of dialogue between, like, four characters here and then have Bellary just sigh and leave because it's like, this is horseshit. Um, yeah. like, that, like, that's the kind of thing of a place where it gets confusing is intentionally it's making like the systems and the people that exist in it and like the things that they're trying to do are so complicated and like messy and weird that you can't really understand it to the point where like the main characters literally just give up on trying to understand it because it's like it's stupid there's no point in trying to get what all these stupid old people are trying to say let's just like leave and go shoot some shit you know, and honestly, I made the comparison to Catch-22 earlier. I think that's not a bad comparison. I think there's an uh -huh. absurdism to G-Reco that is very yes. funny. And, like, I think is intentionally so. It's not the same kind of pointed satire as a Catch-22, which at times, like, moves beyond realism, you know? But, like, I, I don't think that's a bad comparison. I mean, the main, like, who is ultimately the main villain of the show, the guy who set everything in motion... Like, he's killed in the most offhanded <laughs> yes, way where he just gets, like, knocked off that fucking mountain and he's just dead and nobody comments or thinks about it. Like, yeah, there's there's some, like, yeah. absurdist Catch-22-esque humor in this show for sure. So, but I want to, okay, but back to what you were saying about, like, the state of the world and that connection to, like, the universal century and stuff. It is, it is such a cool piece of world building. And so much of this also we need to get into the aesthetics of the show because the way yeah. it is illustrated to us, literally, because this is an animated show, is just unbelievable and and beautiful and stunning and, and full of wonder but like i do love that idea of this world that has entered this uneasy balance in the ruins of like like mankind's opulence and it's something that actually feels like just very like possible right now you know uh -huh. like i can very much imagine because we're talking about like you know, Canada was the most recent country I know of that just banned the sale of gas-powered cars starting in the year 2035, right? Like, there are technologies we use today that will have to become taboo if humanity has a future, right? Like, that is yeah. not that is not a hypothetical Tomino is throwing out there. That is a very direct, like, if there will be a people alive in a thousand years, there will need to be things we do now that we do not do and is, like, religiously disallowed from us doing you know 
And like yeah. that is really interesting to imagine the future where humanity's technological opulence was also their doom, but technology is itself a neutral thing and we need technology to survive because G-Reco is, we're not at the point of turn A where we're back to an agrarian society. This is still a highly technical society that has to use technology, but it has decided to sort of shroud and wrap it in this vision of a religion that, again, is never like formally explicated. You don't have like the Pope come down and make a sermon about the origins of Sioux courtism, but you see in moments like when Bellry is in the Gundam and does the Sioux Cordo thing and like it yeah. helps him create this like big energy blast that like it is deeply ingrained in the characters. Like Bellry, it takes a while for him to be deprogrammed in the show from like he is horrified at taboo breaking and these kinds of things. And I think that vision of a world that has gained some peace and like relative stability and in some places of the world seemingly like a good like amount of of like material good um through this process is just fascinating and i think you know i think tomino has been one of the most engaged fiction creators since 1979 on how like things like climate change will impact humanity i think that's yeah. all there in mobile suit gundam even if you don't have the words for it yet in 1979 it's like when i showed that to my students like that is very clear when you look at some of those things in there um but like now we're in 2015 with g reco and it's like very explicit i think a lot of what it's playing with it's using the universal century as as its backdrop but the metaphor is not hard to get it's you know humanity has not had wars where we've dropped fucking space colonies on earth but we've done similarly destructive things to this planet oh yeah for sure I think one of the things is it's an interesting question for the show is this there's like this tension between like I think you have a natural I think people have a certain natural resistance to the idea of like this kind of big controlling authority with taboos and that kind of thing and you want to and you're like no this is bad like we should be free and not restrained by like popes and things like that um but at the same time you also know it's like especially if you've watched other Gundam shit you're like this is the most pleasant, nicest status quo yes. any Tomio Gundam has ever had. Easily, like by far, I would love to live in the like stat, like like ignoring that, like that war happens shortly after the beginning of the show. Like if that doesn't happen, it's just that status quo. Like if I could go to that world twenty years before all that shit happens, that would be the Gundam I want to go to. I never want to be in Mobile Suit Gundam or Zeta or Double Zeta. For God's sakes, keep me the fuck away from Victory Gundam. Oh my God. <laughs> um, but I would love to go visit the world of G Reco and talk about Sicordism and ride around on my like cool little two legged chicken walker robot things and shit like that. Like it seems like they're having a pretty good time. But at the same time, the, it is clear that like. It is, it is contained, it, like, the young people of that world, like Bellary and Aida, are still having their, like, w their worlds are shrunk for them in a way that they need to learn to break free of, while also then not, obviously, destroying the entire world by breaking taboos. And I think that there's an interesting tension there for a, like, long-time viewer of Gundam, of your desire to see these characters break free and learn to see beyond their own boundaries, but then also you're like, but those boundaries do keep everything a lot nicer than it used to be. It's true, and I think the show is ambivalent about it. I don't think, like, yeah. you... I think if you were to ask this question to Tomino, he would say, well, this reflects my own split mind on this, right? And it's very direct, because, like, 
the closing image of the show is Bellry running up and down Mount Fuji. And one of the things he does is he slides through the sand on Mount Fuji. That is itself an actual taboo in Japan that you don't mm -hmm. do that when you're on Mount Fuji. And Tomino, I've seen an interview with him where he talks about like doing that as a kid and feeling it being very freeing to like break that. That's a little taboo. That's not a yeah. world-shaking taboo, right? You'll get someone in in uh, Japanese authority mad at you if they see you doing it, but they'll like shake their fist and go, damn kid, right? Um, yeah. And But like those little things are reflective of the big things. And I think the show is just, I think ambivalent is the best word where there is an objective good being done by like the organized religion in this society, but it is also built in some part on lies and manipulation. And that level of control has its own downsides and there is like kind of an inevitable like if it weren't Colonel Kumpa Rusita, it would be someone else because that is just too fragile a piece to really exist long term um, because you can't really build a society where people are that in the dark about it, right? Yeah, eventually somebody's going to want to for whatever reason. Like you can't, it's that like you can't put all the spilled milk back in the bottle. Eventually, someone's going to make a fucking space colony laser or some shit. Right. Um. Um. Like like, eventually people are going to use these things for their own self interest, no matter how taboo you have made it. Um. Yeah. And you know, I think it's really interesting because this is, I would not call this show anti organized religion. But it's also not pro. It's like yeah. in this very interesting space where I think it has a vision. Like the Pope, I was kind of waiting just from like other shows I've seen, particularly like the way Japan often approaches this, for like the Pope figure to be revealed as a villain at some point in the show. And he's not. He's just trying to do the job. And I think you also get a sense that he kind of knows it's bullshit. Mm -hmm. And he just has a job to do and he's very serious about it. Um, and it's the same with like Bellary's mom who knows more than she lets on but has a needs to like literally keep the trains running, you know, because that is like humanity's survival is sort of her job on the cord. Yeah. Um, and there's all those things like that that are super interesting. It's it's very much in that turn a vein of, for the large part, this is not a show with heroes and villains. Tomino is not interested in black and white morality at all. Like yeah. to the degree he ever has been, because his characters are always complex. But like, there is no zombie family that objectively needs to be destroyed here. You know? Yeah, there's no game Ganham from Turn A Gundam, who is just like right. a kind of like a person who's so removed from the like actual costs of war that he's just in, in like a childish idiot who's just like so fascinated with the idea of war he just wants to carry it out. Like, damn the consequences. You don't have anyone that's like quite that level here. Yeah. And it's, you know, it because, and at a certain point, it's, this is, I think, such a, an underrated thing about G-Reco is it is a very, I think, warm and funny and human yeah. show. Um, again, you kind of have to learn how to watch it and how those moments are presented. But it's, I think it's suffused throughout. And there is this point where you realize you have all these different factions, you have so many different characters, but like none of them are like terrible people you don't want to watch. Like, other than maybe mm -hmm. Kumpa Rusita, like, Ma Colonel Mask or Captain Mask is a heroic figure in this show. He is not, like, he's like the heroic side of Shara's novel if he's a Shar clone without, like, all the terrible things about Shar. And his character failings near the end of the show are, like, very explicable and, like, thematized. And then he has a very redemptive, like, final scene. 
it's you know you will and and you have stuff like the the woman on the ship with a rock pie she's the one from the dorette yes and you have all the people who come from venus globe and you have kia mabeki voiced by my boy kazuya nakai and and all these people and they're just a lot of like i don't even know if i would say good or bad they're just people and there's something like very human about it and very pleasant about being in this world even with this like growing military conflict because there is this vision of just the people are people and there isn't some like you know uh zombie hitler-esque force which to be fair in like most human wars is also true like you know the the clear like moral certitude of something like world war ii is a relative outlier in human history and it obviously leaves a big impact on stories of the 20th century because it's the defining event of the 20th century but i think that's actually one way where reckon geese and g if it's imagining a gundam after gundam it is kind of breaking free of a lot of the 20th century story types that tomino is interested in which are often around like fascist power structures whether that's in the zabi family or the titans or um or a different kind of dictator in haman karn or those kinds of things or just like the abject fuckery of victory gundam which feels very present in a lot of ways too yeah yeah, I think this is an interesting point about like the the like basic sort of like goodness or like the humanness of all of the the major characters that there is this like sense that the only reason you're able to sort of look at a lot of what they do and realize okay, you're like wrong-headed or the reasons why you're doing this are actually a lot more petty than maybe this character realizes like mask um is because like, while we don't have a God's eye view, we do have a much wider POV than any of those individual characters have, yes. right? Because we do, for brief windows, visit, like, once you're past the halfway point of the show and all those factions have been introduced, you tend to visit the, all of them for every episode until you move away to, like, the Venus Globe or whatever, where, like, Clem and Mask aren't there. And then once you come back to Earth, like, every single episode, you have a couple of scenes with Clem, you have a couple of scenes with Mask, you have a couple of scenes with Rock Pie Lady and, like, the, the, the Toa Sangan people. Um, you have a couple of scenes with, like, the one dude who's, like, one of the generals from the Capitol Army. Like, you get these brief windows into all their lives and what they're doing, which is more than what any of those people get. Um, so you're able to see a little bit better that it's, like, the motivations and what's pushing Bellary and Ida and Rodaya and the rest of the people of the Megathana is a lot more sort of, like, noble feeling and sort of, like, is, is a lot better or good compared to a lot of these other characters that ultimately come across as like very petty and small-minded yeah i think that's a good way to put it so i mean is that a good transition that we should just talk about some of the characters at this point which is a thing we frequently do on these these gundam shows might be a good way to organize some thoughts yeah so so let's let's just start with our our gundam boy himself uh belry zenim played by as, as we talked about at the top of the show the relative unknown at the time mark ishii um Bellary is a, a fascinating um, Gundam boy because he is like the most pleasant and happiest of all the Gundam boys. Like you just want to, like it feels like like watching this in conjunction with watching the Build Fighter shows. It feels like Bellary could like live in that world with like all the normal people. Yeah. The way that Amro and Camille and Judo maybe kind of could. Um, but like Bellary could go and he could just like you could see him walking into the fucking Say's hobby shop and just having a chat with Say in a way that like normal Gundam boys are way too traumatized to ever be able to do. You can definitely see a lineage from Lauren Sayhack to yes. Bellary Zenim, I think, because Lauren is the other one who's kind of like that. But Lauren is then also burdened with traumas and like flaws of because like the 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 
the sort of um, conflict of Turn A Gundam becomes much more existential than I think the one yeah. in G Reco ever becomes. Um, and so, yeah, Belry is, you know, as you say, sort of the most just sort of well adjusted. But I love him. I think he's a great character. Yeah. I love that. I do, just as I said, I think that vocal performance is so special. It just doesn't sound like any other vocal performance I've heard, especially for a protagonist like this. It's just sort of like so utterly free of like mannerism or performativity. I think that's very true of a lot of what Romy Park does as Lauren also. Mm-hmm. And it's something that Tomino is very much looking for. Um, but, you know, especially with the like fucking. Tommy Gun of dialogue characters have to shoot out in this show. Um, it's really interesting, and I do think there is like you know there is this sort of general. I wouldn't say denial of interiority because I think Tomino's characters have clear interiority. We just don't always have access to it. Um, and I think the moments where that bursts out are really interesting because Bellary is still a person with deep emotions, and there are moments where sad and difficult or confusing things happen and they hit you really hard like whenever he you know sort of has to kill someone or when he's in there's a moment near the end of the show where he's in the heat of battle and it finishes and his like hands are shaking and he's like just fucked up and can't talk and I found that just a tremendously powerful moment it's the kind of thing Tomino has done before but the way it happens on this show and you know the speed at which everything happens on this show just kind of just bruises you as it goes along yeah, and and I think with Bellary, since he is our like main character, he's our Gundam boy. You you like you get so much of like what the show is doing in the sort of broader structural sense through him. Because I think one of the things the show really loves to do is present information to the audience in a way that is like kind of out of order from the conventional way you would do it. And one that sticks out to me with Bellary is like um, him killing Captain Cahill. Um, in like episode two, right? So you have this, that, which is a really defining moment for both of our main leads, him and Aida, um, where Bellary shoots down and kills this character that you have like seen in like a couple of brief scenes in episode one, two. Like you see briefly Captain Cahill, like you kind of get a sense of like, ah, that guy doesn't seem too bad. And you get a sense that like, I, like he's got some sort of relationship with this Ida girl, but you don't know much because the show has only been fucking two episodes long and they're not the main characters yet. Um, and so Bellary gets in a fight with him in the G self and then Bellary shoots and kills Captain Cahill, um, gets out and he's like, just sort of like stunned by this whole big experience. And then Ida breaks down to the tears and basically calls him a murderer and like, you know, kind of collapses to her feet because you or to her knees because you realize like they had some sort of like romantic relationship. Um, and Bellary is like totally through that whole fight was utterly ignorant of this. And so was the audience. And that kind of reveal is there like blindsides the audience. I think of the same way it kind of blindsides Bellary in a way that I feel like a show like this doesn't normally do. Normally you would present this tension early of making it very clear to the audience that Captain Cahill is like a really good guy and you don't want to see him get hurt. And it's tragic that Bellary and him have to fight and not realizing that both of them, if they could just discuss this, maybe they could resolve this peacefully and then Bellary has no choice but to kill him. That dynamic's not really present in that fight. It's it's a pretty straightforward fight. Bellary ends up killing him. Um, it's the first person that Bellary kills. And it's that point where you realize like how much the collapsed POV style of G. Reco informs the way the characters are. Because to Aida, what just happened was, like, the most important thing that has ever happened to her life. Like, is the most significant traumatic event she has experienced up to that point in her life. And up until Bellary realizes, because he has these, like, strong feelings for Aida, like, what impact it has for her. If he had never met Aida, 
he would have never given a never another thought. He, I don't think he would have ever even quite realized in like the weight of the fact that he had just killed someone would have ever weighed on that character if it was not for the fact that he was next to Ida at the time. Exactly. And I remember that very much being the moment where the show just snaps into place for me. Yeah. Is because it... This is something I... So I did just last night when I finished the show, I just had to process thoughts and I did like five pages of free writing on this show. And one of the things that came out to me is that like as challenging as the show is, the like the weirdness of its structure and all of that really does not stop it from ever being like entertaining and effective because it's a tremendously affective show. It's frequently laugh out loud funny. It's always sort of edge of your seat thrilling. It's sometimes tear jerking. And it will astonish you with these moments of humanity that are so sharp and pointed and quick they feel like they draw blood and i feel like that moment of ida breaking down when kahil dies is one of those it just pricks you and you're like stunned for a second and you feel like you're you know emotionally bleeding on that moment and then the show moves on very quickly but those moments just punch so hard and they linger you know they come faster they last shorter on screen than in other gundam shows but they linger sometimes even longer because like that kakiel stuff you know reverberates throughout the show and there's a moment near the end when they're going into the final battle when aida looks at bellary and says i forgive you for kakiel and it's just just like tear down my eye like that just pricks you so hard and that means so much to Bellary in that moment and it just feels so immediate and direct and human in the way it kind of would be if this were a real thing yeah and and one of the magic things the storytelling of g Reco and of like Tomino in general like this is just the thing he does with characters I love so much is that you don't have of course across like the show these constant scenes of Bellary, like mentally or like out loud talking about oh my god I can't believe I killed Captain Cahill like she the idea will never forgive me for this like it's not this trauma right. that visibly weighs on him in a like narrative sense throughout the show not in the way that it does in other in like a conventional show where you would have something like that be a, like a trauma that like is visible on the character at all times and is something you are constantly conscious of because it's a narrative tension that the show wants to play on Tomino doesn't give you that. Instead, it's something that you know is there. There's the tension that you know is always there after a big, like, impactful moment like that. Even though the way he starts episodes almost always in Medias Rest after, like, significant amounts of, like, plot and character stuff have presumably occurred between episodes. So there's, like, these gaps that you assume things have happened in these gaps or you get pieces of dialogue that fill in some of what happened in the gaps between episodes for you. That means you never start an episode... Uh, well, there are some like kind of two party ish episodes, but generally speaking, you don't start an episode unpacking the big traumatic thing that happened at the previous, at the end of the previous episode. Like you don't start episode three with like Bellary thinking about the Captain Callhill stuff all the time, and it's not really about that. But that tension is there the whole time, and it is subtly pushing Bellary's character in different ways. And it's clear that when occasionally it comes up, when occasionally Ida mentions it, or Bellary does something that seems odd. Usually it's because something like Captain Cahill's death or the death of the instructor, right? I think it's like episode five or six where, where Bellary ends yeah, up killing that, that character. It's um, hard. <laughs> those things aren't something that Bellary talks about all the time, but, you, but his character changes significantly after each of those events. And he typically starts doing something that is not immediately explicable to the audience. So shortly after that Captain Cahill stuff happens, like in episode three, that's when Bellary is starting to sort of like for some reason 
like trying to get into the megafauna, right? Like he's trying, he's basically like deserting the Capitol Guard and there's no like clear reason why he's doing that. There's no like sense of weight to that decision of like this, I can't believe that. He doesn't give a monologue saying I killed Captain Cahill and I owe Ida everything and maybe I have some sort of romantic attraction for her. Therefore, I shall abandon my post as the Capitol Guard and I will go join the megafauna. But secretly, I will also be getting information and spying on them to bring back the Capitol Guard. There are these decisions that he makes as a character like that one that you don't see at all the decision-making process. You have no idea in the moment why he's he like decides to just like stay in the G-Self cockpit and let Ida pilot it. And he just like goes along without resisting at all as she goes back to the megafauna with the G-Self. He just sort of goes along with it. And it's up to you, the like audience, to start put, like filling in the blanks. And then usually later in like an episode or two, there'll be some additional piece of information, other conversations, bringing up Captain Kyle or something like that, that makes it clear that his guilt is one of the reasons why he has gone along with this plan in the first place. Yes, absolutely. I mean, this reminds me of, because as you say, this is taken to a certain extreme in G-Reco, but it's not new for Tomino. This yeah. is something he's always done. Um, and I, you know, when I showed the, the Gundam trilogy to my students here at the University of Iowa, one of the things they would complain about is that, like, oh, this thing happened and then no one reacted to it. And the big one was, like, someone said, like, well, I did find the stuff with, um, with uh, oh, my God, how am I afraid? Lala. Uh, Lala and Amaro yeah. in movie three, like, really interesting. But then, like, Amaro and Char, like, they're sad. Char has his tear, but then they don't, like, talk about it a bunch. And I'm like, yeah, because this isn't, like, excessively obvious Hollywood cinema where they're going to, like, spoon feed you every single idea and just to absolutely ensure that you get every single piece of it. Like, I absolutely think what happens with Amuro and Lala rests on the shoulders of those characters until we close the movie out, you know? Yes. It's, to me, very obvious that it's doing that. But I, it's not like a mystery to me why my students, having not seen something like that before, would have that reaction. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's. I think it's a thing of where it's both... The the Tomino's like writing has a certain amount of faith in the audience for them to like understand that like this event is very impactful and it will inform what the characters are doing. Um, and so when a character does something that seems to be unexplained, I think like the hope on the part of the writing is like that you don't just say, ah, oh, this doesn't make any sense and then throw your hands up and just forget about it. It's that you think back and connect the dots and it's like, oh yeah, well, like two episodes ago, he did kill his instructor. And maybe that's why he's like, Bellry is now so insistent on not murdering anybody. And he's like being excessively nonviolent when he's piloting the G cell or like with the Lala thing, it's in the original Gundam. It's that same concept of that. It's not, you know, Amro doesn't spend the next three episodes of the show, like closed up in his room and weeping. He can't because the show would be over by the time that, that yes. happens because <laughs> the end of Gundam comes very hard and very fast. But, like, it is something that weighs clearly on his character. He starts behaving more, like, sort of aloof and erratic around the rest of the crew. And then when he, at the very end of the show, that's, like, one of the last things he says is, is it, isn't this okay, Lala? Like, is it okay that I don't die here, basically? Like, I've got a place that I can go home to. Is there any feeling more happy than this? Like... It's that sense of when you get that piece where the show now rewards you for having followed it on its journey with this character. That you have been picking up those pieces and you have faith in the storytelling as much as the storytelling has faith in you. That all of this is meaningful and all of this connects and all of this matters. That then you get that little extra bit like um, 
Ida forgiving Belry for Captain Cahill, and because you as a viewer have been like carrying that torch of that this is important, this has been affecting the characters, they're just not telling that to you because human beings don't just go around discussing their huge traumas with people all the time. We tend to, because they're traumatic, we tend to kind of keep it locked up in us because it hurts to talk about it. Um, when that faith is paid off, it's like, I think one of the most satisfying experiences that I can get like in any of these kinds of shows. Like it's just so, yes. it's so rich a storytelling uh, style that Tomino has here. Well, and this is what I mean when I say the show asks you to work for it. And all Tomino shows ask you to work a little more than like equivalent shows. And it's because, and I do think that degree of trust in the viewer, I, I think is often the thing that separates like great cinematic and televisual auteurs from normal ones is that degree of like, come along with me, please. You know, yeah. um, you know, David Bordwell, the film scholar um, has this great quote that I use all the time when he's, he's one of the people who really helps theorize like the forms of classical Hollywood cinema. And he calls it an excessively obvious cinema. The idea being that like, these are like the codes of Hollywood cinema develop in such a way that they do not want ambiguity on the part of the viewer. They want them to be there, like not half that the movie will do the thinking for you kind of. Mm -hmm. And like, that's a problem that has become worse with time, not better, frankly, in a lot of like, mainstream Hollywood stuff you go to see in the theater and it is such a problem that has like infected film criticism in the age of the internet and obviously the one I think of most is those motherfuckers at CinemaSin who should be uh -huh. eliminated in a fucking asteroid strike but they're just fucking stupid at a certain point it's like there but there is this like degree of wanting the thing to like fucking handhold you through it's why netflix shows that should be like a two-hour movie have to be 13 hours long so they can just, just do every step five times over for you and like people are so used to that and i have had to drum that out of my students a little bit this semester of like when they ask their question about like in macross the ship had only been going for five months and this thing and this and i'm like and i like this i'm like stop this i don't care <laughs> that's not what we're talking about that's not a plot hole it's something that doesn't matter like there's a yeah. difference you know and and i do think like it's I, I i respect the absolute fucking hell out of tomino's not only am i not going to go along with that i'm going to push harder and harder and harder in the opposite direction you know yeah absolutely um and it's and it is it, it's it's the the thing that like g record takes to the biggest extreme right yeah. like it's the it's the thing that is so fun about this show is that like it, it almost feels like it's like watching a Tomino show on like the like insane difficulty in a video game. You know, yes. it's like it's just like, OK, so I've managed to handle it like normal difficulty, which is Mobile Suit Gundam. And it's like, OK, it's like Zeta Gundam is a little bit harder. Tournament Gundam is like that's like a little bit tricky. It's like, and then, you know, I watch fucking brain power. That's like, OK, that's hard mode. Then it's like now watch Wrecking Geese in G. This is this is insane. Like, you know, this is the one where like if you do it on like a Wolfenstein, the fucking dude's head is like covered in blood or whatever. It's just like intense, like brain melt difficulty. Um, that's basically <laughs> what G Greco is like. Yeah. One hit and you die. Uh, yes, one line exactly. you miss and you're lost. No. It's it's true and it's it's great. But we're getting a little far afield here. This show very much follows the tradition of Tomino's work since Victory Gundam, I would say, of having a deuteragonist structure uh -huh. where you have sort of your main boy, but you also have a girl who is equal in importance, actually superior in importance to the plot. Like it, that is true yeah. of Victory Gundam with Shakti, 
Very true of Turn A Gundam with, what's the name of the main character? Deanna. Deanna. And then very true here with Ida. All three of those women are more important to like the world of that show than the boy who's ostensibly our POV. And it is honestly kind of a two-hander. Like the boy is the protagonist, but that deuteragonist is very close to them. And so we do the same thing here with Ida, um, who, and they even like, I think make this connection pretty explicit with to turn A of like her also being a princess sort of. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously that goes in a very different direction over the course of this show than it does in turn A. Um, but, you know, Ida you have here, and, and like most of Tomino's post Mobile Suit Gundam 1979 works, there are frankly more female characters of substance in this show than men. Like there's a just absolute bevy of them. Yeah, absolutely. And and Ida is like with like Turn A Gundam in particular, where Deanna is like the most fascinating part of that show. I think like Ida is the most fascinating character. Um because because she is the one who is like most like actively engaging with the politics around her, right? Like Bellary is curious about the world, but it's never really I don't think other than he his sort of the things that have been dogmatically programmed into him. Um, early on, like the Capital Guard and the Taboo and stuff like that, that he slowly kind of works his way out of over the course of the show. He's not really directly engaging much in the, like, the politicking. And Ida, because of her background and her, like, importance in the world, she does, at multiple points in the show, like, try to engage with the, like, politics of what's occurring until slowly, I think, it becomes clear to her that it's, like, it's kind of nonsense. Like, let's go to this Venus Globe thing and see it for ourselves. But that that struggle for her, I think, is is really fascinating of trying to or wanting to or having to live up to this legacy of being this important political figure who's a representative of the nation that she's from that's in the midst of a war who and she has like very strong beliefs about that and then having to learn how to navigate this very complicated world that doesn't make sense and then ultimately decide to like kind of abandon all of those things because they don't make sense they don't work they're only going to kind of hurt me in the end and she kind of divests herself of a lot of her relationship to Ameria by the end of that main conflict and sort of becomes a free agent that story arc I find hugely satisfying absolutely she's a she's a great character she's a fantastic character design I love that like she really is put on equal footing to Bellary she has her own mobile suit that is fucking awesome especially at the end when it gets the like Char's counterattack style fin wings on the back that are Mm -hmm. so cool um you know she is also out there doing fighting and leading and she's the one who ends the war like in the background it's sort of like she's off doing things and then we see the very end of it with her giving the speech to the Amerian troops but while Bellary is sort of having his fight with Captain Mask Ida goes and ends the war like there's a lot of that and there is a god there's a line at the end of this show where you see it's it's Ida and Noreto and uh Raraya and some of the other like female characters all together and Bellary is in his suit and so I kind of sees them over there and he goes he just goes man women are amazing and I feel like that is one of the like thesis statements of Domino's career at a certain point because he is like from Zeta Gundam on so interested in like women who navigate spaces of power and what they are and aren't able to do and like it's something that you wouldn't necessarily know how much of an interest that will be just from Gundam 79 but it is like such a piece of the Tomino tapestry to me yeah, I think especially Turn A and G Reco like yes. take that from like a thing that's like 
in the background of Zeta in Double Zeta, um, and it becomes like a thing that's like one of the major elements. Like it's one of the main things the show is interested in exploring in in this internet. Yeah, I I might argue it's one of the main things ter- uh, Zeta is interested in, but I do see like Double Zeta and and Victory maybe a little less so. But yeah, it's it's such a strong part of these shows, and I think the relationship between Ida and Bellary is like low key one of the most touching things in any Gundam show because they start out as literal enemies and then as something even worse because he's the guy who killed her like lover and like most important person in the world to her and that is like this tension between them and by the end they are not just literal siblings but like that's what he calls her he only refers to her as Nason by the end of the show you know like and they have an actual relationship like that I think it's really compelling yeah it's a it's a fascinating relationship of the like you know taking i think what is like sort of like metaphorically what their journey their character journey is anyways of them becoming family um by the end and then making it literal with this big kind of like classic space opera star wars e twist of like no you actually you're both like secretly siblings um although also i think like the show does leave this weird amount of space for you to like kind of doubt that at a certain point like i think it's it's there's that weird line that her dad has of like, why is he calling her him his, her little brother? Like that's not what the like adoption agency or whatever said. And, and it's either like, oh, the adoption agency was lying to this dad, or maybe everyone's lying to Bellary and Ida. And like they're not literally brothers and sisters. Like maybe they did both grow up on the moon, but maybe they're not blood related. And it's like it doesn't matter. Right. Um, like what matters is that like they have this powerful bond and relationship with each other and that both of them together right one person who's was indoctrinated by the capital one person who's more indoctrinated by the Amerian perspective that they both come together and like deprogram each other and and help each other to build like an original like powerful sort of like life philosophy that pushes the boundaries that they were both born into I think it's super interesting to look at G-Reco as kind of the culmination of this thematic interest that has absolutely consumed Gundam into the 2000s. And I think Turn A is the one that starts it, as Turn A is the first Gundam show that fully turns the like war occupation of the shows on its head and says, this show is going to be about how we stop a war, not about how we win a war. Yeah. And like all the Gundam shows before that are very different. Like Gundam 79... The, the Earth Sphere is not perfect, but they have to win because the zombies are really bad. Zeta, we have to defeat the Titans. Double Zeta. Haman Karn should probably just rule the universe, but it's probably better if we don't have a dictator. Victory Gundam. We just need to stop the fucking bleeding. You know, all of yeah. that, right? And uh-huh. then, like, you get to Turn A, and Turn A is the one that, like, very radically rejects that. And the, sh- the point of that show is not having the war, right? And that is yeah. what Deanna, like kind of gives her existence for is this idea of almost in like a fucking like Joan of Arc fashion of we're going to stop this right and then every Gundam show past that is about that right like that is what Seed Mm -hmm. is about that is ostensibly Seed Destiny fucks it all up but that is Seed Destiny is more of Seed yeah Seed Destiny doesn't know what the fuck it is no Gundam Age is very much about that and puts that under the microscope and the entire ideas of like hatred that fuel wars. Um, Double O is literally premised on the idea of Celestial Being being this terrorist organization that comes out and forces people to stop fighting through fighting and is asking how tenable that is and then goes off in a bunch of other directions. Um, and then G-Reco, then the build series or something else, obviously. But with the mainline Gundam stuff, g 
Marco is kind of it's really interesting to watch in the overall timeline because it's returning to these ideas that I think turn a sparks and then all of the Gundam series past that take up that torch and are very unified in that thematic concern um, and G. Reco really follows up on that in having these characters who go on this journey of they are fighting and they are doing things but ultimately what they're trying to do is understand um, and that is kind of the ultimate point of all of this at a certain point I think yeah and and with Ida I love her I love all the scenes early on in the show where she and Bellary and like Naredo and like all these like young people they get into this like sort of like meaningless political argument that goes nowhere that they repeat multiple times of yes. of Bellary and and Naredo and everyone being like no it's the taboo like you can't this like we're like you keep, you're like violating the taboo blah 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 and then I goes but you're just you know monopolizing technology and and everyone needs to be free and that's and then like the argument goes nowhere and it just kind of stops. And then the episode goes on, and then two episodes later, they'll have the same argument until eventually it's just this like clear this like well neither of these sides like actually really believe or know anything about what they're saying, and it, like there's a moment that like really reminded me of being like a teacher working with teenagers is that that is a lot of what political arguments between teenagers is like is like kind of all you're doing is just sort of like badly restating a political opinion you heard your parents once say, and then you're just sort of saying it over and over and over at each other. But neither of you know actually like any of like the political history or like have like really kind of formulated your own opinions and beliefs and thinking around some sort of like political praxis or whatever it is that you're like arguing about. Um, and that's what those scenes reminded me of. And I like the way that like they slowly kind of start pushing away from me. And Aida like eventually kind of like admits to herself is like, well, why am I even like like what do I even know about this like what kind of freedom am I even trying to fight for and I particularly think there's you know a pointed element to the Ameria you know not uh -huh. America but Ameria side of it being very much their whole conflict is we're going to go to the big like authority here the Citra Authority and we're going to uh, take it over and but we're not doing it to like be evil people we're doing it so we can make everybody feel, feel free and we're going to go over here and they don't say like and we're going to go make like spread democracy but it's basically them trying to spread democracy in this very you know uh the cold war american kind of way uh that i like that i like slowly starts to think it's like well like like it's nice to just say freedom 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 over and over again but what the fuck am i actually talking about and would Amaria actually be interested in actually freeing anybody or do they just want to also monopolize the power of the capital tower which is of course what that president clearly wants to do yeah and man I, I i i love that connection to like how teenagers also talk about politics but what i also love is that the process of these characters coming into their own politics and their own sort of visions of how the world should work is also like messy you know uh -huh. like that i don't think by the end of the show any of our main cast can like perfectly define what they're doing in the world i don't think they could write a political manifesto of what they want it is very much like feeling driven and like what tomino values in them is this ability as young people to be open and let the world impact them and then react to it and change and like synthesize information and move with that and it's never perfect it's never like a this is not like you know Gundam Seed where once Kira gets the suit that allows him to never kill anyone he's able to do that other than the shark clone at the end of the show right yeah like it is still like up to the very end 
you know, Bellary is having to do things he is uncomfortable with, but in this like rough movement towards this better tomorrow, they kind of see. And I think that is such an interesting, like down to earth version of this theme that Gundam is very fascinated with in this period. And it is actually a big difference from turn A because turn A comes from, there is a figure in Diana who like is a political genius and very smart and has a very clear vision of like kind of how she wants to be in this world and Lauren is the one sort of reacting to that but Lauren also has a pretty like solid from the beginning like non-violent streak that he keeps up for the whole thing and I like the sort of just we're dealing with like younger characters less experienced characters and there's just a messiness to it that's very human yeah it definitely um reminds me a bit of Zeta like it's a bit yeah. of like Camille and Zeta I think in in Belri and in Ida and like that messy like they're sort of pushing up against these like big ideas and big structures and big politics they don't fully understand um in this like pursuit to need to make something that is new right and that's very much the G-Reco thing of like you have to break out of the sort of boxes that you've been put into in order to try to envision something new for the world because that's the only way that things can get better yeah so let's hit some of these other characters in the main cast maybe a little quicker. We could. There are so many fucking characters in Chiraco. Yes. This could be a seven-hour podcast just talking about all the kind of major-voiced characters. But our main ship, we obviously have. Uh, let's finish off with kind of the main group of kids. We have Noretto and we have Roraya. So Noretto, Noretto Nug is her last name, right? Yes. Uh-huh. Fucking. We need to at some point here bring up a list of character names and just do a dramatic reading because this show has the best character names. It is the most. It is just the most Tomino in every facet of its production. So Noretto, correct me if I'm wrong here, but she comes in the fiction of the show from like the cheerleader unit that is with yes. the Capitol Guard. Uh-huh. I, I want to talk about Noretto specifically in a second, but I want to talk about that piece of world building because 110%, I don't know if this was intentional, but it read to me as a like very pointed critique of all the Gundam Tomino has not been involved with that generally non-Tomino Gundam sometimes it has really good female characters but they are often confined to very specific roles in Uh non-Tomino Gundam you generally do not have important women pilots you generally do not have like important women deuteragonists at most you will get a captain and at most you will get something like double double O where that captain is a really great pivotal figure but generally like the women are very literally cheerleaders in like non-Tomino uh-huh. Gundam and I like that he starts this show with just literally there is a cheerleader unit for the people in the mobile suits I I don't know how else to read that but kind of as a little bit of meta commentary sure yeah like I didn't I didn't I didn't necessarily that reading did not occur to me so much as like I just saw this like this is like a fun ridiculous goofy thing because there is yeah. the whole there is a like recurring um, imagery of dance that is yes, like a important thing that. throughout all of Wrecking Geese and G. That's sort of part of like the 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 cheerleader thing as well with Naredo. But yes, I mean I do agree with your analysis of that that whether or not that is Tomino. Like I don't I I, there, I think the reason why I don't necessarily think that's an intentional thing on Tomino, though I don't think you can't read it that way, is I don't think Tomino has watched any of those shows, so <laughs> um, I don't think he would know to be able to make the commentary. But it is an accurate assessment. Um, and and but yeah, but Noredo, you know, she's she's like um, broadly our Fraubo, right? She's the like childhood friend of the main character who gets like swept up in the ad- adventures with him. Um, but I like her little sort of subplot she has throughout the show of where she realizes that she is kind of just getting dragged along, um, and then she decides 
well, fuck this shit. Like, I'm going to go, like, I'm going to, like, she's talking to the nurse or whoever it is. And she's like, I'm going to become a nurse or something. And the nurse is like, well, here, why don't you, like, we'll, like, have you start studying political science and this stuff. Um, and so she starts sort of, like, starting on her own path and, like, educating herself and, and deciding to go become something more productive. Um, and, and there's, like, just a little tiny thread throughout with her as she starts to kind of grow and change that I really appreciated. Absolutely. I like Noretto a lot. I think she is roughly that sort of Fraubo equivalent, but fleshed out quite a bit more. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, she gets to be pretty active, and she is in the mobile suit with Raraya at the end. Um, and she's just a, a very pleasant character throughout the whole thing. And she is the one always with our Haro equivalent for G-Reco, Nobel, who is a Haro Bay-type robot. Nobel is the best Haro since Victory Gundam. I will put that yeah. flag down right now. Haro Bay fucking rules. Yeah, there's some there's some great A comedy with with Harobe throughout the show. It's just a it's an excellent use of the little mascot robot. It's so I mean I love that it's an actual redesign. Like you realize like oh they've never like they've given Haro other colors, but they don't usually do much with Haro. And I like that this is an actual like very different Haro because it can like open up and it can it can fucking. There's a joke near the end where where she's like Harobe weigh me, and he's like. I don't want to weigh you. You'll yell at me. And she's like, do it. And it like extends into like a little scale that she gets on. And then she kicks it. And they just have this, it's so funny, this like very adversarial relationship where Norido is very mean to Harobe. And Harobe has a, has a sense of like just defeatism to the world. It's very yeah, there's, good. There's a certain like C-3PO-ness to yes. Harobe that is very nice. Yeah. I, uh, I, I very appreciate doing something new with Haro because it's, it's great. And yeah. One of yes. the best Haros. But anyway, oh, absolutely. Roraya is a fascinating character because for the first half of the show, she's like mentally stunted. I don't know how exactly to say it, but she is like stuck in her head and can only say a few words. And she's obsessed with a fish named Chuchumi. And it is definitely one of the most eccentric things in the show. Yeah, I I love Raya. She's like yes. probably my favorite character in the show. Raya Monday named Monday because that was the day that she fell to Earth, which is an amazing reason to explain it. That also apparently the real reason why her last name is Monday is because when Tomino, this is an anecdote not told by Tomino himself, but someone else in the production said it's like the reason why is we were coming up with character names, and he was like Raya Raya, and then he looked over and he saw a calendar and he said Raya Monday, and that is the best. Like you know, that's how he comes up with. With the crazy names he looks around and it's like oh uh, Raya, okay monday yeah that's it it's like well why ryan monday ah she fell on a monday it's like okay there is this moment that reads to me as incredibly self-aware in the first episode when um ida comes in they catch her in the g self and she comes into the ship and she gives her fake name not ida surrogan but ida whatever name she ida ray hunton which turns out to be her real name but she yes. doesn't know that and the captain or the the training officer guy has this line where he says you just stole two names and stuck them together and i'm like that's tomino's whole process he yes. takes two things and sticks them together and it's wonderful and the names in this show are a goddamn poetry Absolutely, and, and Raya Monday is probably the best one. Um, I, yeah, so Raya and her whole thing I think is fascinating because it is, if, we, if you want to go back to like the psychoanalysis stuff that is definitely here in the show, like I think she is a big part of this, like making literal through a character a lot of what the show is trying to express through its like sort of like broad and abstract narrative um, structure and stuff is 
Raya is through like presumably like oxygen deprivation or something to that effect. She's reduced to reduced to an infantile like state, and then over the course of the first half of the show, slowly like kind of returns back to like the amount of like sort of like mental engagement and like the mental age of someone who's like sixteen or so. Um, and that process is you know if you want to like it, it makes me think of the psychoanalysis stuff of like Lacan and in, in the mirror stage and things like that as she is like unable to sort of like understand exactly what's happening to like abstract and distinguish things around her in the world other than the G self which is the only thing she responds to very directly which is the self um, because she that's the only thing she knows because she is reduced to an infantile type state and the way that she responds to the world, I feel like, is constantly kind of keying like the viewer into part of the way you're supposed to be reading what the show is doing on a broad narrative scale of like trying to defamiliarize you, the audience, from your expectations in a narrative. Getting to that idea of like G. Reco being a story that is not a story, or it's like an anti-narrative story where narratives define things and break down possibility spaces and sort of collapse reality into explicable phenomena. When you are an infant, you can't do that yet, right? It's why we need yeah. stories is because you can't collapse reality down. And so if you don't have, you know, the word for a tree, you might, you can't sort of categorize all trees in the world as like, ah, it's just a tree. And instead you see everything as like a unique, like thing unto itself, which it is in reality. But we categorize things and collapse things down because it makes our reality comprehensible. And so Raya starting in that state and then slowly as the other characters start to sort of break out of their own shells, then Raya becomes like more sort of like sapient or something, I guess you'd say, um, and able to engage with them. It feels like this very appropriate movement for the character that brings you the viewer along with her into the state of like being able to sort of make sense of the world without relying on the kind of collapsed reality or the story that other people are giving you but instead you create it for yourself not using the pope or using the marian president or whatever like framework you've been given but creating your own framework for understanding the world you're in absolutely i honestly if we're going to make the twin peaks the return reference again it's like dougie yes. jones in mm -hmm. Twin Peaks The Return with Kyle MacLachlan, who yeah. sticks around in that form way longer than anyone predicted, which is the same with Raya Monday, because she does not like come into herself until past the halfway point of the show when they're up on Toa Sanga and she sees like the old house. Um, it's a very similar technique, I think, to what is being done there. Yeah. Yeah. And then her relationship to Chichimi is the most adorable, wonderful yes. thing in the entire show. I love Chichimi so much. And there's one shot that's one of my favorite little beats in the show um, that is a good example of, we haven't really talked about this yet, but it's the classic Tomino thing of like, somehow every single episode is able to do a million different things at once. And like his ability to find key, like five seconds for a little moment to allow the show to breathe and for you to like get a little idea that one of the episodes early on when they're out into space, probably like episode seven or eight or so, she's looking back at Earth and she lifts Chuchimi up and the the spherical like aquarium thing that Chuchimi is inside of is because of the perspective bigger than the earth. And she says, Chuchimi, Chuchimi, it's inside of you. Um, and there's something about that little moment of just like playing with the perspective feels like it's that way of like, 
you know, tipping your hat to the viewer being like, like, this is what we're playing with always. We're always playing with perspective of the ways that the things that are closest to us seem bigger than the things that are farther away from us, right? The same way that all the characters are treating the problems immediately around them as the most important things in the world, losing sight of the fact that the world is right there and it's probably more important than, Clem, your, like, desires for being a genius or whatever shit that motivates you and mask and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and and th that that was just like a little beat with Raya that always really stood out to me. I think Tomino chose the name Chuchumi because though that set of syllables in that order coming out of that voice actress's mouth, it's Fukui Yukari is the voice. Yeah, like I imagine he just experimented with a bunch of syllables until he enrounced, uh, he arrived at the absolute most like perfect, cute, funny. Chuchumi, like it's the way she says it. No one can imitate it. It's so great. I love it because that's like her main line of dialogue for like ten episodes in a yeah. row is saying Chuchumi, and it's it's wonderful and perfect. And uh, yeah, Raya rocks. Yeah, and and you know, and and Chuchumi is you know goldfish, so it makes like little like kissing noise, like movements yes. with the mouth as it breathes. And Chu is like a Japanese onomatopoeia for like a kissing sound. Oh, I forgot. Okay, oh. that's that's yeah. so perfect. All right. Um, Adjacent to the megafauna, we have our boy Klim Nick, Tensai Klim Nick, and Mick Jack, his uh, his girlfriend assistant. Oh, I love partner. Mick Jack so much! Like, what a just a great Amerian name, Mick Jack. Fucking love it, and I love Klim Nick. Klim Nick is yeah. the funniest thing on this show. He is so so great. Um, you know, he's so obviously they subtitle it always as Genius Klim Nick. But it uses one of my favorite Japanese words, which is tensai, which if you know yeah. nothing about Japanese etymology, the sai, so it's two kanji, and the sai in tensai on its own does mean genius, and the ten in tensai is heaven. And so genius is like, tensai is a word with like just it, incredibly egocentric meanings when uh -huh. you put it in that way, because it's literally like heaven sent genius, you know? And like, yeah. I love that he always gives himself that it's tensai, and it is so funny always especially when he comes into conflict with captain mask there is an episode where they are all working together against the dorette fleet in like the middle of the show and they meet on the field together and klim explains this great genius plan he has and captain mask is just playing it up going yes this is why you're a genius i can't believe it and then like barara is like but Captain Mask has a terrible plan. He's like, I know, he's going to go get himself killed and then we get to do our thing. And he's just playing it up and Klim Nick has no idea because he is such an egomaniac. I fucking love Klim Nick. God, yeah, that's probably Klim Nick's best moment because it is... So this character was memed at the time of, like, there's, like, a, a moment in the show. I mean, this happens a million times in the show where he goes, ha, 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 I'm a genius. And then in the immediate next shot, it's like, wait, what? Um, and yes. that, that, like, screen cap got memed because he constantly is saying he's a genius and then he fucks up somehow. Yeah, that, that like, fake surrender at the midpoint of the show is probably the highlight of his fucking military career. Where he's like, I have a great idea. We'll just wave a white flag and we'll just go up to their fleet and they'll think that we're surrendering and then we'll like just open fire and try to kill them all I um, mean like take down their capital ship um, and as they're going with the white flag it cuts to the like the old general dude who's in the ship is just like <laughs> well if they didn't send any like a signal or like something ahead of time to tell this is what we're doing well let's just shoot him down who cares <laughs> and then it's just the plan completely falls apart and it's hilarious he's, he's a great character and I mean, the show, its penultimate scene is Klim, like, angrily killing his father with the Crescent Moon ship. Yep. His father, who, by the way, is named Zucchini Nikini, because Klim's actual last name is Nikini, but he goes by Klim Nick. 
There's a man in this show named Zucchini, and I just... I want to give Tomino a kiss for that. It's so great. Um, obviously, I also think that show has, like, symbolic import, and we'll talk about... Or that scene has symbolic import. We'll talk about it when we discuss the end of the show. But, yeah. Klimnik is great. Mick Jack. I was very afraid at multiple points they were going to kill Mick Jack, but I'm very glad they didn't. In part because I don't think Klim as a character is, like, quite... Um, the character you want to have to process grief that way. Um, mm. And also Mick Jack is just so wonderful. I like that they get to go on more adventures and that Klim will apparently never be disabused of the notion that he is a genius. And I think Mick Jack knows he isn't, but she likes him anyway. Yes, and, and she, and you know, she she helps like kind of pump up his ego, um, which I like. Yes. They're, they're just a very funny pair. Wonderful, wonderful pair. Um, all right, who do we should we talk about Captain Mask and the characters around him, primarily yes. Barara and Manny Ambassador? Yes. Um, I think Captain Mask is one of, if not the best shark clones in the mm-hmm. history of Gundam. Um, and, and, and in the, the good tradition of Tomino, like, it's not really like a very shark esque character in most ways. Not at all, other than the mask. Although, yeah. I do think what's interesting is that his arc is he kind of convinces himself he sort of is by the end. Like, yes. what he has with Belry in the final episodes is very akin to Shar and Amuro, but it is a much, much, much less motivated rivalry where, like, I'll just give an example. So when I make the logos for Weekly Suit Gundam um, that are like the pod, that go up on the podcast feed for each one, and I make a special one for every new show where I use a Gunpla and I have always the Gundam on the right and then I have whatever the Gundam's main rival is on the left... I got to the end of this show and couldn't quite figure out who I was going to use for the rival suit because there is no rival for most of this show. Yeah. That is not a formulation this show uses. And I, but his final opponent is, is Captain Mask, who sort of insists on being his rival, even though they do not have anything approaching a rivalry up until the end of the show. And normally you would look at that and say that's very messy storytelling, but I think it's a very, very intentional thing Tomino is doing with this character. Yeah. And one of the things that makes him so interesting is that his his most char esque thing he does is in the finale, and it has nothing to do with the mask. Yeah, that that it is a thing where he's a character that to me like he feels very lost, right? And that's why he needs like he needs this like powerful motivation at the end to like just keep on pushing him forward because like with basically all the major characters still perpetuating the war at that point, they have no good reason to because the war is not happening for any good reason. Um, like it's it's the most pointless, meaningless war in the history of the Gundam franchise. Um, so he needs this sort of something, and so he grafts onto Belri and like this idea of Belri is super privileged, which he, I guess he is privileged compared to probably what Lewin Lee slash Mask was like. Although you don't see really that much evidence. Like I get the sense that Lewin Lee probably actually like relatively speaking has lived a fair life of privilege as well, because he's also like pretty high up, was high up in the Capitol Guard also. Um, but he just sort of latches onto that and is using it to keep on pushing him forward. I think the thing about Mask that is interesting to me is is that he's the character that we get this sort of weird background element of this sort of Kuntala racial discrimination thing that exists on the edges of the show, but is not something that is like ever, as with most stuff in G-Reco, it's ever really explained. And I think it's, it, it is like this for a good reason of Mask is this character who he we see that people treat the Kuntalas like poorly, they discriminate against them in some ways. This is true of like Noredo, who is also a Kuntala. Um, but Mask takes that and he like 
uses this as this very sort of like twisted motivation where he joins the organization that is like directly discriminating him in order to like try to prove a point about like the Kuntala and that we're great and like Kuntala pride and all of this. And he's trying to gain some form of like recognition or acknowledgement by being like so superior in this capacity while working for this organization that is like made up of people that are discriminating against him. And he keeps on pushing that and pushing that and pushing that. And it gets him nothing ever um, until the end where it's like, you realize it's just, you have been working for the people that you should be, have been fighting against the entire time. And he's just not, he never breaks outside of that mentality. Like he is the person who buys into in many ways, the Kintala like idea and that like sort of like that social construct of his of, of like that race and it being inferior and stuff like that, he buys into it more than any other character in the show. He is the one who's like so motivated by it and is sort of almost perpetuating that instead of like Naredo, who leaves this like racist society and says, fuck this shit, and finds like a group of people that nobody brings it up. Nobody ever mentions her being a Kintala past like episode five because she's found a bunch of friends who aren't racist fuckheads. And Mask is, like, yeah. deciding to, it like, integrate himself deeper and deeper into the society that directly hates him. He's a great character. I, yeah. I, I love Captain Mask throughout this whole thing. Because also, he's a very noble and good character. He's one of those yeah. that, like, you do not ever feel, like, evil emanating off of him. There is none of, like, the, you know, Shara's novel shit-eating grin while he does bad things, right? You know, he is generally a good person who cares about people. He has good relationships with people. Um, he is an absolute fucking delight in the end theme animation because all yes. of his shots there, especially his his leg kick in the big dance lineup is the best of anyone in the whole show. I love Captain Mask dancing in the end theme. That is not part of the canon of the show, but it is wonderful all the same. Um, yeah, and he is also voiced by Takuya Sato, who we've talked a lot about lately because he's Meijin Kawaguchi. Yes. In Build Fighters, a connection I was trying to make for all 26 episodes and didn't until I looked it up now. But, like, I very much see how you would go from Meijin Kawaguchi, perfect masked voice guy, to just Captain Mask. It's it's very good. Yeah. And I love that he was playing those characters simultaneously. Because yeah. There's overlap between Build Fighters Try, in which he's a, a recurring character, and this show. 100% overlap. Those shows aired just the exact same set of weeks from March... Yep. From October to March of 14 to 15, which is crazy to me. I mean, I know not the same teams working on them, but it's still pretty wild. Um, anyway, yeah. So, great character. You have Barada Peor as his, like... I will say this is the one thing in Jireko that feels a little tired to me, is that yeah. Tomino builds this love triangle where I like the pieces of it. Particularly, I think the stuff between Manny and Captain Mask is really beautiful and well done and there is a scene they have when she gets back to Captain Mask with the big G rock or whatever it's called and she jumps out and they have their this is one of Tomino's clearest authorial signatures is two bodies entwined floating in space and kissing um, yeah. I think of it as the F-91 image but it's there from original Gundam the first time you ever see it is actually with um, uh, Hamburger Boy um, um, what's his name Slugger Law um, oh yes, and Slugger Law and Mirai are the first to whoever do the float, lovers floating in space spinning thing. But anyway, um, I think that scene is beautiful and I love it. I don't love that at the end of the show, Barada's um, motivations very much get ruled down to she's jealous of Manny, and then Maddie's motivations get nailed down to am I doing enough for Captain Mask? I that feels a little tired in a show that 
for the most part feels just so fucking new yeah i agree and i do think it, it's like barada ends up kind of getting shoved a little bit into the like lala hoon like four-esque like tragic cyber new type ish lady i mean she's not exactly a cyber new type but a lot of the imagery of like the big like spaceship thing with like shooting out all the lasers and then having to be put down um because she's kind of gone crazy it's is very much like another one of those and it, it, it especially after turn a gundam managed to not like do redo that trope at all that is like probably one of my only like major things i i don't love about g-reco or i think my major criticisms is i'm with you that i think like that that aspect uh isn't the best i think turn a turns it on its head because if anyone is that character it's like corin nander and uh-huh. it's just so different from any version of it we've seen before and they do such fun things with it yeah it's because i like all those characters individually and i really like manny and i like the idea of manny is one of those characters you see in the first episode and is ostensibly part of the friend group but then gets kind of caught kind of just following her heart because it's unclear what else you're going to follow in this fucking nutty conflict you know yeah um and i think all of that is fun also her name is manny ambassador and that's great yes yes yeah. before we move on to like other topics what are other like major characters you want to touch on in our little character segment here this isn't a major character but it is one of my favorite characters i love steer so much Steer's the so the pilot of the megafauna um who is uh the woman who plays steer has never like um voice acted in anything else there's a couple of people on the main ship that that is true of um it's michelle yumiko Payne um played steer so so it's it's a woman who's like part american part japanese um and i love that that's like the character there, there's some sort of weird something going on there with the fact that she speaks mostly in english which is like an actually english it's not like a like japanese native speakers like approximation of what the english sounds like or their best attempt it's like she's prop she speaks proper english and her japanese is like english language accent inflected in a realistic way which is extremely rare to see because it's legitimate right um usually in anime you have like this very over-the-top ridiculous like accent to indicate someone's not a native japanese speaker that is not does not sound like someone who's not a native speaker actually trying to speak japanese so i i really love that aspect of the character i don't know why there's like that she's like the one person who sounds like she's an american on the american ship and nobody else sounds like that it introduces this like is everyone else just speak native japanese in this world and she's the only one who speaks english that is not usually questions you ever have to think about because everyone just speaks japanese and gundam but uh putting aside like those are not actually things that matter um that character and like her whole attitude and every line of dialogue she has um is just the fucking best i love that there's just this english-speaking lady at the helm of this fucking ship is is rad and the best thing is they will because as you say she just speaks english it's not broken english in any way but some of the lines she gets are because Tomino is not a native English speaker. Yeah, she and doesn't so, really speak full sentences. She speaks like 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 phrase, military phrases basically. But sometimes she kind of does. There's one that I filmed because I rewound and watched it like seven times in a row because it made me laugh. It's near the end of the show where they turn to her and she just out of the blue yells, "G self has perfect backpack." Yes. And it's, there's several lines like that where it's ostensibly a sentence that is like missing prepositions and things or really a clear purpose but like she says it but she says it with perfect english which makes it more surreal yes steer is a 
absolute goddamn delight of a character and i love her yeah there's that one what is probably my favorite action sequence in the whole show which is the one where the megafauna has to escape and like get into the middle of the crescent ship and all that like that yeah that is amazing. and she has to like basically what is the equivalent of like an iphone that is like taped to the front of the window yes. because it's being covered by the balloon and she's like leaning over uh and having to like stare through this iphone like camera feed to steer the ship it's like she's just fucking cool it's the most a like minor background crew member has really stood out to me in a gundam show since like the classics like the original gundam and zeta gundam and stuff yeah it's the tomino touch uh i also like on their little crew ringo uh ringo lon giamonata what a fucking name because he is one of the toasangans who just winds up their hostage but just becomes their friend and i just kind of love that he's yeah which is also just like another like part of the arc of this show is that people wind up together by pure happenstance and then kind of roll with it um but i like him in the backgrounds of scenes i think he's a, i like all the toasangan character designs are really fun um and i honestly this character is only in three episodes but i think leaves a giant impact is kia mabeki um, who is, at least from my ear, by far the most notable voice actor in the show, it's Kazuya Nakai. Yeah, um, it's either him or um, Bellary's mom is voiced by Atsuko Tanaka, who right. probably her biggest role is is uh, the major in Ghost in the Shell. Okay, yeah, so that's definitely a big star too. Um, but yeah, I definitely noticed Kazuya Nakai immediately because he's Zoro on One Piece and he's in a million other things. This is his second major role in Gundam, I think, after After War X. Yes. Um, and I, it's weird to call it a major role because it's three episodes, but it is major. Like, I do think he is in the best single episode of G-Reco, which to me is the one where the ocean is falling out of the colony. That is my favorite episode of G-Reco. I, as you say, he is, you described earlier all the idiots on the show, and he is an idiot for cutting the seafloor open, but he is also like an incredibly noble and thoughtful person who gives his life to stop that mistake and has this idea for the Reconquista that to him is not like this evil thing of conquest it is this like interesting almost journey of discovery and i think one of the most touching moments in the finale comes from one of his um it's either chikara no chikara dies it's kun i think who yeah. is on earth and like looks at his photo again and says like i wish you could have seen that there were people like this on earth of, of course the people that she's showing that picture to are the people that he was fighting that he ended up cutting the ocean floor up the bottom of in the first well, place but that's the point of the scene. Yes, 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 I wish is. you could have seen this and not yeah. like because now because she is the one Bellry gets through to. Like that is yeah. the crucial thing of that finale is she is the person and she's not even important and that's why it's so important. She's the one Bellry gets through to and in that moment, what I find so touching is without saying it, what she's saying is, "I loved you, Kia, and you were wrong, and I wish you could have seen the way I'm seeing how wrong we were." I love moments like that. And I think that yeah. character just leaves such an impact and getting someone like Kazuya Nakai in there to just dominate every scene he's in ensures that you will go with it. Yeah. I, I definitely think I, I really love that character. And I do think there's, there's, there's like a, there's like a wonderful, like irony to the character of like, of like the way of, of what, of everything he does sort of like comes back against him. Um, even though he has that nobility, there's just something about the scene where he's so lost in himself and in this fight that is a pointless fight against the G-Self. Like, it's going to get him nothing. The most he gets is the G-Self itself, which he doesn't really need. He couldn't even use it. I don't think he realizes that. He couldn't even use it if he got it. And he ends up ripping a hole in the, in the ocean floor, which then ultimately leads to him having to make this noble sacrifice, 
Which is which is like which is a noble sacrifice to a certain point, except for he's fixing a fuck up that he did. Um, so it's only noble to his to so much of an extent. And there's something about that element of the character that is it's very G Reco to me. Of yeah. of this like there's this web of of elements around that character that he sort of creates his own demise through his own short sightedness. That is a thing that other people need to avoid and learn to grow beyond. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm sure other characters will come up in the process of talking about other topics, but is there anyone else you want to hit here before I kind of have an idea of where I want to move next? Uh, I think we've hit all, all the, the major people. Yeah. So I think I want to transition into one of the most important things with g Reco and something we don't often give, I think, enough time to because there's never enough time for everything. I want to talk about, like, formally what this show is doing. Because I think, and, and formally I mean, you know, that's like the term in film studies for, like, literally the form of the thing the aesthetics the construction how it is put together in like cinematic language is to me the thing that like above all else is what makes g reco sort of a masterpiece is like and you can look at this on multiple levels like let's start with the simplest one sean is this the best animated gundam show i feel like it's this or turn a it's this or turn a like i feel like it's like i I think it's like a little bit hard to compare to Turn A and G Reco just because Turn A is a full year long show. So you could yeah. definitely find sections of Turn A that are worse and worse animated than the, the worst parts of G Reco. Um, but I would say they're probably like mostly just because of again like that time difference means that there's different production concerns. I would probably put them about on the same level because I think this is something that is true of all of Tomino's. Like I would say particularly like Victory Gundam on. Like everything I've seen from Tomino from that period, including Brain Powered, including the like the opening bits of Overman King Gainer I've watched. Like he has just I think all that experience in animation means that there is just an efficiency and like a perfect sense of where to be limited in your animation and where to like kind of splurge on your animation that is just so absolutely precise. I think all of those shows from that period just like look impossibly good animated to me in some places that like i just don't know how the fuck they do it sometimes well it's that combined with he never ever ever uses like the style of the day his yeah. shows look so timeless um i think the big difference with turn a is turn a is the last cell animated gundam show um and it's cell animated and completely captured on 35 millimeter film which is part of why it looks so fucking gorgeous especially in its modern blu-ray presentation yeah part of my heart probably does lie with turn a because i also just love kind of the world masterpiece theater aesthetic of it and all of that um but i mean g reco is utterly stunning i do think there's something interesting talking about affinity with hayao miyazaki that and this is a little different because tomino is not like the lead artist on his own works but the art style that this comes up with to be timeless is very similar to the art style Miyazaki has developed at this point to look timeless in the digital era, where starting with Ponyo and then both Miyazaki's follow-up work, The Wind Rises, but also all of Ghibli's stuff in that period that isn't Kaguya-hime, has these very round faces, like, like no harsh angles anymore, lots of roundness, very heavy lines to like use digital tools to really make it look even more handcrafted than before in a certain sense. Um, and these are not the only two shows that do that. We see like the, the Tatsunagamine style at Toei that he's used on Dragon Ball and mm -hmm. One Piece very much emphasize this as well. I think there's very clearly a, a feeling that like digital anime got too sort of like 
cold and not handcraft feeling enough and so a lot of animators have moved to a style like this that feels intensely handcrafted but um it's absolutely gorgeous and i think the overall the the character designs which i know that's the the eureka seven guy you said uh, who people love and it yeah. is a stunning art style the mobile suit designs are so singular and like because of the animation style my understanding is people don't really like the gunpla that come out of G-Reco, and that makes sense to me because I don't know how you build gunpla out of any of these. Yes. They're, they're yeah. too animated. Um, but it is just, like, it is such a, it is a show so full of color and life and detail. It is a stunning achievement. Yeah, it's one of my favorite anime in terms of the visual style of any digital animation. Like, it's it's up there for me with stuff like, and it kind of reminds me of these, of part four of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, Diamond is Unbreakable, I think is, like, another just utterly gorgeous show that looks unlike any other modern TV anime. Um, Land of the Lustrous, which is 3D CG animated, um, so it's a bit different in that sense, but it goes for a similar um like effect as what g-reco does and then also azokin or take your hands off the azokin is another like modern one that just like it is is trying to sort of create its own visual style within the digital anime landscape where i think most digital animation so much of the style got flattened out um and and like you know this which is not to say that digital animation doesn't look good like it still can look really good but it stylistically and aesthetically tends to be very sort of flat and a bit uninteresting because everything looks so the same um and because you're losing that handcrafted quality that animation used to have that becomes more and more true and i think yeah g reco very much feels like its aesthetic is meant to like deliberately try to find a way to utilize like digital tools as effectively as possible like the effects work in g reco is some of those gorgeous effects work i've seen in any anime um it's just really stunning and the kind of thing you could only do digitally but also not losing a handcrafted style so you there's a very intentional choice to have heavy lines that are very sketchy so like like the there's a sense of like like pencil strokes uh, that do like the outline definition of the characters that's really important um, and I think that's one of the things that also gives them this sense of like liveliness and warmth to their animated style and then also I just adore the color palette in G-Reco it's so heavily like pastel influenced of like a lot of very bright low saturation colors like you can see it best on the G-Self um, where it is this very like pastel Gundam um, which has a really just light bright warm feel to it that's so different than any other Gundam because Gundam as a franchise is typically very heavy um in terms of its subject matter and its overall like emotional landscape and so you tend to get much sort of like harsher strong heavy coloring um and here it's just this this bright warm open happy um aesthetic that fits so much with like the music and the tone of the show that like is so about like big like high like eccentric action beats and big high eccentric action sequences and a lot lower on like the the tense drama of the action sequences and it's also about like little character moments and little goofy things with Hado Bay and that kind of stuff and Raya Monday and that sort of like warm happy family quality of the show the whole aesthetic is built to sort of reinforce that um so it is just it's just I think one of the most gorgeous looking shows you can see made in the 2010s and, you know, especially given what you said earlier, Sean, about how there are a lot of people in the anime industry who were very vocal about how much they loved this show. 
I have to imagine this was a giant influence on a lot of what came later because there's uh-huh. just so much anime that looks like this now. Yes. Like, yeah, pre- all those examples I said are things that came out after G Reco that I believe were yeah. influenced by G Reco's aesthetic. And I mean, if you, and I mean, up to like the most mainstream stuff because like this is kind of Toei's house style right now. Like, the it's the second half of Dragon Ball Super, the universe survival arc, is when Tatsuya Nagamine takes over Super and brings in, it's called, like, the line filter, which is that thing that makes, like, that kind of pencil stroke quality with the softer lines and makes it look a little more hand-drawn. And then, like, the colors become a little bolder and richer and there's a lot more shading and a lot more of, like, taking away that flattened quality and making it feel more lived in. And now that is the style of One Piece that is what they're doing on the Dragon Quest show and that is like you know Toei is the most fucking anime factory thing in Japan right Uh now is doing it so that kind of and you can see the affinity there is very obvious yeah and 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 it's because the other part of the aesthetics also there is the like the design work both for the characters in the mecha but also the world itself in particular all the like early stuff in the capital tower there's such a care and attention to detail put into what that like society and culture looks like right there's this very mesoamerican influence thing because it's it's you know it's set near like where jaburo is right it's because uh, i had this revelation of like i don't know why i never realized this but something about the show and realized like why all the space stuff is always like around like the upper part of South America is because that's where the fucking equator is. Right. And that's, it's easiest to get the space around the equator. It's why like NASA does space like ship launches in fucking Florida. This is the closest place in America to the equator. And it's the easier to get to space from the equator for physics reasons. Um, so like everything is situated around this like sort of Mesoamerican influence culture, like, and you know, Tomino really likes that, right? He uses it in a lot of stuff, like it's big in Turne as well. But there's something about all the like street art that's in the background as Bellary's like going around um, his sort of hometown of the Capitol Tower. And you can see there's like a paint bucket and you can see like, it's like a half done mural with like half done paint stri- like strokes sort of like tapering off at the edge and things like that. One of my favorite scenes in the show is in an early episode where I think it's the episode where Bellary ends up at the end of it at the megafauna. And early on, he like wakes up in the morning. Noredo is like stayed over at his house where his mom is. And he wakes up before everybody else. It's a quiet morning. Um, and he tries to leave quietly and Noredo then gets up and like springs on the back of his thing. And there's just this like lived in quality to his, like the apartment he lives in with his mom and the street he goes out onto that. That is part of the thing that makes the like aesthetics of the show so tantalizing and is true of all the locations you visit all the ships of toasanga of the the venus sphere all these places are using an art style that's beautiful but it's rendering a really like real lived in warm human aesthetic of people that have been here and done things and like left a mark on the backgrounds that the show takes place on is so important and the kind of thing that i feel like a lot of anime ends up like overlooking yes i think if i were to make the argument and, and I'm still unsettled on this, so I don't know if I would, but if I were to make the argument that G-Reco is the best animated Gundam show, not turn A, but this, it would be the degree of attention to detail in the animation. Mm-hmm. And that is like, that to me is the Tomino like oversaw every fucking second of this show, because like the most obvious one that you will notice as a longtime Gundam fan is the sheer obsessiveness with which they approach the contact link thing in this show. Uh-huh. Which we've explained before, that's the idea that is there from original Gundam, that 
in when Minovsky particles are dispersed, you cannot have radio transmissions, so people are not able to communicate through mobile suits. But if the mobile suits touch and make a physical link, then they can talk. And Tomino does this through all sorts of means. You know, you'll have the suits reach out and physically make contact with their bodies, or they'll have the little things they shoot out and make contact through like a line or something. Yeah, and you also get it when like not even in mobile suits, but two people in, in vacuum suits. and yeah. they put their helmets against each other and they're able to communicate that way, which is physically accurate because the sound is translating through the medium of the air, then through the physical molecules of the glass, through the air to the other person. Yes. So it's like that would physically work. And g Reco is obsessive about it. Mm -hmm. Like it is, I don't think I caught one moment where they did it wrong. Like it is, and it is every episode, multiple times an episode, constantly they are paying attention to like I noticed one like in it's one of the last episodes where you have a lot of the characters in formation and Bellry says something and you just see all the suits like reach out and touch each other in formation so it goes along the line but they're constantly like shooting lines uh, between mobile suits you have a lot of scenes Captain Mask does this all the time with with Barada or Manny or his other subordinates where he puts his helmet against theirs and it's just it's everywhere in the show and it is often in because this show moves like a fucking bullet. It is in really dense scenes with lots of dialogue and lots of things going on. And we are talking sometimes frames, not even full seconds, where they have to like communicate that the contact link is happening and they never miss an opportunity. That level of attention to detail is like jaw dropping, but it's only like one sliver of the overall attention to detail that I think is there in this show. Like one of the ones that just blows me away all the time in this show is watching people in the cockpit in G Reco. There is so much more going on than in any other Gundam. There's like some of the obvious ones, like the airbags that are in the mobile suits uh -huh. now, which I think is an amazing attention to detail thing. But also the way, and this is one of the ways he characterizes Bellry very subtly through animation, is that he's always playing with his suit when he's in the in the mm -hmm. in the cockpit and like unzipping it and like kind of airing himself out. You always have characters like taking off their helmet. You have them like the sound design in G Reco is I think. Easily the best sound design in any Gundam show. There's yeah. so much oral detail going on with it, like all the like clinks and clanks in the cockpit and the way you know, like there's there was one I saw the other. It's like in one of the final episodes because I was watching it last night, where I think it's Bellary in the cockpit and something happens and it's him taking off the helmet and playing with his suit and grabbing like a one of the water bottles to drink and doing like five things with the control panel and it's this little dialogue scene where like. Even in past Tomino shows, what that would have been is the character just sitting there talking, and instead the character is sitting there talking doing seven other things, because that's just how detail-oriented the show is. And I think when people talk about this show being like dense and overwhelming, part of it is that there is no frame of this show in which one thing is being communicated. It is always like seven different things going on and the level of detail that is packed in and packed in and compacted upon itself is so impossibly high. It is literally hard to take it all in with your eyes. Yeah, and it's a really important facet of the show that I think like it, it, it that level of like physical detail and groundedness in the world, in the reality um, is critical for the show in a way that like it doesn't it's not critical for both shows because you need to have that sort of confidence in the like physical reality that the show exists in for it to be able to play with the constructed realities that people see 
which is, you know, they're sort of like the boxes or these sort of like defined structures that are given to them, the capital tower ideology, whatever it happens to be, is that those things are all artificial constructed interpretations of reality that characters have either chosen to adopt or been forced to adopt that is layered on top of what is like a physical reality that nobody can escape. Um, which are those like physical things that ground people in the world and like that touch between mobile suits or that touch between people. Um, one other of those little physical details I love um, that's the kind of thing that gets ignored a lot is characters' hair. So characters are like, Bellary's always having to put his hair up into a bony tail, ponytail. Same thing with Ida because their hair is really long and they're putting them in helmets. Um, and, and they're always like kind of thinking about that physical sense of comfort or discomfort a character might be in based on what they're wearing what their situation is um and things like that in like the temperature of the cockpit they're in the fact that there's a fucking toilet seat right that the that the the cockpit seat that they sit in can be lifted up and that's also where you go to the bathroom um that's like a riddle really critical physical thing that grounds the reality in a way that most shows would ignore and most shows can reasonably ignore this one if you don't have that grounding i don't think the audience is able to accept and go along with you for the big like sort of mysterious sort of meandering and hard to grasp exploration of the sort of filtered and constructed realities that the characters have to move through on the road trip that the show is Yes, and this is totally what I mean when I say the f show is like formally daring and groundbreaking and just utterly jaw-dropping because the general like language of G-Reco, if you can like, and I'm thinking of this partially because I'm teaching a class on film theory, so I'm inundated with this right now, but I'm thinking of this in an almost like semiotic film theory yes. fashion, which is like mm -hmm. the language of cinema. And not the language of like people speaking, but like how does cinema as a medium itself communicate? And what G-Reco is doing is it is like this kind of audiovisual overload where it is kind of wall-to-wall -wall dialogue. There's a lot of talking in, in G-Reco and it is pretty constant. And if you miss lines, you will be a little lost. You have to like see everything. But while people are talking, you have a lot of movement on screen. You have a lot of details in every image. All the stuff we've been talking about but then there's also a tremendous amount of movement between shots. And it's something this show does. I think this show has some of the best storyboarding I have ever mm -hmm. seen in any piece of anime. And you can say that without seeing the physical storyboards the same way you can say a movie has great editing without seeing the editing timeline. It's there in the final product. And storyboarding is obviously the process of <clears throat> the basic framing of the shots, the relations between them, the timing, and sort of how they're going to graphically match one another. And that level of artsmanship on G-Reco is out of this world. There is something this show does that I've, I don't think I can point to another anime that I've seen do it this well, which is continuum of movement between shots in G-Reco mm -hmm. is positively symphonic. Like the closest I can come to a, like a real comparison is some like early, not early, but, but silent film epics like Abelgans's Napoleon, like it's actually Abelgans would be a very good comparison because he is a one of those silent film directors who very much believed in a musical analogy to film and like film as having visual rhythm. And it's something that G. Reco does, most obviously in action scenes, but in really everything, is this continuum of movement from shot to shot to shot where there will be a movement that continues. And in an action scene, this will be very obvious where you will have like the Gundam like going down you will cut to Bellary in the cockpit 
looking down somewhere to see something to cut to another movement that like takes that up and then we'll move it across another shot and often like between locations we'll just keep this movement going and so there is something very musical about the way the show is edited and moves and you wouldn't really say edited for anime you would say storyboarded because it's mm -hmm. pre-edited and the way it moves through through episodes you basically start with a movement in shot one of an episode and don't fully resolve it until the end and so you are just in this constant sense of visual momentum that is carrying you through while you have this overload of detail and dialogue and it is moving at this very high clip and there are parts especially in the big action set pieces where it feels a little out of body to be watching the show because the momentum is so heavy and embodied it feels like you're moving physically along with the show and really the the only kinds of things i can point to that are analogous to this is like some silent film experiments like abel gans's napoleon that try somewhat similar things because in that case they didn't have sound to rely on um and g-rec was doing that with a very active soundtrack and that is part of what makes it like it feels a little bit like you're relearning how to watch anime or TV while you're watching it because its language and mode of formal communication is so different than anything else. Yeah, and it, and it feels like, it, along with like, you know, this feeling of the show being this like Tomino turned to 11 concept, it's the kind of thing that Tomino has like moments in a lot of the stuff he makes that feels like that. I think the one I yes. always think of is the the fight between Amuro Shar and Lala Soon, the Cosmic Glow episode of Mobazu Gundam, has that quality to the storyboarding and like the construction of the shots. Like every movement is connected to every other movement and every like sort of cut is super deliberate um and very like it has this incredibly raw feeling to me and how it connects to the sound design and the music. Um they're just these like you just like give yourself up to the experience of watching it because it just is so poetic and powerful and intense to the construction of the shots and the dialogue and the music and everything. Um, and G Reku is like that, but it's kind of, as you say, almost the entire episodes feel like they are built through that same sort of like designed principle of, of storyboarding and sound design and dialogue writing. Um, and it extends that for so much. And that's also like, particularly true because so much of G-Reco is action-focused that it's able to sustain that because most episodes are at least about 50% action sequences. Like, it's a super action-heavy show. And so it's it lends itself to having that way more intense um, style to it. And the other thing that I think really lends it here is that Tomino in G-Reco has, like, mastered the art of the pilot cut-ins of the like a pilot's face sort of like opens up in a frame within the larger frame of the shot right so you get like a little triangle or something open up in the corner and you see Bellary's face and he shouts something and then maybe sometimes like that little slice expands out to consume the entire frame and now you're just in the cockpit or you cut to another shot with another like frame of a character within the frame with their cockpit and stuff like that and that sense of just like immediacy and characterization of people in their dialogue with while they're in those mobile suits it's so expertly done that it, it draws your eye it allows like shifts of motion to happen super elegantly in like incredibly quick cuts and incredibly quick moments and you never lose sight of what's happening where the momentum is going and which characters you're meant to be focusing on because of how precise is use of that those uh 
pilot cut-ins, which are a like, you know, directorial and stylistic trope of the genre, I've never seen them deployed so effectively as they are in G Reco. No, I completely agree. And I really like your point about that this is part of Tomino's style from day one on Mobile Suit Gundam is that when you get cooking with action stuff, he often goes for these very tightly boarded, like embodied momentum style. But there is also usually some kind of obvious shift between like that and sort of more normative scenes outside of the cockpit. And Shireko really tries to break down that barrier so that you're right. Like this show, I was saying this last night on Twitter, like this show is honestly the most rigorously structured on an episodic level of Mm -hmm. any Gundam since the original, other than like build fighters. And like part of that is that you go out in the G self every time and have an action scene, but it feels so natural. It doesn't feel like the show is too overloaded with action because the line linguistically in the show between an action scene and a non-action scene is practically non-existent. They Mm -hmm. use very similar language. And so that momentum, that just never ending momentum is there no matter what, which also means that when that action comes in, it is just so fluid. I don't think there's any fucking contest that G-Reco has the best action in any yeah. Gundam show, right? Like, yeah, it's the the runner-up for me would be Victory Gundam. Um, me too, yeah. Uh, and and this eclipses that. Like, if Victory Gundam was 26 episodes and it, like, focused all of its action um, to that level, I think it would maybe be, like, of a similar thing as what G-Reco's doing. But Victory Gundam does, because it's 50 episodes long, has a lot of kind of, like, ah, this is fine action scenes. Whereas G-Reco... Like, basically every single action scene is just, like, an all-timer. It's pretty fucking incredible how good every single action set piece is. There's no minor ones, because the overall, like, purpose and language of the project doesn't allow there to be. Like, there, I don't know what a, like, minor, off, like, eh, that wasn't very good. I don't know how that would be possible with what Shireko is doing, because it kind of demands that everything be pitched at a certain formal level and so there's definitely ones that are even more impressive than others i think there's stuff in the last three or four episodes particularly the one called space kaleidoscope which is Mm -hmm. where you have uh barada pure out in the yggdrasil which is also i I assume that's just the word in japanese for world tree because they also use that word in the translation of dragon quest that's that's not japanese that's norse no no no. i know yggdrasil isn't but they're not literally saying the word Yggdrasil in, in the dialogue. It's in the translation, yeah, they aren't are. they? Mm-hmm. They are? Yeah, it's, oh, yeah, okay. it's, yeah the thing is called Yggdrasil. So they're saying oh, it in a Japanese okay. way, but it's still... Okay. It's, it never is mind. Yggdrasil. Okay, they're talking very fast on this show. So yes. um, I must have missed that. I'm sorry. Um, I thought it was just the translation. Anyway, um, but she's in that suit, which is that big like pyramid-ass thing. And it has these... Because there is just... The, this is like hinted at from like the first episode that there's something different with beam technology in this world than in other Gundam shows because the G self itself has this amazing beam saber that is by far the coolest beam saber in Uh Gundam. And I think honestly is what Tomino probably always wanted the beam saber to be, which isn't just a fucking lightsaber, but is like this concentrated energy coming out of the mobile suit. Like, one way you can track Tomina's relationship to Gundam is how cool the beam sabers get. Because it's like, because it's like when you get to Char's counterattack, which is the first movie, that's the first time you get that sense of, like, the beam saber is this, like, really grounded, like, raw fucking weapon, right? Then, like, yeah. the fact that, like, they it, like, turns off or extends whenever the characters need to do, use it, and it, like, bends like fire. Like, the way they animate it in Char's counterattack is so gorgeous. And then when you get to turn a Gundam, the fucking beam saber shit, that is so good. And the way, like, 
it like causes metal to bubble when it cuts through yes. it and it's just like so intense that yeah and then it like even now with G-Reco it's like even more fucking crazy um, you get even more just like have the beam saber spin so fast it makes a shield which he's been doing since Victory Gundam and it's fucking awesome every time fucking awesome every time and the beam stuff becomes like one of the main like aesthetic pieces of the mobile suits and functional pieces and so the Yggdrasil is this one that is like extending out this like basically like giant tendricle, tendrils of a tree out into space. I, uh, that is an out of body episode to watch. Uh-huh. Like the action choreography, what it's doing with all the beam stuff, the like symphony of color and light on screen. I I've never seen anything like it. And it, like G Reco does like five of those in the last couple episodes. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Um. It's yeah. The action is is like incredible to me and and part of it is that like every action scene feels so distinct too like that's part of like what makes it so good and better than something like victory gundam where victory gundam has some of the best action scenes in any tv show but it also has a bunch of action scenes that are just like a normal action scene because it's got 50 fucking episodes you can't do it every single time for the over the course of an entire year um and and so G Reco finds a way to make every action scene feel very distinct to me, which is what keeps the quality so high. And my favorite action scene is definitely the one where the megafauna um, has to park in the middle of the the crescent ship, because that's the one where you have like every single faction starts coming in and fighting each other, and um, all while the you have like this setup early on of the megafauna has to move from. Um, the the Kashiba Mikoshi, the ship that takes the um, the the uh, photon batteries or whatever, it is, has to go from there to the crescent ship, and in between there is this period of time where it's vulnerable. So it like very clearly sets these boundaries of what's happening, and then as soon as it sets off, instead of them being attacked by the Moon People, they're attacked by Captain Mask. So they have to fight Captain Mask, and then Clem comes in and is fighting Captain Mask, and then the Moon People come in, all while the Megafauna is trying to go, and then they use the balloon dummies to hide themselves but that means that steer can't see so steer has to look through the iphone thing while belry is going to distract them and now everyone's going after the g self including clem who's like everyone's yelling at at belry for like give me the g self i need it for this i need it for that and like clem's like come on like fight this war with me and belry's like this is my gundam get away from me and has to fight everybody else and fight them off and then the g self like barely squeaks by and it manages to park itself in the crescent ship so much so that Rariah and Ida are on like either wing wing of the megafauna having to push off against the edge of the crescent ship as it's like narrowly finding its way in and then it matches velocity with the crescent ship and parks it while a character says wait we're inside the crescent ship and everyone's like what do you mean what do you mean we're inside and then it zooms out and you see them parked perfectly in the middle of it I like fucking literally started clapping because it's such an incredibly orchestrated action scene that takes place over the course of that entire episode of the show concluding with the the like end of the that sequence of them in the middle of the crescent ship and it's just like and and that's my personal favorite but most of the action scenes of the show are about that level of quality um and there are several that are at that level of quality which i agree with you the space kaleidoscope one being one of them this show is just fucking amazing as as a pure like action like spectacle vehicle um, even ignoring all the other shit the show does. And I mean, it's doing it from the word go. Like, yes. there is this scene in... When I realized, like, I was already sure this show had the best action was as soon as episode five, which is the one where... That's the end of the first movie, so it's actually where the first movie gets its name from, Go Core Fighter. 
Um, right. That's the one where he's fighting Captain Mask for the first time and has this whole like action sequence where he goes out in the core fighter and then has to redock with the G self to finish the fight. That one is unbelievable and it has this image in it that stands in for so much of how just G Reco sees the world in such fascinating ways where part of his like trick he plays on it's he's fighting Captain Mask and Klim is in there and in the in the core fighter Bellry flies over them and drops one of the water balls and so both of these mobile suits are in midair enveloped in water and drowning in midair and that idea I found so like I rewound it like five times I was like I can't believe what I'm looking at and that they pulled this off in animation it's like such a crazy idea and then Tomino knows it's that good because my favorite little stretch of the show it's primarily episode 21 the weight of the sea but the one before it episode 20 space inside a frame is where this starts and that is where Kia Mabeki fights Bellry. And at the end of episode 20, you get where he accident well, accidentally, but he's he's working at it. He yeah. cuts the floor of the sea open, and water starts pouring out. And you have, you know, Kia's mobile suit being like drowned in it, and uh Bellry trying to get his bearings in the G self until he's like literally swimming and flying up through water in space, up through the ocean, and comes out on like the sea near a beach on what looks like earth it is one of the most incredible visual ideas i've ever seen committed to film and then the full episode after that 21 the weight of the sea which is about trying to close that hole and all the action around it and like this is when they're on venus globe now um that's my favorite episode of g reco i think it is like the visual ideas of the show at their absolute strongest um, it's where Kia Mabeki dies, and I think there's a lot of really great stuff around that. That you know, the the image that like closes that episode of the two big the mobile suit and the mobile armor that are used to plug that hole, and because they're covered in water out in space, they're frozen and covered in yeah. ice, is like just an indelible image. It reminds me of the one of the other indelible images of Gundam, which is um, around like episode 12 or whatever of Victory Gundam, where you have one of the mobile suits propping up the the space like jumper thing that yeah, the, the, ramp. the rail yeah the ramp that is going to bring them up into space and you have the mobile suit that one of the women in there died because literally they got fucking incinerated by a, a lights uh, by a beam sword and then but the mobile suit is still there propping up the bridge um, it reminds me of that but it's with this sea in space like what a cool fucking idea. Yeah, and, and I I love that comparison because I'm with you that that's one of like that was one of the action scenes that like I remember distinctly because a lot of G Reco after five years after having watched it it was hard to remember a lot of specifics because the show is very slippery but that image of like the water pouring out and him coming up was what I remembered very distinctly. Um, but one thing I like about that scene in Victory Gundam and a lot of G Reco is I love this thing that Tomino likes of having these fights take place. Um, near things that are like really precious and really important that yeah. everyone agrees should not be destroyed. This thing is important. This space ramp that is that allows us access into space is important. The capital tower is important. Like these ships that ferry the photon batteries are important. The bottom of the Venus globe, which houses the sea, that like he said, you know, the the Kia character says, like if this empties out, millions of people will die because this is like they're what they're out in space. That you can't go get more fucking water. You're like way out in space at that uh, at the Venus globe. Um, and, and there are these really important, like, 
either cultural institutions or like physical engineering things that like are human achievements that make the world a better place that we should be protecting. And everybody involved in the fight agrees with that, but they fight anyways. And they, and they always like these important things always end up being destroyed or harmed in some way because of the short sightedness of the people involved, even though they know they shouldn't be doing this It's whatever they're like, they think we can get away with it. Like they think it's like, it's fine. And everyone plays with fire and then everyone always gets fucking burned. And it's a recurring theme in Tomino's stuff that I love of that like war doesn't just destroy people. It destroys infrastructure. It destroys art. It destroys culture. It destroys homes. It destroys places. It destroys history. And it's like, and even though nobody wants those things to be destroyed and everyone agrees they're important and precious, they always are the things that get ripped up along with all the human bodies also. Absolutely. And then using the iconography of the mobile suit as the the destroyer, but also the thing that is left as like a permanent thing on this monument. Yeah. Keeping it up is just such an indelible image. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in G-Reco that another comparison I made to a recent art thing is Ridley Scott's Alien movies of the 2010s. So Prometheus and Alien Covenant. Uh, Y'all know we have our narrative issues with Prometheus, but you would never deny that being a fucking gorgeous movie. Oh, yeah. And particularly Alien Covenant. Have you ever seen Alien Covenant? No. I think I'm waiting for us to eventually do a podcast that's going to do... Eventually, someday we'll do some fucking Alien podcast and I'll watch it. I actually would gladly do that. I think that would be a great series once we're done with Batman, because the Alien movies are genuinely fascinating to talk about, even when they're bad. Um, But no, Alien Covenant, I think, is, to me, the best Alien movie since the original Alien. Yes, I'm including Aliens. I think it's better than that. Um, and, And more than anything, Covenant in particular just shows Ridley Scott, like, that dude can dream images that are crazy and throw them off like they're nothing. There's not even, like, that big important scene in the movie, and he can just throw them off. Uh, like there's one in in Alien Covenant that is the ship like out in deep space unfurls these giant solar ray sails so it can have or solar panel sails so it can recharge from the sun and like it doesn't like it's not an important plot point they're not like trying to find the sun at some point in the movie it's just an image that is so powerful and there's so much of that and I think there's a similar quality in G Reco of like someone who is like an obvious and a group of people who are obvious masters of their craft late in their career able to just throw off images left and right that would be like the big marquee visual idea of any other show and it's it's just a monday on g reco a Raraya exactly monday. yes it, yeah. it's it's absolute embarrassment of riches uh for yeah. sure yeah absolutely um I want to also give a shout out to the music by Yugo Kano. Yes. It's, we mentioned it earlier, but it's so good. It does definitely follow, I think, in some of the footsteps of the similarly named Yoko Kano uh-huh. on Turn A Gundam in its sort of experimentation with different, very like earthy instruments. Um, but it is very different, and I think it is extremely rousing when it needs to be. It's very moving when it needs to be. I love the big choral stuff it does around the Sioux courtism religion. Um, there's so much cool stuff. It's a great soundtrack. Yeah, it's a fantastic score. And I particularly really like all the folksy music. Yeah. Like, it's just that it's... And, and again, that is, as you say, that's, like, very similar to some of the stuff that Yoko Kana did in Turn A Gundam to sort of infuse the history of these places with the music that's playing there. Um, and that kind of the more 
almost like it's it's kind of vaguely slice of lifey um it kind of feels like a track that would be in a show that's a more kind of slice of life very lighter kind of show um like that stuff i think is just incredibly good and and it it as soon as i started hearing some of those music themes i had this big wave of nostalgia from the first time i watched the show because i think they're just like very distinct and very memorable there's uh that big like accordion driven theme yes that i know exactly what you mean because that sounds like it would play like at the beginning of an episode when you have your establishing shot of the high school and then you go uh-huh. inside and see all the kids in between classes sitting on the desk talking about what to do after school i could totally see that in like a slice of life high school anime you know yeah yeah it's uh it's a magnificent score and you know while we're on the topic should we talk about the theme songs of this fucking show yes because uh, especially the, the 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 opening theme thing is kind of interesting here right so yeah so one thing that that G-Reco does that is pretty rare in anime, I only know of like a few shows that do this, is outside of like a couple of things, it doesn't have um, like any original animated material in the OP. There's like a couple of shots and they touch up um, shots from the show. But the both opening theme animated, animated sequences at the beginning of episodes are constructed primarily out of touched up footage used in the actual show. Um, and there are two of them. The first one is using the song Blazing by Garnadelia, and the second one is the show uh, like The Magic of Two or Futari no Maho by Meiji. Um, and, and then you have where I feel like the show really put all of its effort into in this regard is an original ending theme sequence that's not that's like you know it's not animated it's so much as is individual stock images as a standard for an ending theme animated sequence um but then has the original song Gino Senko by Daisuke Hasegawa um playing over it and I I have to imagine like look look Tomino is old school he's been doing this since he worked on Astro Boy he literally worked on yes. the first anime uh-huh and I feel like Tomino is very much a guy we saw this with Turne who wants his one theme song that is there for the whole show. He tends to write the lyrics for them. Um, like yeah. he, it's the same as like the Overman King Gainer theme. It's like he 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 has his songs that he writes the lyrics to, and he wants to, like an original song made for his fucking show. Exactly. And I think I just have to imagine that what it was was in discussions with Sunrise. He says, "I have this great song, Gino Senko, for our opening." And they said, "Great. What will you do at episode 14? And he said, "Nothing at episode 14 because I will have one theme song for my fucking show." And they said. Tomino-san, we're giving you a lot of room, but we gotta sell CDs. We'll let you have one ending, but you need two openings. And he said, okay, then Gino Senko is the ending, and we will do something else for the openings. And they're like, will you do a custom animation? Nope, I don't give a shit. (laughs) I'm focusing on Gino Senko. That's very much what it felt like to me. And I actually love both openings. I think they're great songs. But, like, it very much felt like Gino Senko was, like, the song for G-Reco, and it's easier to get away with one ending than one opening in 2015. Yeah. And, and I think, I think it was also, I think a conscious decision probably to not spend the time and money on two separate opening animations, because yes. that's like, because that's like a lot of time and like a lot of really talented animated animated work goes into making those opening themes because that's always like the best animated section of any show is this 90 second opening because it's the thing that plays at the beginning of every episode it's the footage you can use in like the promos and ads and stuff like that you get to put the thing up on like your official youtube channel it gets like 10 million fucking views you know sell cds with the song and you'll have art for the all of that yeah 
Yeah, and so, so like, I don't... Because there is a rumor going around. There has always been a rumor of, like, oh, he wanted Gino Senko to be the opening theme. There's nothing to, like, substantiate that. He's never said anything to that effect. I suspect that it's not true. I think, like, Gino Senko was designed to be the ending theme. That's, like, how I wanted it. I just think... I suspect that he made a conscious budgetary choice to... Because he's actually done this on some of his other shows, like Brain Powered and Overman King Gainer. While they have original animated openings they don't go as sort of buck fucking wild as most shows do for their opening animations. <laughs> and they're clearly a little bit more budgeted. I think he makes the conscious choice not to spend that m- amount of time and money animating those opening sequences and instead spend those same resources somewhere on the actual main show production, which is, you know, probably the, the fucking right choice for me. Well, he's done that since Zeta. Zeta yeah. has two openings, but they share a lot of the animation. Yeah. That's Double Zeta does it, uh, Victory, and then most non-Tomino Gundam shows go do the Buckwild all-new animation every time route. Tomino very clearly is like, just let's save the money. I want to do a cool fucking new type action scene, you know? Yes. No, it makes sense. But uh, let's talk about the songs in order. Blazing, I think, is a great opening. I... I, at this point, I have no idea what will and will not end up on my top 10 songs for this crazy year of shows we're doing. Um, but I love Blazing, and it's one of my favorite recent openings we've had. I think it's a really great song. And if you haven't listened to its like full four-minute version, it's honestly even better because the bridge for that song mm-hmm. is really cool. I usually think anime song bridges are kind of lame. Because it's like, this is like, you wrote this because really only the first two minutes mattered and then blah, blah, blah. But like, it's really good. Blazing is a great song. Yeah, I, I really love Blazing. I've, I This has been like a mainstay in my kind of like anime song playlist for a long time. I do think it's the show, the song I always think is kind of funny, it, it being a theme to G-Reco. Because it doesn't fit the show to me. Like, I love the song. But it like it feels like it should be an opening theme to Sword Art Online or um like but there's a bunch of other shows that like Garnadili has a bunch of anime songs. I don't know if she's done a Sword Art Online one. I know she's done an Overlord one, which is another Isekai show. But like it feels like it should be at a show like that. And G Reco's just so not like that kind of show that I find it very funny because every time an Epo show to start up and it would start playing this, I would feel like Am I watching an AMV? Like, this just doesn't feel like a, a song that, that fits this show exactly, even though it's a great fucking song. Yeah, I get what you mean. I I, I didn't quite have that same reaction to it. Uh, I do think even though it's not original animation, the themes are very well edited to the music. Yes. Um, particularly there's the moment in, it doesn't work in the second opening when they do this, but in the first opening, the one piece of original animation is the three main women of the show doing their big like dance move. Uh And the way that unfolds to the beat of the music is one of my favorite moments in every episode with Blazing. Yes, absolutely. Um, And then Futari no Maho threw me for a loop at first because it 100% sounds like an ending song, but I grew to really love it. I think it's a really nice song and I think it, I actually think it probably fits G-Reco better um, in the way you're saying. I don't like it as much as a song necessarily, but it is... I grew to really like it as an opening. And I also love that that opening just starts with Mask and Bellary bashing helmets together over this, like, love song. It's very fun. Uh Yeah, like, yeah, I think Blazing is a better song, but I think Futari no Maho is definitely a better song for G-Reco. Like, because that was... Because honestly, I had totally forgotten that Blazing was a G-Reco song. That song has been my anime playlist for like six (laughs) years or something. I have always thought that that was like a Sword Art Online or maybe it was like an opening for Kuroko's Basketball. Like, I knew it was like a mid-2010s 
anime. I just, you know, I've watched a fucking million fucking anime from the 2010s. Um, I didn't remember which one Blazing was. And so when that started playing with Jirak, I'm like, oh, right. It's a G- this, like, that's weird because it doesn't seem like it. And then when Fatali no Maho started playing, I was like, this is the song I remember Jirak having as an opening because it fits the tone of the show so much better. It's so much more kind of like warm and very nostalgic feeling. Um, and yeah, like, like it's, it definitely sounds like in another show, it would be the ending theme, but I think it's actually very appropriate for G record to have a very like low key kind of like quieter, uh, more pleasant song as its opening theme than something that's like, your like, you know, hard hitting J rock kind of thing. Yeah. I get what you mean. And then Gino Senko. Yes. I, I, every time it played, I wanted to stand up and cheer. You did it. You made a song for a show called Reconquista no G that goes Gino Reconquista over and over again, you crazy maniacs. It's the same thing as like Turn A Gundam doing a song called Turn A Turn, and it's fucking great. What a song. It's amazing. Yeah. Especially if you listen to the full version of it, like the ending of the full version of the song just says like Gino Reconquista like eight times in a row. Like it yes. just goes, goes, goes. It's great. Yeah, Gino Senko is one of my, this is like one of my all-time favorite endings for any anime. Yeah. Um, the, the artist Daisuke Hasegawa like, has done some really great stuff. He's also done, um, around this time, he did the third opening animation for Jojo's Bizarre Adventure Part 4. So Diamond is Unbreakable, which is my favorite part of that sh- series. It's a song called Great Days. Um, that is also just one of the best. Um, and he's got this very distinctive, very kind of bright vocal style, particularly for like a male singer that's very kind of unexpected. Um, and the lyrics to the song are just the fucking best, in particularly the chorus. Um, there's something about the wordplay of um, the lines where it says, the G of Genki is the G of Hajimari, it's the G of Rekongista, basically is what it says in Japanese. And I love them taking, you know, the G, right, which is this, you know, letter that both means Gundam, but also, like, means specifically for the show, it means ground and, like, the earth. Um, but the G of Genki, which is a Japanese word, which means lively or energetic, which if you transliterated it into English, it would start with the letter G, saying that that is the same G as the G in Hajimari, which is a Japanese word meaning beginning, that if you translate it to English, doesn't have a letter G in it, but it has the character G um, that you would translate as like J-I in English that sounds like saying the letter G. So it's saying the actual letter G in Genki that doesn't, isn't pronounced G, but is a letter G in English is the same as the character G, <laughs> which you wouldn't use letter G for in English. Um, and it's really, it's all of it is the G of Reconquista, which is a Spanish word that doesn't have a G in it. It's Reconquista, but because Spanish, Japanese likes to have a voice consonant after the N sound, we changed it to G, so it's Reconquista. There's like this crazy, it like confluence <laughs> of three different languages and none of it makes sense, but all them are G and it's the G of Reconquista motherfuckers and it's like one of my favorite lyrics literally in any song I've ever heard because it like it just puts a smile on my face every time because the concept of it is so goofy and it just makes me think about this show where it's like everything is nonsense but it's all the same thing it's all G and let's just have a good time is basically I think what again and Tobino wrote those fucking lyrics I think that's like legitimately what he's trying to like communicate with this it's like it's all nonsense but it's all G let's go uh, it, it's amazing. When I say I want to like stand up and cheer, it is that like you know, you know Gino Genki, Gino Hajimari, Gino Reconquista, and I'm like, you did it, you maniacs! You like did this crazy song building it because it's not just that you worked in the phrase Gino Reconquista into a song, but the wordplay, as you say, Sean, that builds up to Gino Reconquista. 
it's perfect it's amazing uh, i love that it does the openings do not have romaji or, or like the katakana like sing along at the bottom but the the ending does and it, it kind of has to you have to yes. have that there it's so good um because it's not even that part it's so sing along the whole thing of like tsukabe prido success yes. it's oh my god i love it yeah, and and then the like the imagery of the sort of like chorus line of everyone dancing and doing the high kicks um, yes. are fantastic. I love. There's like just like a weirdly almost like sort of like dark moment of where fucking Bellery is with um, uh, Captain Cahill and the instructor guy. He both the people <laughs> he murders in the first half of the show, <laughs> like the two most traumatic deaths of the show, and he's they're like shoulder to shoulder doing the high kicks, and it's almost like a like is this. A, ending theme taking place in the world of build fighters is this also gundam heaven is that what we're looking at sean maybe that'll be tomino's next gundam show is a build fighters show all about the characters in his shows uh, dead and in heaven together um dancing i would yes. watch that it's gundam build dancers um it's where you make gunpla and now i'm describing a great fucking show idea take it sunrise yes. but you use the plavsky particle to make them dance yes i now i am mad that this doesn't exist Absolutely, and 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 that leads us to the the dancing part, Jonathan. Yes, because, absolutely. Um, so it's a recurring like visual element across the show that's like most distinct to that ending, and then also the eye catch has it's got to be what about like maybe ten different unique dances. Um, for all the major characters in the show where the eye catch will come on and usually depending on like how much you know time they have for the episode sometimes they don't do both of them but usually there's two eye catches that show a very brief little dance for each character that's a personalized dance for each character one of the things that's really cool about this and it's like i think it's like a common visual like kind of motif across the whole show and i think it partially informs how they do the action direction and a lot of that stuff we already talked about that kind of musical quality to the show um of, of its editing or its storyboarding has that dance like quality to it but one of the reasons why that dance stuff happens in the first place is that uh yoshiyuki tomino's second daughter yukio tomino is a professional dancer um she like went to europe and learned how to dance and like she's a contemporary dance like performer like she's a professional like it's how she makes her living um and so yukio tomino worked on the show with her dad to design those dances so all those dances are choreographed um by her and one thing that's interesting and it should be noted like she's like a well-known enough dancer in her own right that she has a japanese wikipedia entry she doesn't have one in the english wikipedia but like that to me indicates that like she's won a bunch of rewards and stuff like that like i don't know a lot about the world of dancing in america let alone in japan so i can't give a lot of context for it but it seems like she's fairly well known and nobody knew that she was tomino's daughter until this show like obviously they knew what her last name was but it wasn't until like she officially like announced like she was working on this project and it's like and yes he is my father that like she had kind of kept that private I think that's like a really kind of sweet little detail of this show that it was this like project that um, is the only thing that he's ever collaborated with, as far as I know, any member of his family with, is that his daughter made these dances for him. And they're beautiful. They're great. They're, I mean, she must be really good because they're like three seconds of dance yeah. that all communicate something about the character. And then the little music that Hugo Kano writes for all of the eye catches, because they all have individual music uh -huh. too. 
Um, I mean, these are the best eye catches in the history of Gundam. They're some yes. of the best eye catches in the history of anime. These are the first eye catches Gundam has had since Seed Destiny because they got rid of eye catches and it made me mad because no anime should go without eye catches. Eye catches are fucking sacred. I understand we need time for commercials, but keep the eye catches, goddammit. I've got and bad news for you about like the modern anime industry. I like, know. No but... anime has eye catches and has it for like 15 years. I mean, they like only like anime the kind of show that runs for like every episode for like 500 years will still will have them um but yeah, most well, anime does not have eye catches anymore i understand but you get what i mean sean they yes. fucking should eye catches are great and like i love that like it feels like tomino like saying my rant right now in the show of like no not like i didn't i skimped out on the opening and ending or the opening animations but no i put the fucking work in on these eye catches and they are here as much as they can possibly be and they are elaborate like these are more elaborate than like i think any other that my other two favorite gundam eye catches are the original just because of the shoo, shoo. but the animation to those is nothing special and then Victory Gundam has the one that is Haro and Flanders gradually, like, taking over the Earth, which is amazing. Yeah. Um, but, like, this is, like, really special stuff. And, like, it is, like, a real statement of why the eye catches, I think, have value. And I do love, in general, that just Tomino takes a very old-school approach to the structure of episodes, which is they always... There's no cold open. There's none of that shit. <laughs> the theme song. Part A, eye catch. Part B, ending the you know, next episode preview whereas Gundam has gotten like very modern otherwise with like cold opens and cold endings and you know all of that kind of stuff and um he puts it all sort of in place here and uh, I am definitely a fan of that and I am I'm always because like Sean in in our in weekly suit Gundam editing these I got really sad when uh -huh. I didn't have new eye catches to put in so I've just been using the original shoe eye catch because it's my favorite but in this episode I will get to use real eye catches and I'm so happy. I'm just so happy. Yeah. It it does feel like it's a very intentional, like, kind of throwbacky element of, like, the show's entire structure, as you say, is, like, very throwbacky to how anime used to be, including that, like, insistence that every single episode has a big action scene. You, none of this, none of this turn a Gundam, like, oh, we're just hanging out and having a good time shit. We're going to fucking, <laughs> something's going to blow the fuck up every single episode. Um, and, yeah, like, like it's a very intentional sort of like combining the old and the new right it's like it's it's very kind of radical storytelling style but that is like finding that amidst like the sort of like historical traditions of anime that the original gundam is a very big part of um you know yeah. the original gundam has its op its eye catches its ed and it's got uh its next on preview with its little catchphrase um and then it, it also has a fucking fight scene every episode come hell or high water we're going to fight. Someone's going to get in that goddamn Gundam and something's going to blow up every single episode because we need to sell some fucking toys. And the the, uh, the next episode previews are even special. Like, yeah. they're really good. You have the narration from Bellry. It's very playful and fun. And then he always has these different lines at the end of, like, if you don't watch, you won't understand. Or I bet you're really excited to watch. Or all of these, like, really playful invitations to the viewer over a really cool treatment of the title that is not just the title treatment from the main episode. Um, I really love it. It's it's really cool because because next episode previews are also obviously kind of a an easy chopping block thing yeah. to cut out when you need time. But they they put they're only like fifteen seconds, but they're really good. Yeah, the show the show likes having that structure, and I, I say like I think it's important because so much of the show is like so slippery and hard to get your head around that having these like very clear structural elements that are like 
decades old that you can kind of lean on a little bit it makes you feel a little like a little more safe comfortable with the show that like you always are going to get your little next on preview it's going to be mostly like kind of meaningless gibberish in terms of what you see and then Bellary will say a cute little line and then you'll get the title which is how next episode preview should be god damn it exactly. that's that is the way our lord god dende intended it to yeah. be it's either that or the next on preview just spoils everything about the next episode and then it ends <laughs> with like the title and then yamcha dies and you're like well that's, i guess you don't need to see the next episode then i made the dende joke but that is the dragon ball approach the dragon yeah. ball approach is you will know exactly what happens which actually is pretty common of of shows based on long running manga because the average viewer already yeah, knows, knows from the manga yeah, yeah. So, Dragon Ball doesn't care. Goku dies will be the title of the episode where Goku dies, obviously. Um, anyway, so yeah, all that structuring stuff is so fun. Um, I actually think, Sean, we've done a pretty good job covering most of this show. I think the last thing I do want to touch on, at least for my like list of topics, is just the ending, the final episode, mm-hmm. and how the show chooses to wrap up. Because it is... It is not the, like, turn A thing of where turn A Gundam kind of resolves at the halfway point and then has a very, like, unusually long denouement for Tomino culminating in possibly the best scene in the history of Gundam, the five-minute montage that closes. We we will one day do a list ranking our favorite Gundam scenes, and we will have to figure out if that or, like, the Cosmic Glow... Or the Axis Shock. What is what is the number one Gundam moment? But you would agree the Turn A Gundam ending is in the running for that? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. So this show does not do that. This show, like this show, like, is honestly even more classical Tomino in like the denouement will come through the action. And this show doesn't even do like interpersonal character closure. It's it's hard to even say it ends in a traditional sense. I was saying this last night, and I know this sounds semantic, but it's important. Because I think the show's beginning is the same way, where the first thing that happens in the first episode is Raraya falling through the sky in the G-Self. You come in just so in the middle of the show, it feels like the show starts, it doesn't begin. And I think the show feels kind of like it stops, but doesn't end, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's an open... Ending in the same way that you say is it open beginning. It is. It is. The show itself is a middle for a like much larger sort of story, if you want to call it that, of like these characters' lives and this world, and you're given this one brief window into it, right? Um, yeah, that 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 it's 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 the characters don't culminate in anything because people don't culminate in things. It's it is. Bellary reaching the point where now he can go out and explore the world uninhibited by this conflict he's found himself embroiled into and he can expand his horizons and that's where you leave off the story not on this sort of like more definitive conclusive point yeah because even the war the war does not end it stops it's like people they just kind of all realize they're fighting for nothing with the help of Ida kind of gives a push coming into that leadership role but it just sort of stops. Um, and, you know, individual episodes are also structured this way. Pretty much every individual episode of G-Reco has a very nebulous opening where you explained this earlier that it's usually in medias res. Stuff has happened. Time has passed. And then it usually kind of ends on, like, very close to, like, the climactic moment of the episode. It will fade to black, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I do think the show is exactly what you were saying, Sean. It, it is about that idea of life being a perpetual middle Life does not have beginnings and endings. We all come in in the middle and we all go out at some point in the middle. 
and we are always present tense beings and the show has this very like i think part of its language is this present tenseness and it does not break that for the ending and i think that's one of its boldest and most challenging choices it threw me off definitely i i rewatched the second act of the finale twice just to get my head around it um mm-hmm. and i think it's kind of perfect for the show but it is not an easy like it doesn't give you the kind of like finality that even other Tomino Gundams very much give you and you expect of stories. Yeah, it's it's the reason why, like, I imagine if you went back and listened to an early episode, I think I talked about this on the podcast, that I felt like my I really wanted to watch G-Reco because my feelings on the show were unsettled. I think it's because of that ending is so sort of, like, surprising and unexpected and... You know, when I watched that show, I wasn't watching it for a fucking podcast. You know, I mean, when I watched that show, that was like seven months after I had watched the original Mobile Suit Gundam for the first time. I hadn't lived with Tomino for like two or three years recording a podcast on it every single time. So like, I, you know, the, the, like, my ability to sort of like ingest the show, I think was a little bit hard at that point. Um, And leaving that ending, I was just like, then having to talk about it or think about it four or five years later, I'm like, God, how do I feel about G-Reco? I remember really liking it, but I don't even know how to explain it or talk about it in any meaningful way that far removed from it. And it was very satisfying rewatching it and getting to that ending point and, and like having, I think, a better grasp of what the show was going for because I had seen it once and going in fresh, um, or not fresh, but going in like now, like kind of understanding its overall vision and going in with that knowledge that made the ending feel so powerful and appropriate. I love the fact that Bellary goes to Japan as sort of like nonsensical as it kind of is in this world where, you know, here's Ameria. It's not America, it's Ameria. Um, and then and, and Bellary's just like, no, nah, this is just Japan. And I'm just in Japan. Um, and there's something that almost reminds me of like the ending of the rebuild of Evangelion movies where it kind of breaks down a little bit of the fictional construction of the world you're living in. And it's like, it kind of just feels like he's in our world in a way. I mean, obviously he's still in like his weird mecha walker thing. But it right, feels it's like not he's... literally, but it feels like that. Yes, yeah. it feels like he's exited like the existence of G-Reco and sort of entered our world as like this teenager who's just going off on like, you know, a road trip to expand his horizons. I might be wrong. Is this the first time we've ever, outside of Build Fighters, explicitly been in Japan in a Gundam show? I think it is, yeah. It, it, at the very least, it's the first time I feel like we've been explicitly in Japan with iconography like Mount Fuji. Yeah, yeah. You know, Other than like, like Double Double O Gundam, we have like Gundam Build Fighters. Right, we have, right. but in terms of a Tomino Gundam, definitely not. Yeah, and in Double O, they're not doing all the stuff with like iconography. Like the main characters don't go out and visit Mount Fuji, right? Yeah, like or something like that. Um, so like I do find, I mean, it is brief. It's like sixty second final scene. I do think, because I watched, so like I said, I watched the second act twice, and then I watched that final, like, three minutes, like, several times. And I do, the more I watched it and thought about it, the more I do think the ending of Bellry in Japan asking these nice old people, one of whom is an obvious Tomino self-insert, because he looks just like him, um, for directions, and then going to Mount Fuji, and the ending is him breaking the taboo in the sand, running through it, and then jumping into the air... I think is a tremendously impactful ending and I think is such a perfect summation of what the show is about and that idea of like the the message that Tomino winds up giving to the youth is like embrace the heritage that is your earth 
and like go explore it and see it with your own two eyes on your own two legs or in a machine like with like in this case with you know mechanical legs but or a car or something a plane you know Mm -hmm. and like this is a good thing and this is like a value of being alive like that's what the show is about and it is the right ending it is an abrupt ending but it is the right ending Absolutely. And I actually want to read um, a quote from a critical take that this is like one of the first like big like positive critical takes I feel like in the Japanese um, sort of like critical sphere. Um, and this is from Udobuchi Gen, who is a great anime writer. Like he's he was the writer of Madoka Magica, um, Fate Zero, Psychopaths. Um, and he really liked Jireko. Um, and he wrote a whole like sort of like he has a uh, article that he writes every month or whatever in his magazine. Um, and for one month in 2015, he did one on uh, G Reco. I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's pretty long. But his basic take is that it is kind of part of the thing we've been talking about is that um, G Reco is a story that is like against stories and is about kind of like the dangers of storytelling um, and how like stories collapse the world into things that are good and things that are evil and they explain things to you um and that for sometimes that can be okay but oftentimes it can be used to sort of like twist people and things like that and so that's sort of his premise and then um he talks a little bit about mask and bellary's fight at the end um and sort of the context of what he's saying here is him talking about how mask's sort of perception of the discrimination against the Kuntala is something that is so removed from like our viewpoint as an audience that like we don't know how real the discrimination is and that in many ways it feels that mask is like created and is like invested in this sort of narrative that he has been given that he's sort of feeding himself and that's why he becomes a sort of like tragic villain character at the end of the show and so then he says in order to complete this story um he mask forces onto Bellary the role-playing of the villain this is solely because Bellary's lineage and surroundings contain elements that would make him a good villain for Mask. That Bellary doesn't respond by arguing with his old friend dramatically is what makes Jireko amazing. In the end, Bellary doesn't commit himself to a greater good or fate or anything above his personal level, and at each point in time only does what he thinks he ought to do at the moment. No matter how much his ex-friend runs around going crazy, Ida's more important to him. At the end of this one-sided game of tag, completely out of place between a robot anime's protagonist and his rival, the final episode concludes with the unthinkable, in which he just abandons the fight and runs off in his core fighter. All that's left are people who are strong enough to live without the lies of stories. They are freed from the boring curses known as catharsis or conclusions and head towards the future. When I saw the end credits, I was just moved and exclaimed, they did it! I had been worried about the limits of storytelling and was just thankful for the slap from a veteran creator to me. Rekongisa of G made me Genki. A, a beautiful, amazing pair. I read that the other night too, and or last night, and that is such a perfect encapsulation of of what we've been trying to say, and yeah. like what the show very much says. And yeah, it is. He fucks off in his core fighter, and he goes and sees the world. And I think that also gets to that idea I was saying of like the perpetual present tenseness of it. And like it very much denying a past or future tense because that's how we all live. Um, absolutely. And that feeling of like what he describes there of being slapped out of thinking that we're out of new stories to tell. That's one of the joys of yeah. this too is like, man, sometimes I can feel cynical about the media age we are in. And then I see something like G-Reco that is a couple years old at this point, but is new and go like, oh God, the possibilities are fucking endless. And this is from a and this is from a guy who's been around as long as it's possible to be around in anime, um, 
you know, and we have a whole multiple generations who have come up in his footsteps who will one day be making their G Recos. That's such an exciting concept, you know? Yeah. And I, and I just love um, uh, Udubuchi Gen's like sort of reading of that, like, that that Bellary is like rejecting like the convenience of, of a catharsis at the end of a story and saying this is like, no, yeah. like, and, and it's the thing that's like, I think almost off-putting about that last episode is just you're like you're expecting the big showdown and Bellary resists it for the entire time. And like, I love he like, you know, runs into Jabro, which is a great little, you know, throwback. And you see like these like petrified Zagoks um, down there and stuff like that. And you see like the ruins of the previous generations that have fed into this cycle and and it is like the thing that separates Bellary from Lauren is that while Lauren does throw his sword away at the last moment he does commit to the fight against Gim Ginham like he sees no other way out he has to use violence ultimately in in that fight both like in the turn of Gundam and then physically overpowering Gim Gim Ginham to end it um and so Lauren isn't able to fully escape that and I like that Bellary is the character who's like, I'm just out. Like, I'm just gone. I don't want to fight you. I don't need to fight you. There's no reason to fight you. Like, the war in g has always been nonsensical. There has never been a good reason for these conflicts to be happening. They're all based on, like, weird misinterpretations of seeing fucking spaceships in the, in, around the moon and thinking there's a military presence and your own, like, petty ambitions for taking over other countries or taking over the Capitol Tower. But there's never been a good motive for these wars. And Bellary just leaves. And it's so weird because you don't get the big final showdown, really. But it's so satisfying, I think, when you kind of, like, process what the show is trying to go for, um, that it, like, really, like, executes this very unconventional ending that's pretty radical, um, but very appropriate. It's an, it's, a, it's an ending or a stopping point that yeah. very directly invites you, the viewer, to continue it in your mind and in your life. It is an ending that, like, rejects the idea of the ending but very much embraces the idea of what Bellary, I think, comes to represent, which is that in eternal present tense and living the best you can, which is kind of in the moment. And he continues doing that. And then the show ends. And I think it implicitly invites you to do the same. Um, it's a, it's a, it definitely threw me for a loop, but I think it's fucking brilliant. Absolutely, 100%. And I think that's the show. I think that's... Uh, if you were not thrown for a loop by G Reco, you're lying. But yes. it is fucking brilliant. Like I, I, we will do the hard work of ranking all the Gundams again come June of 2022. This is one of the best Gundam shows. This is absolutely one of the best Gundam shows, and and I think I want to like end this discussion on G Reco by bringing in a couple of quotes from Tomino um, himself. Uh, from, Please do yes from the end of him creating the show. So these are all quotes I pulled from interviews uh, that were linked from the Japanese Wikipedia. Um, I thought that these were all very fun, and this is where you get some of Tomino's fucking sense of humor, which I love. So um, in some interviews after the series, here's a couple of quotes that Tomino said. Um, so when he was asked about um, this feeling of like there's too much content or like too much stuff stuffed into G Reco, he said, well, I probably should have thought this is just a robot thing and given up there. But I do have this unfortunate habit of having to stuff something more in what I create, <laughs> um, which is the most like dismissive fucking just like a oh, fuck off. <laughs> it's, like, yeah. it's like I should have just thought eh, this is just a robot show and just sort of throw it away. But instead, I have this weird habit of trying to do something more with it. 
Um, I love that quote. Um, and then this one here, uh, which I think is very much like his sort of like parting message on the show is, on the one hand, I feel bad for making an anime that's so hard to watch. This is in response to criticism of the show. I feel bad that the show is so hard to watch. On the other hand, I'm confident that I have sowed a seed here. Um, if I'm being perfectly honest, I rather like G-Reco. I would like the young viewers to think back on the show 20 years from now, and that's why I'm conscious of sowing the seed now, because that means that this work wasn't pointless. I can't say it was a hit, but I am glad that I have made and left this show in this time. Me too. Man, that is that is the right way to look at it, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 it's it is a, a beautiful, weird, crazy thing, G Reco. Yeah. And I'm I'm very glad to have had the opportunity to rewatch it and, and, and finally be able to talk about it. Because it's definitely a show that yeah. has been festering in the back of my mind for like five years. And it's been a long journey on this podcast to get to this one. It's like, finally, it's it's just every time we get to one of these ones I've really wanted to talk about, it's very satisfying just to like cross that off the list. Like, yes, finally got to fucking yeah. talk about this show. Absolutely. So we did get a couple of questions on Twitter of whether or not we would touch on the movies at all. And that's kind of hard because three are out in theaters, two are out on home video. So we don't have access to the third yet. And there's going to be five. I do think I would when all five are out. I think it might be fun to come back and do an episode on the movie versions. If for no other reason than it would... Even if nothing is different, we would get to revisit some of the ideas of G-Reco. And if things are structured in interesting or different ways, well then, there you go. There's a lot to talk about. So, yeah. when all five are done, I would like to. Yeah, absolutely. Because, like I said, the Tornade Gundam stuff, like... You know, this is five movies across a 26 episode, five basically 90 minutes. The first three movies are all 90 minutes, so I assume four and five will probably be 90 minutes as well. Like, that's not really that off from what the actual runtime of the show fucking is in the first no. place. It's like an hour or two off. Um, so, yeah, I'm actually very interested um, in seeing what those are. And presumably, it's been one movie a year. Um, so presumably in 2023, they would be done. So, yes, I would love to watch the movies, but but obviously would want to wait until they're all finished. Yes, exactly. Uh, but for now, we march on inexorably towards the show that was always, to me, the flag at the top of the hill we were climbing, Iron-Blooded Orphans. Yes, we, we are. It, it has been a long time coming. It is like a really weird feeling to I say this. I can't believe we're here. Yeah, but as as we did with Double O Gundam, um, we'll be treating the two seasons of Iron-Blooded Orphans as different episodes, so we'll do season one. And then season two is two separate episodes. But yes, next time on the show, Jonathan, we will be taking a trip to Mars to see what the fuck's going up on that weird red planet. Because we'll be watching Mobile Suit Gundam, Iron-Blooded Orphans. <laughs> 